Chapter 17 Own Rates of Interest Speculative Anticipations Are Not Interest Chapter 17 of the General Theory The Essential Properties of Interest and Money is dull, implausible, and full of obscurities, non sequiturs, and other fallacies. Even Alvin Hansen, Keynes's leading American disciple, has written Immediately after the appearance of the general theory, there was a fascination about chapter 17, due partly no doubt to its obscurity. Digging in this area, however, soon ceased after it was found that the chapter contained no gold mines. In general, not much would have been lost had it never been written. Keynes's discussion in section 1, chapter 17 is confused and of no real importance. I am tempted to let the matter go at this, but some of the fallacies that appear in this chapter are worth analysis, both in the interests of thoroughness and for the light the analysis may throw on the rest of the general theory. It is in this chapter that Keynes toys with the strange notion of own rates of interest. The money rate of interest, we may remind the reader, is nothing more than a percentage excess of a sum of money contracted for forward delivery, e.g., a year hence, over what we may call the spot or cash price of the sum thus contracted for forward delivery. It would seem, therefore, that for every kind of capital asset there must be an analogue of the rate of interest on money. For there is a definite quantity of, e.g., wheat, to be delivered a year hence, which has the same exchange value today as one hundred quarters of wheat for spot delivery. If the former quantity is one hundred five quarters, we may say that the wheat rate of interest is five percent per annum, and if it is ninety five quarters, that it is minus five percent per annum. Thus, for every durable commodity, we have a rate of interest in terms of itself, a wheat rate of interest, a copper rate of interest, a house rate of interest, even a steel plant rate of interest, pages 222 through 223. Of all the confusions in the general theory, this is one of the most incredible. Even such loyal Keynesians as Hansen and Lerner boggle at it. The own rate of interest, the house rate, the wheat rate, and the money rate, Hansen insists, is in fact the marginal efficiency of a unit, whether that unit be a house, a bushel of wheat, or a sum of money. The all-embracing term for the so-called own rate of interest is the marginal efficiency rate, or the rate of return over cost from investment in an increment of the capital asset in question. Now, this is only a little less nonsensical, a little less violent misnomer than Keynes's own term. What Keynes is talking about is certainly not an interest rate of any kind, nor is it, as Hansen supposes, a marginal efficiency rate. It is not merely that it would be confusing and silly to talk of a marginal efficiency rate of a bushel of wheat.
This marginal efficiency rate would often be a negative sum, and if the marginal efficiency of a bushel of wheat were negative, the price of a bushel of wheat would also be negative, or at least zero. Now, an interest rate is at least a rate. If it amounts to R for one year, then it is two R for two years, three R for three years, one half R for one half year, and so on. On such an analogy, one might perhaps talk of the net rent of a house as a house rate of interest. But what Keynes is talking about is not even a hiring rate, which would at least have some reasonable analogy with an interest rate. He is talking merely of speculative anticipations of price changes, which may change from day to day, hour to hour, or minute to minute. Keynes should have had some intimation that he was talking nonsense. One would suppose when he was explaining. Own rates of interest to the reader. Let us suppose, he writes, that the spot price of wheat is one hundred pounds sterling per one hundred quarters. That the price of the future contract for wheat for delivery a year hence is one hundred seven pounds sterling per hundred quarters, and that the money rate of interest is five percent. What is the wheat rate of interest? Page two twenty three. After a slight calculation, he concludes that in this case the wheat rate of interest is minus two percent per annum, and he adds in a footnote, "This relationship was first pointed out by Mr. Strafa, Economic Journal, March 1932, page 223." Now, a negative interest rate is in itself a foolish and self-contradictory conception. For it is impossible to imagine any sane person lending any amount of wheat or money or anything else in order to make a foreseen loss, and the term interest rate implies that the rate is foreseen if it implies anything. The term interest rate again implies that something is being lent by one party to the transaction and borrowed by the other, and that the principal sum or object is being returned by the borrower to the lender at the end of the contractual period. But no lending or borrowing of wheat occurs in the transaction described by Keynes, but merely a purchase and sale. And if a rate of interest is being paid, it is impossible to figure from whom to whom. It is even impossible to know from the illustration Keynes gives whether the purchaser of the future contract for wheat has made a profit or a loss. To know that, one would also have to know the spot price for wheat when the year was up, and compare it with the 107 pounds sterling that the purchaser of the future contract had to pay. We cannot even say, in the illustration given, that the seller of the 100 quarters of wheat is two pounds sterling better off than if he had not sold the wheat but had borrowed 100 pounds sterling at five percent to carry it, because this would depend entirely upon the spot price he would have to pay for the same amount of wheat when the year was up. 
Similarly, we cannot even say that the buyer of the future contract for wheat is two pounds sterling worse off than if he had not bought the forward contract, but had lent out his one hundred pounds sterling at five percent for a year instead. To answer either question, we must know what the spot price of wheat is at the time that the future contract falls due. If the price of spot wheat is then one hundred fourteen pounds sterling, the previous seller of the wheat is nine pounds sterling worse off than he might have been if he had held his wheat, and the buyer of the forward wheat is nine pounds sterling better off than he would have been if he had not bought the forward contract. Similarly, if the spot price of wheat at the end of the year is still one hundred pounds sterling, then the seller of the wheat is five pounds sterling better off than if he had held his wheat and paid five pounds sterling interest to carry it, and the buyer is five pounds sterling worse off than if he had not bought the future contract but had merely lent out his money at five percent instead. But in neither case, of course, are we talking about a wheat rate of interest. The whole illustration, in fact, leads one to question how much Keynes knew about actual transactions in the speculative commodity markets. I pick up the newspaper as of the day I am writing this and quote some illustrations as I find them. As of August eighth, nineteen fifty-seven, then the opening price of Chicago wheat new contract for September delivery was two dollars and fourteen cents a bushel. For December delivery, two dollars and nineteen and a half cents a bushel. For the following March, two dollars and twenty-one and three quarters of a cent per bushel. But for the following May. Two dollars and sixteen and seven eighths of a cent, and for the following July, two dollars and three and three quarters of a cent. How could one figure from this the wheat rate of interest? There is, of course, a premium of five and a half cents for December wheat over September, and a premium of seven and three quarters of a cent of March over September, and of. Two and a quarter cents of March over December. If one finds such confusion amusing, one could treat these sums as a negative wheat rate of interest. Even here, however, one would be hard put to explain it why the negative wheat rate of interest was so much lower for six months than for three months. But what is one to do when one gets to the May and July deliveries and finds the situation completely reversed, so that one can buy a bushel of wheat for delivery eleven months off for ten and a quarter cents less than one pays for delivery next month? Here are all sorts of positive and negative rates of interest for the same commodity on the same day. If we turn to Chicago corn, also on August eighth, nineteen fifty-seven, we find exactly the reverse situation. There, the price of bushel for corn for September delivery is one dollar and thirty and seven eighths of a cent. For December delivery, one dollar and twenty-six and seven eighths of a cent. 
for March delivery, $1.31 and one eighth of a cent. And for May delivery, $1.33 and seven eighths of a cent. So the corn rate of interest, unlike the wheat rate of interest, for the first three months is a positive rate, talking in Keynesian terms, but for six and eight months suddenly becomes a negative rate. If we throw out all such nonsense, stop calling apples cherries in triangles squares, and ask what really happens, we find that the difference between spot prices and future prices, or between one future price and another, is merely the result of differences in speculative anticipations. The speculative community, in other words, is putting a separate guess on the probable supply and demand situation regarding each commodity at each of a series of delivery dates in the future. Unlike the situation with regard to riskless money lending, the profit or loss from these transactions cannot be known in advance, unless they are hedging operations designed to avoid a speculative risk by taking the risk both ways. This does not mean that the going short-term interest rate on money does not play a part in speculative prices. Where the wheat that is being sold for forward delivery must meanwhile be carried by the seller in storage, the seller will mentally deduct the prospective storage insurance, and other carrying charges, including the interest he has to pay to borrow the money to carry it, in figuring what he is really getting for his wheat, and the buyer will mentally add these carrying charges in figuring what he is really paying. But both are in fact betting on what they expect the spot price to be for wheat on the day of delivery. The buyer thinks he will be getting the wheat cheaper, or at least avoiding the risks of loss, by buying it now at the existing futures price than by paying the spot price as he expects it to be six or nine months hence. The seller thinks he is getting more, or avoiding risk, by selling at the futures price now than by waiting to sell and taking a chance on the spot price six or nine months hence. Buyer and seller, in short, have different estimates. Each is betting against the judgment of the other. There is no need for any concept of a wheat rate of interest in understanding such a transaction. There is no real analogy with any rate of interest, and nothing but confusion can result from introducing a spurious analogy. Impossible Miracles because there is no validity at all in the idea of own rates of interest, I shall spare the reader an analysis of the pretentious algebraic notation Q minus C plus L, etc., that Keynes introduces to explain the differences between the own rates of interest of different goods. It is curious, in fact, how Keynes himself pursues this and other of his own ideas to the point of reductio ad absurdum, while seeming to remain completely blind to the absurdity. At one point he even introduces the idea that each national currency must have a different own rate of interest. 
Here also the difference between the spot and future contracts for a foreign money in terms of sterling are not, as a rule, the same for different foreign monies. Page 224. Of course not. And the reason is clearly that, as long as most national currencies remain on a mere paper basis, there is bound to be a different speculative guess, changing daily, concerning the future value of every national currency. To call these different speculative guesses rates of interest is merely silly. On the same page, Keynes, in illustrating own rates of interest theory, writes, to illustrate this, let us take the simplest case where wheat, one of the alternative standards, is expected to appreciate at a steady rate of a percent per annum in terms of money. Page 224. The illustration is absurd and impossible. Never in history has wheat been expected to appreciate at a steady rate of a percent per annum in terms of money and it is impossible to imagine without self-contradiction the conditions under which such an expectation could exist. One would be the expectation of an absolutely fixed objective value for a bushel of wheat each year, month, day, and hour, combined with a steady annual, also monthly, weekly, and daily, depreciation in the value of the currency unit. Such an expectation, if general, would be falsified because speculative transactions would anticipate it immediately. Another condition would be one in which the value of the dollar would be expected to remain absolutely fixed, while the value of a bushel of wheat appreciated at a steady rate annually, and presumably monthly, weekly, and daily. For such an anticipation to exist, we should have to imagine a condition in which everybody miraculously expected the demand for wheat to increase with complete regularity and without speculative anticipation, while the supply for equally miraculous reasons remained rigid, or one would have to imagine so finely adjusted a decline in the production of wheat as to make a steady appreciation in value at the same uniform rate possible. One would have to imagine a universally shared expectation upon which no speculator, no buyer or seller acted, but the assumptions are too self-contradictory to pursue further. Yet it is always instructive in analyzing a fallacy to try to discover what it was that led its author to embrace it. As with so many other fallacies of Keynes, we find that even this one was not original with him. Irving Fisher in The Theory of Interest, 1930, played with the idea for a few sentences. No two forms of goods can be expected to maintain an absolutely constant price ratio toward each other. There are, therefore, theoretically just as many rates of interest expressed in terms of goods as there are kinds of goods diverging from one another in value. Page 42 But this idea is then almost immediately dropped. 
I think this was because Fisher's common sense recognized that the free convertibility at all times of money into goods, at market prices, and of goods into money brought about in effect a single uniform interest rate, the interest rate expressed in money. The constant fluctuations over time in the prices of individual goods can hardly, therefore, be treated as changes in individual interest rates. They are speculative oscillations. The common interest rate is diffused through the whole price system. Ought wages to be rigid? I shall have to skip over whole nests of minor fallacies and confusions in the later part of Keynes's chapter 17 in order to concentrate upon a few major ones. One of the most important is his contention not only that money wages are sticky, but that they ought to be. In other words, Keynes contends not only that money wage rates fail to respond to changes in supply and demand, but that it would unstabilize the economy if they did so. It is a very good thing that they are unresponsive. If money wages were to fall easily, this might often tend to create an expectation of a further fall with unfavorable reactions on the marginal efficiency of capital. Page 232. Professor Pigot, with others, has been accustomed to assume that there is a presumption in favor of real wages being more stable than money wages. But this could only be the case if there were a presumption in favor of stability of employment. If, indeed, some attempt were made to stabilize real wages by fixing wages in terms of wage goods, the effect could only be to cause a violent oscillation of money prices. For every small fluctuation in the propensity to consume and the inducement to invest would cause money prices to rush violently between zero and infinity. That money wages should be more stable than real wages is a condition of the system possessing inherent stability. Pages 238 through 239. A full analysis of such passages will be postponed until we come to consider Keynes's Book 5 on Money Wages and Prices. Here it is enough to notice that Keynes is against 1. Flexibility and Adjustment of Money Wages, and 2. Against Stability of Real Wages, because it would cause money prices to rush violently between zero and infinity. Evidently, the man is going to be hard to satisfy. Also, because these positions are mutually contradictory, it is going to be hard to know which is Keynes's real position when it comes to analyzing his doctrine. I may anticipate our conclusions to the extent, however, of pointing out that the belief that a subsequent adjustment of real wage rates to a prior change in money prices would cause money prices to rush violently between zero and infinity is such furious nonsense that no analysis could render it more ridiculous than it is on its face. We owe our lives to saving. 
it is already clear that Keynes is determined, with no matter what argument or assertion, to exculpate excessively high wage rates from all blame for unemployment, and to pin that blame onto the demand of lenders for the payment of interest on their loans. Thus, there is no real difference of doctrine, but merely one of obscurity, complexity, and intellectual pretentiousness between the contentions of the general theory and the baldest and most demagogic propaganda of union leaders. One difference is, indeed, that Keynes is more openly cynical in his proposals and more openly contemptuous of everyone who does not accept his doctrine. He is also more openly contemptuous of the public generally. Unemployment develops, that is to say, because people want the moon. Men cannot be employed when the object of desire, i.e., money, is something which cannot be produced and the demand for which cannot be readily choked off. There is no remedy but to persuade the public that green cheese is practically the same thing, and to have a green cheese factory, i.e., a central bank, under public control. Page 235. The theory embodied in this paragraph is that the public is irrational, that it can be easily gulled, and that the object of government is to be the chief party to the swindle. The results of turning central banks into green cheese factories to deceive the public will be examined in a later chapter. Here I wish to analyze a typical paragraph in which Keynes seeks to put the blame for almost everything that has gone wrong in history on his great bait noir liquidity preference. That the world, after several millennia of steady individual saving, is so poor as it is in accumulated capital assets, is to be explained, in my opinion, neither by the improvident propensities of mankind, nor even by the destruction of war, but by the high liquidity premiums formerly attaching to the ownership of land and now attaching to money. I differ in this from the older view as expressed by Marshall with an unusual dogmatic force in his Principles of Economics, page 581. Everyone is aware that the accumulation of wealth is held in check, and the rate of interest so far sustained by the preference which the great mass of humanity have for present over deferred gratification, or in other words, by their unwillingness to wait. Page 242. Once more, Keynes has managed to pack an astonishing number of misstatements and fallacies into a small space. No doubt the world is still far poorer in accumulated capital assets than it desires to be. How poor it is compared with what it might have been under ideal conditions is, of course, a matter of pure speculation. But Keynes's statement that the world is poor in accumulated capital assets, even as compared with the past, is subject to statistical test. There is not space here to go into this matter in great detail. The reader is referred to the appropriate historical and statistical material. But aside from the notorious fact that the condition of the masses is enormously better than it was two centuries ago, just before the Industrial Revolution, 
i.e., the birth of modern capitalism, there is the still more notorious fact that the population of the world since then has increased threefold or fourfold. It was capital accumulation that made this possible. This means that at least two out of every three of us owe our very existence to the savings and investment of our forebears, in spite of high liquidity premiums, and to the capitalist system. What assurance has any of us that he is the one person in every three or four that would have come into the world anyway without this capital accumulation? Could Keynes or anyone else afford to be patronizing about it? The gain in capital accumulation is not to be measured, of course, merely by number of factories or amount of machinery. The gain in world population implies the erection of an enormous amount of housing, and it has involved, in fact, the continuous qualitative improvement in housing, tools, machinery, and every sort of capital asset. It is the qualitative improvement in capital assets which is certainly no less important than the quantitative increase that Keynes constantly ignores. Perhaps the greatest single form of capital investment in the world, in fact, is represented by the improvement in land to make it more get-at-able, usable, tillable, fertile, attractive, productive in every way. This has involved an immense amount of leveling, road-making, road improvement, canal digging, forest clearing, draining, irrigation systems, river improvement and flood control systems, plowing, fertilizing, and in cities, of street laying, street widening, sewage systems, the laying of pipes and wires and sidewalks, and so ad infinitum. Once this work has been done, the casual or careless observer is apt to take most of it for granted, as if it had always been that way, or all been provided by nature. The careless economist is apt to call it simply land, and to forget that, in all civilized countries, it is land to which an enormous amount of capital improvement has been applied. It might be added also that the growth of capital accumulation is accelerative. This acceleration has been most pronounced since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that is to say, since the repeal of the mercantilistic restrictions, the trade barriers, and above all of the usury laws, those laws against high interest rates that Keynes thinks so wise. The next thing to notice in the passage I have quoted from page 242 is that, after greatly underestimating the existing amount of world capital accumulation, Keynes speaks of the high liquidity premiums formerly attaching to the ownership of land. Now no doubt in the pre-capitalistic period, land ownership represented usually the chief form of wealth ownership. But how Keynes figures that land ever bore a liquidity premium is a mystery. Land is proverbially, and has nearly always been, probably the most illiquid possession that a man can hold. 
It was usually much more illiquid in the past than it is today, when its liquidity is, for practical purposes, greatly increased by numerous real estate agents, by newspaper advertising, and by an organized mortgage market. It has become less illiquid with the development of capitalism, for in the pre-capitalistic period, land was usually inherited and commonly entailed. A rich man's relatively liquid possessions consisted of the precious metals, jewelry, works of art, cattle, once even a medium of exchange, and non-perishable crops such as tobacco, once also a medium of exchange. Finally, we must notice in the passage quoted that Keynes not only rejects the time preference theory of interest, but even time preference, impatience or waiting as an important element in the theory of interest, and he does this without deigning to offer any argument whatever, but simply by the ex cathedra statement that I differ in this from the older view. It may be pointed out, however, that he differs in this also from his own previous acknowledgment in the general theory itself of the way in which the psychological time preferences of an individual, page one sixty six, affect his decisions as between present and future consumption, and from his own frequent use, e.g., page one thirty five, of the term. Rate of discount in connection both with the interest rate and the marginal efficiency of capital. The rate of discount is a meaningless concept except in relation to time preference. It is, in fact, merely another name for the rate of interest. Keynes versus Wicksell. Section six of Chapter seventeen contains a short discussion of Newt Wicksell's concept of a natural rate of interest. Keynes discusses it only to dismiss it. Here again, his dismissal is not based on anything that can properly be called an analysis, but simply on his personal opinion. I am now no longer of the opinion that the concept of a natural rate of interest, which previously seemed to me a most promising idea, has anything very useful or significant to contribute to our analysis. It is merely the rate of interest which will preserve the status quo, and in general, we have no predominant interest in the status quo as such. Page two forty three. It is hard to call this anything else than a deliberate misrepresentation. The implication of Keynes's statement is that what the natural rate of interest would preserve is the existing distribution of wealth or income, or the existing level of production or employment. But the only thing that the natural rate of interest would preserve, on Wicksell's definition, is the established pre-existing average of prices. What Wicksell meant by the natural rate of interest, in other words, was the rate of interest that would be neither inflationary nor deflationary. He saw that if the rate of interest were pushed above this level, it would unduly discourage borrowing, cause a contraction in the volume of money and credit, and hence a fall in prices, activity, and employment. 
But if the rate of interest fell or were held down below the natural level, it would lead to overstimulation of borrowing and hence to an inflationary expansion in the volume of money and credit. Though it was defective in some respects, as pointed out by Ludwig von Mises and others who improved upon it, Wicksell's discussion of the interest rate and of its relations to changes in the volume of money and credit marked a great forward step in economic analysis. While Wicksell correctly saw, unlike Keynes, that the rate of interest is primarily determined by real factors, he took full account of the disturbances caused, and he even to some extent exaggerated the disturbances caused, by changes in the volume of money and credit. Thus, Wicksell took full account of the one germ of truth in Keynes's otherwise naive and false theory of interest. The truth that changes in the volume of money and credit have something to do with changes in the interest rate. But Wicksell saw clearly that in the absence of changes in the quantity of money and credit, the interest rate would be determined by real factors, and that changes in the quantity of money act only as disturbing factors, which only transitionally and temporarily affect the interest rate. That Keynes's purely monetary theory of interest is quite naive and completely fallacious, we have already seen in chapters 14 and 15. But we may notice again here that, though Keynes's few references to Wicksell's contribution to the theory of interest are all disparaging, telling us merely that he rejects it, they reveal that he was acquainted with Wicksell's contribution. Yet in his chapter on The Classical Theory of Interest, Wicksell's name appears only once, and then merely in a three-line footnote, page 183. The reader unacquainted with the literature of the subject would get no hint that Wicksell had fully anticipated the only valid point in Keynes's discussion of the classical theory of interest, videlicit, that some account must be taken of the relation of interest rates to changes in the money supply. Even his disciple, Alvin H. Hansen, calls Keynes to task for this injustice. With respect to another subsidiary point, Keynes is clearly wrong. He calls attention to the failure of the classical school to bridge the gap between the theory of the rate of interest in Book 1 dealing with the theory of value and that in Book 2 dealing with the theory of money. This is formally correct, at least with respect to many writers, but then he adds the opinion that also the neoclassical school had made a muddle of its attempt to build a bridge between the two. Now this certainly could not be said of Wicksell. This paragraph, page 183, is far from convincing. It is hard to escape the conclusion that Keynes, in order to try to prove his own originality and the wrongness of everybody before him, failed to give a clear account of Wicksell's contribution and sought to solve his conscience by a disparaging reference to it. Equilibrium of an Ice Cube 
While Keynes persistently refuses to acknowledge that the rate of interest has anything to do with the real factors that control it, such as investment opportunity and time preference, he just as persistently seeks to relate it, in section 6 of chapter 17 and elsewhere, to the level of employment. I had, however, in the treatise of money, overlooked the fact that in any given society there is, on this definition, a different natural rate of interest for each hypothetical level of employment. And similarly, for every rate of interest there is a level of employment for which that rate is the natural rate, in the sense that the system will be in equilibrium with that rate of interest and that level of employment. I had not then understood that, in certain conditions, the system could be in equilibrium with less than full employment. Pages 242 to 243. This entire passage is pure nonsense. It is absurd, as I have frequently pointed out before, to talk of equilibrium with less than full employment, because this is simply a contradiction in terms. The absence of full employment negates the very concept of equilibrium. Perhaps an analogy will help to make clearer not only why this concept is self-contradictory, but why Keynesians nonetheless persist in accepting it. Drop a cube of ice into a bowl of water. The cube will cause a splash and other disturbances in the water level. It will plunge toward the bottom of the bowl, then rise to the top, and settle with about nine-tenths of its bulk below the water level and the remaining tenth above. When it has settled there, and the water is once more calm, there is, true enough, something resembling a position of equilibrium, or, shall we say, partial equilibrium. But the reason part of the ice cube remains above the water level for a time is because it is frozen. Complete equilibrium is not established until the ice cube has melted and the water is all at one level. Frozen wage rates cause frozen unemployment. When wage rates become fluid again, full employment is restored. It is perhaps not too difficult to account for Keynes's misuse of the term equilibrium and for the uncritical acceptance of this misuse by so many writers. The older economists thought of equilibrium as an actual state of affairs. They contrasted stability with disturbance, a period of equilibrium with a period of transition. But any living economy is always in transition, and fortunately so. An economy that had reached completely stable equilibrium would be an economy that had not only stopped growing, but had stopped going. The only kind of equilibrium worth trying for is the dynamic equilibrium that is approached through competition and fluid prices and wage rates. This must not be conceived of as a position that is ever reached, but as ever-changing positions that are approached or passed through, as the pendulum of a clock constantly approaches or passes through the vertical equilibrium position, but never rests there as long as the clock is running. Paraphrasing and reversing Grover Cleveland's famous aphorism, we may say regarding economic equilibrium that it is a concept that confronts us, not a condition. 
Yet this concept is not unrelated to reality. It is a limiting notion. There is always a tendency toward equilibrium. An economy can get stuck for a long period at a point of unemployment, as a clock can get stuck if someone puts chewing gum in the works. But in neither case should the result be called equilibrium. There is finally no such functional relationship between the level of interest and the level of employment as Keynes assumes. He offers, in fact, neither statistical nor plausible logical grounds for this assumption. The really significant relationship which Keynes persistently ignores or denies is that between the level of wages and the level of employment. The rate of interest and the level of employment are related in any actual situation, only in the sense that there is some interconnection among all economic phenomena. Chapter 18: The General Theory Restated. Economic Interrelationships. Keynes's Chapter 18 is called "The General Theory of Employment Restated." The restatement turns out to be confusion worse confounded. On the assumption that we have now reached a point where we can gather together the threads of our argument, Keynes thinks it may be useful to make clear which elements in the economic system we usually take as given. Which are the independent variables of our system, and which are the dependent variables? Page 245. Now, economics is concerned with human valuations, human decisions, and human action. Everything in the system is a variable. No relationship, unless it is merely two ways of saying the same thing, is a constant. Nothing is permanently given. Almost anything can be an independent variable, in the sense that a change can originate at any point. When a change has originated at any point, then the relationship of nearly all the factors is one of mutual dependence, of interdependence. We take as given, Keynes continues. The existing skill and quantity of available labor, the existing quality and quantity of available equipment, the existing technique, the degree of competition, the tastes and habits of the consumer, the social structure, including the forces which determine the distribution of the national income. This does not mean that we assume these factors to be constant. But merely that, in this place and context, we are not considering or taking into account the effects and consequences of changes in them. Page 245. David McCord Wright contends that this is actually the first point in the general theory, where Keynes states the basic assumptions of his fundamental model, and he uses the foregoing italics to stress the point that. In the basic model on which Keynes's system rests, virtually all the dynamic social forces are omitted. Frank H. Knight, after quoting the same passage as well as a passage on the following two pages, 246 through 247, in which Keynes declares.
Thus, we can sometimes regard our ultimate independent variables as consisting of etc. follows his quotations by a sweeping comment on the whole Keynesian system. It would surely appear that if one is willing to make assumptions of this sort, along with those already pointed out, namely that there is unemployment, that wages and prices cannot fall, but are free to rise, that wages are uninfluenced by the supply offering of labor, that the price of capital service is dependent only on the speculative attitude of the public toward money, i.e. toward general prices, and the quantity of money fixed by the arbitrary fiat of a central banking authority entirely uninfluenced either by saving or by the demand for capital, one should indeed find little difficulty in revolutionizing economic theory in any manner or degree, or in rationalizing any policy which one might find appealing. On the same page, Keynes continues, The division of the determinants of the economic system into the two groups of given factors and independent variables is, of course, quite arbitrary from any absolute standpoint. Page 247. This is entirely true, and if Keynes had recognized this clearly and consistently, the whole general theory might not have been written. What is given? What is an independent variable, and what is a dependent variable, depends entirely on the problem with which we are dealing. Economic analysis continually involves the setting up and testing of hypotheses. It asks, for example, if A and B are given, what will be the value of C, or if A and C change, what will be the effect on B, etc.? The basic illustration is, of course, the relationship of supply, demand, and price. If supply is used in the sense of quantity supplied, and demand in the sense of quantity demanded, then a change originating in any one of these three factors will change another. In other words, if any two of these three factors are, by hypothesis or by assumption, the independent variables, then the other becomes, for the purpose of solving the particular problem under consideration, the dependent variable. If supply is used in the sense of supply schedule or curve, and demand in the sense of demand schedule or curve, then Orthodox economic analysis would say that a change in either one does not necessarily change the other, though a change in either would change price, and that under conditions of perfect competition, price could not change independently, but only as a consequence of a change in the supply curve, or the demand curve, or both. This, it may be pointed out, is merely a consequence of the meaning of our terms. The full name for the demand curve, for example, is the curve of price and quantity demanded. In any case, it is characteristic of economic problem-solving that what is given is determined by the nature of the problem. Conclusions regarding what is dependent and what is independent, what is cause and what effect, are determined by our arbitrarily selected starting point.
In commenting upon Keynes's chapter 18, therefore, I shall not make again any detailed analysis of the factors that Keynes regards as independent variables and dependent variables respectively, what he regards as cause and what effect. It is enough merely to make the general point that his analysis is arbitrary and implausible, and sometimes clearly reverses cause and effect. A few comments upon some particular sentences or passages, however, seem called for. Within the economic framework which we take as given, the national income depends on the volume of employment, i.e., on the quantity of effort currently devoted to production, in the sense that there is a unique correlation between the two. Page 246. Our present object is to discover what determines at any time the national income of a given economic system and, which is almost the same thing, the amount of its employment. Page 247. The national income is certainly not the same thing as the amount of employment, nor is there a unique correlation between them. The United States, with heavy unemployment, would have an immensely higher income, either total or per capita, than India or China with full employment. And even within the same nation, say the United States, employment and income do not necessarily rise and fall proportionately. As employment gets fuller, production per man employed tends to fall. As unemployment rises, production per man employed tends to rise. This is partly because, when unemployment sets in, it is the least efficient workers that tend to be dropped first, and when employment rises, it is the less efficient than those already employed that must be hired. Moreover, when employment is assured and other jobs are easy to obtain, there tends to be relaxation of effort on the part of workers, whereas when jobs are insecure, there is an increase of individual effort. Again, either insistence on excessive wage rates or new inventions and improvements may force the substitution of machinery for workers. In one case, there may be a temporary fall in employment without any corresponding fall in production or total income. In the other case, there may be no net change in employment, but a significant rise in production and real income. The volume of employment does not necessarily mean the quantity of effort currently devoted to production. Part of the effort devoted to production consists in capital improvement, better management, a better balance of production, etc. Full employment can conceal gross inefficiencies in production, malinvestment, unbalanced output of consumer goods, and laxity, all of which Keynes consistently ignores. Changes in the rate of consumption are, in general, in the same direction, though smaller in amount, as changes in the rate of income. Page 248. In other words, when a man's income rises, he consumes more. The more his income rises, the more he tends to consume. And when a man's income falls, he consumes less. Tremendous discovery, which deserves all the italics that Keynes can give it.
stable unemployment. Keynes's reasoning leads to the logical conclusion that there must be violent fluctuations in prices and employment, but these violent fluctuations do not, in fact, seem to occur. Instead of concluding, however, that there must be something wrong in his own analysis, Keynes concludes that there must be something illogical about economic realities. He develops a theory of mysterious stabilizing forces. In particular, it is an outstanding characteristic of the economic system in which we live that, whilst it is subject to severe fluctuations in respect of output and employment, it is not violently unstable. Indeed, it seems capable of remaining in a chronic condition of subnormal activity for a considerable period without any market tendency either towards recovery or towards complete collapse. Moreover, the evidence indicates that full or even approximately full employment is of rare and short-lived occurrence. Pages 249 through 250. This is a sweeping generalization from a comparatively short and special experience. The condition of comparatively stabilized unemployment existed in the United States from about 1931 to 1939. It began sooner in Britain, from about 1925, and in both cases the reason was the same: the British pound sterling of gold had fallen from a parity of four dollars and eighty-six cents to a low of three dollars and eighteen cents in February of 1920. It had recovered strongly, and in late 1924 and early 1925 stood at approximately. 10% below the gold parity. Prices and wages had adjusted themselves upward, however, to a lower value for the pound. In April of 1925, Britain decided to return to a gold standard at the old parity of $4.86. This decision would not have been disastrous if British business and labor had recognized its implications. Which was that wage rates and prices would have to readjust downward again to compensate for the domestic and international rise in the value of the pound, but organized labor in Britain remained adamant against accepting any cut in wage rates. It was precisely because organized labor in Britain followed the very course during and after 1925 that Keynes applauds in the general theory that it brought about the. Stable unemployment that he deplores and regards as a permanent attribute of the economic system in which we live. The same thing is true in the United States. Prolonged mass unemployment was specifically a phenomenon of the 1930s. As a result of the inflation of World War I, wholesale prices in May of 1920 had reached a peak at 248 percent of the 1913 level. Then came the most violent price break on record for such a period. By August of the following year, 1921, the index of wholesale prices had dropped to 141. This resulted temporarily in heavy unemployment, but wage rates were fortunately still flexible. As compared with wholesale prices, their decline was indeed comparatively small. 
If we compare average wholesale prices with average hourly wages in 1920 and 1922, we find that whereas prices fell an average of 38% between 1920 and 1922, hourly wages fell an average of only 11%. But this was enough to permit readjustment. By the spring of 1923, the United States had reached new high levels in industrial production, and there were labor shortages in many lines. In brief, the stabilized unemployment in the United States in the 30s, and in Britain in the late 20s and the 30s, was not a permanent characteristic of the economic system in which we live. It was a temporarily frozen situation due to the very wage inflexibility downwards that Keynes advocates. It was not the result of laissez faire, but the result of labor union policy supported by government policy. And it was not an unemployment equilibrium, which is a contradiction in terms, but an unemployment frozen by policy, by a refusal to adjust. The demand for labor is elastic. When there is a change in employment, money wages tend to change in the same direction as, but not in great disproportion to, the change in employment, i.e., moderate changes in employment are not associated with very great changes in money wages. Page 251. This is a typical instance of Keynes's reversal of typical or normal cause and effect. The significant thing in most situations is the effect of changes in wage rates on employment. Looked at from this side, employment tends, of course, to change in the opposite direction from wage rates. If there has been prolonged mass unemployment as a result of labor union insistence on excessive hourly wage rates in relation to prices and marginal labor productivity, then a fall of these wage rates toward the equilibrium point will mean a rise in employment. If, of course, it is prices rather than wage rates that have been above the equilibrium level, or if, for some reason, wage rates have temporarily fallen below the equilibrium level, then an increase in the demand for goods due to a fall in prices or some other change, or an increase in the demand for labor due to the low wage rate, will mean an increase in both employment and wage rates. In this special case, the relationship stated above by Keynes would hold, but this is a comparatively rare and short-lived situation. Much more frequently, it is a downward adjustment in wage rates, or a gradual rise in man-machine hour productivity that will bring a rise in employment. What will happen, in short, depends upon the initial situation from which we start, upon the assumptions we make regarding the previous state of disequilibrium. But Keynes almost never explicitly states his initial assumptions. He persistently treats abnormal situations as normal ones, or hopelessly confuses everything by calling a state of disequilibrium a state of equilibrium. Keynes is correct, though, not for the reasons he gives in declaring that moderate changes in employment are not associated with very great changes in money wages, page 251. 
A much more enlightening way to state this is to say that moderate changes in wage rates can bring about much larger changes in employment. Paul Douglas, as a result of elaborate statistical studies, came to the conclusion that the demand for labor is highly elastic, that a 1% decline in wages can mean a 3 or 4% increase in employment when wages have been held above the point of marginal productivity. This could mean, conversely, that a rise of 1% in wage rates under similar conditions could mean a 3 or 4% decrease in employment. A.C. Pigot independently came to a similar conclusion. I do not personally believe that it is possible to measure, either by statistics or mathematical deduction, the precise elasticity of demand for any service or commodity. A better name for elasticity of demand is responsiveness of demand. The latter phrase at least makes it clearer that what we are talking about is the decisions and actions of employers or consumers, and not some inherent quality in the service or commodity itself. But as changes in price can never be assumed to be the sole reason for changes in the quantity demanded, and as other conditions, including the demand curve itself, can never safely be assumed to be precisely the same for any two years, two days, or two moments in succession, it follows that the elasticity or responsiveness of demand is never precisely measurable. On what reasonably appear to be fairly persistent relationships, however, we may be reasonably justified in basing practical policies. Stabilize wage rates or employment? If competition between unemployed workers always led to a very great reduction in money wage, there would be violent instability in the price level. The wage unit might have to fall without limit until it reached a point where the effect of the abundance of money in terms of the wage unit on the rate of interest was sufficient to restore a level of full employment. Page 253. There are more fallacies in this passage than the reader is likely to have patience to examine. Keynes is apparently trying to prove that if there were free competition among workers, instead of union-enforced or law-enforced inflexibility downwards, the result would be intolerably and limitlessly violent oscillations in prices. The proposition is just as absurd as it sounds. Price changes normally come first and determine wage rate changes rather than vice versa. It is far better when the choice must be made to have wide oscillations in prices than wide oscillations in production and employment. The attempt to stabilize farm prices at levels above those that would be set by a free competitive market, as American experience has so dramatically proved, merely leaves unsold farm surpluses that pile up in government warehouses. The attempt to stabilize wages at levels above those that would be set by a free competitive market leaves unemployed surpluses of labor that piled up on government unemployment insurance or relief rolls. We do not stabilize the economy by trying to hold up wages regardless of what happens to prices. 
we unstabilize it and create the very mass unemployment that Keynes professes to wish to cure. It is significant that the Keynesians do not dare to apply their theory both ways. They do not urge that wage rates be held down when prices soar in order to stabilize prices by bringing them down again. Keynes's wage theories are useful only as labor union propaganda. Their scientific pretensions are pure quackery. In the passage quoted above from page 253 of the general theory, Keynes drags in the effect of a reduction of wage rates on the interest rate. Of course, the interconnection of all prices, and both wage rates and interest rates are prices in the broadest sense, is such that there is some interrelationship between wage rates and interest rates. But the interrelationship is so complex, and for the most part so indirect, that a lengthy discussion of this point would be largely irrelevant to Gresham. We have already seen that Keynes had a false theory of interest. We shall soon see that he also had a false theory of wage rates, a false theory of money and credit, and a false theory of prices. Chapter 19 Unemployment and Wage Rates Unemployment is caused by excessive wage rates. If I were put to it to name the most confused and fantastic chapter in the whole of the general theory, the choice would be difficult. But I doubt that anyone could successfully challenge me if I named chapter 19 on changes in money wages. Its badness is, after all, not surprising. For it is here that Cain sets out to challenge and deny what has become in the last two centuries the most strongly established principle in economics. To wit, that if the price of any commodity or service is kept too high, i.e. above the point of equilibrium, some of that commodity or service will remain unsold. This is true of eggs, cheese, cotton, Cadillacs or labor. When wage rates are too high, there will be unemployment. Reducing the myriad wage rates to their respective equilibrium points may not in itself be a sufficient step to the restoration of full employment, for there are other possible disequilibriums to be considered, but it is an absolutely necessary step. This is the elementary and inescapable truth that Keynes, with an incredible display of sophistry, irrelevance, and complicated obfuscation, tries to refute. He begins, as is his habit, by affecting to state the classical theory of the matter, and, as is also his habit, he misstates it. Then he discovers this theory to be question-begging and fallacious. Next, he applies his own method of analysis. 
I spare the reader the quotation, but if he is interested in reading an argument that outdoes Humpty Dumpty's best efforts in Alice in Wonderland, or the complicated and bewildering chain of causation of a Rube Goldberg cartoon, I direct his attention to the long paragraph beginning at the top of page 261 and ending at the top of page 262. Instead of trying to unsnarl this Gordian knot one loop at a time and calling attention to each fallacy and irrelevance, which would only take us over ground we have already covered, we shall economize time by bypassing it for the moment, as well as the whole chapter and most of its appendix, and by quoting a couple of paragraphs from the last two pages of the appendix, in which Keynes contrasts his own views with those of A. C. Pigot. The difference in the conclusions to which the above differences in assumptions and in analysis lead can be shown by the following important passage in which Professor Pigot sums up his point of view. With perfectly free competition among workpeople and labor perfectly mobile, the nature of the relation, i.e., between the real wage rates for which people stipulate and the demand function for labor will be very simple. There will always be at work a strong tendency for wage rates to be so related to demand that everybody is employed. Hence, in stable conditions, everyone will actually be employed. The implication is that such unemployment as exists at any time is due wholly to the fact that changes in demand conditions are continually taking place, and that frictional resistances prevent the appropriate wage adjustments from being made instantaneously. He concludes, page 253, that unemployment is primarily due to a wage policy which fails to adjust itself sufficiently to changes in the real demand function for labor. Thus, Professor Pagot believes that in the long run, unemployment can be cured by wage adjustments, whereas I maintain that the real wage, subject only to a minimum set by the marginal disutility of employment, is not primarily determined by wage adjustments, though these may have repercussions, but by the other forces of the system, some of which, in particular the relation between the schedule of the marginal efficiency of capital and the rate of interest, Professor Pagot has failed, if I am right, to include in his formal scheme. Pages 277 through 278 there is a double advantage in starting our discussion of chapter 19 with this quotation. 1. Instead of giving us Keynes's misstatement, which would first have to be corrected, of the classical theory of the relation of wage rates to unemployment, it at least gives us Pigot's statement of the classical view in his own words. And 2. It contains the most compact and lucid statement that Keynes gives of his own views on the subject. Pigot's statement is the correct one. Keynes's view is clearly incorrect, though it does contain one grain of truth in a bushel of errors. This grain of truth, it may be added, is not original with Keynes. Let us begin by seeing what qualifications are necessary in the Pigot statement. 
When Pigot speaks of everybody or everyone being employed, the word everybody must clearly be interpreted in a restricted sense. He cannot be speaking of those who do not need or do not want to work, or of children, or of the physically handicapped, or of criminals or lunatics, or those who are so incompetent, stupid, reckless, or slovenly that they destroy more value than they produce, so that an employer would be out of pocket even if he could hire them for nothing. By everybody, he must mean employable persons who actually wish to work, and it would probably be better if he had used this phrase. Again, when Pigot declares that in stable conditions everybody will actually be employed, he must have meant to say in equilibrium conditions. It is not stability, but the speed and precision of wage adjustments that Pigot is really emphasizing. Relatively stable unemployment is possible with a stable or frozen disequilibrium, as was shown both in Britain and the United States in the period between 1925 and 1939. Keynes capitalized on this, as we have seen, by giving it the self-contradictory name of unemployment equilibrium. The equilibrium that we should keep in mind need not be stable in the sense of static. That is to say, it need not refer merely to the kind of equilibrium postulated in a stationary or evenly rotating economy. It can refer to a dynamic equilibrium postulated as being achieved by instantaneous and precise adjustments to changing conditions, or constantly being approached in practice in a free competitive economy. Finally, while maladjustments in wage rates are usually the principal reason for unemployment, and can be the sole reason, other maladjustments can also cause unemployment, including maladjustments among particular prices and, here is the one germ of Keynesian truth, even, though improbably, maladjustments in interest rates. Suppose now, for the sake of clarity, we rephrase Pigot's summary in a more satisfactory form, retaining his own phrasing wherever that is acceptable. With perfectly free competition among work people and labor perfectly mobile, there will always be at work a strong tendency for wage rates to be so related to demand that all employable persons who desire jobs are employed. Hence, in conditions of equilibrium, all such persons will actually be employed. The implication is that such unemployment as exists at any time is due wholly to the fact that changes in demand conditions are continually taking place, and that frictional resistances prevent the appropriate wage, price, and other, even interest rate, adjustments from being made instantaneously. Now, if Keynes had been content to make merely these revisions, if he had been content merely to deny, in his quotation from Pigot, the implication that wage adjustments are the sole adjustments needed to retain or restore full employment, his objection would have been correct, even if not original. But Pigot's position, as summarized by Keynes, that most often unemployment is primarily due to a wage policy which fails to adjust itself sufficiently to changes in the real demand function for labor, page 278, 
is correct. Keynes explicitly denies even this. Keynes is definitely wrong, in short, when he maintains that the real wage is not primarily determined by wage adjustments, but by the other forces of the system. Page 278. These other forces, it is true, even maladjustments in the interest rate, must be taken into account whenever there is heavy unemployment, but they are usually secondary to the unemployment caused by maladjustments in wage rates. Wage rates are not wage income. With this correct positive doctrine in mind, it may be worthwhile to examine some of the major fallacies which led Keynes to his false conclusions. Perhaps the first and most important of these fallacies is Keynes's habitual confusion between hourly wage rates and total wage payments. In common with, I fear, most writers on economics, he uses the loose word wages sometimes to mean wage rates, and sometimes to mean total payrolls, or total wage income. The reader is seldom sure in which of these two radically different senses Keynes is using the word, and Keynes seldom seems to be sure himself. I do not mean to imply that he always falls into this confusion. Sometimes the distinction is clear enough in his mind and explicit in the examples that he cites. The confusion is nonetheless frequent enough to account for many of the otherwise inexplicable conclusions in the general theory. This confusion is one of the prices that writers on economics pay for trying to use simpler, popular language. It never occurs when they are discussing the prices of commodities. It would not occur to even a moderately competent economist to assume that if an entrepreneur raised the price of his product 20%, his gross income would increase 20%. If an individual entrepreneur engaged in the production of a homogeneous competitive product, such as copper, were arbitrarily to raise his price 20% above that of his competitors, his gross income, instead of increasing 20%, would probably disappear entirely. None of his product would be sold, and even if the entrepreneur were a monopolist, or if all the entrepreneurs in the same industry uniformly raised their prices by 20%, even the man in the street knows that, assuming no other change in the supply or demand curve, there would be a decline in the volume of sales. The gross income of the individual entrepreneur would not increase in proportion to the price rise. It might even fall below its previous level. In short, as far as commodities are concerned, there is no confusion in the popular mind between prices, volume of sales, and gross income. But in writing on labor, even many professional economists constantly confuse prices with total income, because they call both by the same name wages. Many economists, and this partly derives from Keynes, put forward a curious argument in attempting to justify their double standard, or double set of economic principles, in the discussion of prices and wages respectively. They tell us without a smile that wages cannot be treated like other costs or other prices, 
because wages are the worker's income, and if we cut this income, we are not only being cruel and inhuman, but we correspondingly reduce purchasing power and send the economy into a downward spiral. Now, whatever is true in this statement is true not only of wages, but of all costs and all prices. Everybody's monetary cost is somebody else's income. The price of finished steel is a motor car manufacturer's cost, but multiplied by tonnage, the steelmaker's income. The price of iron ore or scrap steel is the finished steelmaker's cost, but the iron mines or scrap dealers' income. But if wage rates or steel prices or scrap prices are too high in relation to other prices or to supply and demand, an increase in such wage rates or prices will not lead to a corresponding increase in the total income of workers or of steelmakers or of scrap dealers, and it may easily lead to a decrease in that total income through unemployment or a decline in sales more than proportionate to the increase in price. It is not merely a fallacy, therefore, but a sham humanitarianism and a cruel deception, always to insist on wage rate increases, whether or not conditions justify them, and always to resist wage rate reductions, whether or not conditions require them. Elasticity of demand for labor. A second fallacy of Keynes's is that. Even when he does explicitly distinguish between wage rates and total wage income, he raises the question whether the demand for labor is really elastic or not, or whether its elasticity can be greater than unity. Now, Paul Douglas and A. C. Pigot, as I have already pointed out in another connection, had independently, before the appearance of the general theory, attempted a statistical answer to this question, and had come with surprising agreement to the conclusion that the elasticity of the demand for labor is about negative three. This means that a one percent reduction in wages can mean a three percent increase in employment, if wages have previously been above the marginal productivity of labor, or conversely, that a one percent increase in wages can mean a three percent reduction in employment if wages are above the marginal productivity of labor. I have already pointed out that it is not possible to measure the elasticity of the demand for labor or for anything else, statistically or mathematically. Elasticity of demand is merely a misleading and unfortunate name for responsiveness of demand. It is obviously impossible to know in advance precisely how the demand for any commodity or service will respond to a change in price. There are too many factors in the situation, and these factors can never be assumed to be precisely the same for two successive months or minutes. The concept of a measurable elasticity of demand, or of a predictable responsiveness of demand, is based on the tacit assumption that when the price of a commodity or service changes or is changed, the demand curve remains exactly where it was. It can never, of course, be known whether this is in fact true. A price may have gone up because the demand curve itself has gone up, in which case there may be no decrease in the amount demanded. 
There may even be an increase in the amount demanded, or a price may have gone down because the demand curve itself has gone down, in which case there may be no increase in the amount demanded, and there may even be a decrease in the amount demanded. Now, as the very existence of a demand curve or demand schedule is purely hypothetical, as the slope or shape of this curve can never be in fact known, and as it can never be known precisely how much it has risen or fallen, or in the fashionable technical jargon, moved to the right or to the left, it follows that the elasticity of demand for any commodity or service can never be determined by comparing changes in the amount sold with changes in price. For these changes have occurred between two or more periods or moments of time, and we can have no assurance whatever that the demand curve has itself remained the same between those periods or moments of time. The demand curve may meanwhile have shifted from one position to another, or changed its shape, or we may be on a different section of it. There are still other dangers in the application of the elasticity of demand concept to labor. We cannot legitimately speak, for example, of the elasticity of the demand for labor, for this will vary with every different kind of labor, almost with every firm, and with every different set of conditions. The responsiveness of employment of all building workers collectively to changes in wage rates, for example, may be very high, whereas the responsiveness of employment of electrical installation workers alone to changes in their wage rates may be very low, because the demand for electricians is a joint demand with that for other building workers. To speak of the elasticity of the demand for labor, therefore, may be to speak of an almost meaningless average. If its dangers and limitations are kept constantly in mind, however, the elasticity of demand, or better, the responsiveness of demand, can be a useful tool of thought. The statistical investigations of Douglas and Pigot seem to raise at least a presumption in favor of a usually high responsiveness of employment to changes in wage rates. In any case, there is the strongest possible presumption in favor of letting free competitive market forces decide the question. When unemployment exists, it exists because there is disequilibrium somewhere. The most likely place is in the wage rates of the occupations in which the unemployment exists. This presumption is enormously increased when such wage rates are arbitrarily held at their existing level by labor union insistence, which prevents free competitive market forces from operating in those occupations. And this presumption must hold either until free competition for jobs and for workers is restored in those occupations, or until the unions concerned have consented to a provisional reduction in wage rates to see whether such a reduction is followed by an increase in employment. Of course, unemployment could be caused in one occupation by an excessive wage rate in another. For example, some construction workers could be unemployed because wages and prices in the steel industry were too high. It is even theoretically conceivable, to make every concession to Keynes, that the disequilibrium causing unemployment might be in some relationship among prices or even in interest rates.
But this is highly improbable unless such inappropriate prices are monopolistically controlled, or unless interest rates have been made excessive as a result of governmental monetary mismanagement. Another type of error that runs through Keynes's chapter 19 is his consistent failure to state all the relevant assumptions in the hypothetical illustrations that he sets up, and then to come to a conclusion that could only be warranted on the basis of an assumption and often a self-contradictory one that he has failed to state. When we are dealing with unemployment, for example, we must assume that there is a reason for the unemployment. The most probable reason is that wage rates are too high, i.e., that they are above the point of equilibrium. This may not be so, but it is certainly one of the hypotheses, if not the first hypothesis, that ought to be considered. Keynes never considers it. His examples tacitly assume that wage rates are already at or even below the point of equilibrium. Only on that assumption could he reach the conclusion, as he does, that a reduction of wage rates would mean a reduction of wage income, either by not increasing employment in the least or by actually reducing it further. Of course, if wage rates are already at or below the point of equilibrium, it would be an act not only of injustice but of sheer folly to reduce them further. But if, as it is enormously more plausible to assume, there is unemployment because wages are above the point of equilibrium, then reduction of wage rates to the point of equilibrium would both restore full employment and increase payrolls and the total income of the community. Fallacies of aggregative economics. At the very beginning of Chapter 19, Keynes professes to find a great invalid assumption at the heart of the classical theory that a decline in wage rates that have been above the equilibrium point will restore employment. He states the classical argument of how this will happen in a particular industry. He wrongly states it by giving only a special case, not the general theory. Then he pauses. The classical theory, he says, has no way of extending its conclusions in respect of a particular industry to industry as a whole, except by a false analogy. Page 260. Therefore, it is wholly unable to answer the question what effect on employment a reduction in money wages will have. Page 260. Where's the catch? Keynes explains. The demand schedules for particular industries can only be constructed on some fixed assumption as to the nature of the demand and supply schedules of other industries, and as to the amount of the aggregate effective demand. It is invalid, therefore, to transfer the argument to industry as a whole, unless we also transfer our assumption that the aggregate effective demand is fixed. Yet this assumption reduces the argument to an ignoratio elenchi. For whilst no one would wish to deny the proposition that a reduction in money wages accompanied by the same aggregate effective demand as before will be associated with an increase in employment, 
The precise question at issue is whether the reduction in money wages will or will not be accompanied by the same aggregate effect of demand as measured before in money, or at any rate by an aggregate effect of demand which is not reduced in full proportion to the reduction in money wages, i.e., which is somewhat greater measured in wage units. Pages 259 through 260. Now, the only reason this tangled argument is worth noticing at all is that such a tremendous to-do has been made about it by the Keynesians, many of whom, indeed, think that this is the great flaw that Keynes has found in classical economics, and the great contribution that he has made to economics. Aggregate or aggregative economics, they tell us, has displaced special or partial economics, or the economics of the firm. The macroscopic view has displaced the microscopic view. Keynes's whole argument on this point is so confused that the chief difficulty in answering it is the difficulty of discovering just what the argument is. Let us begin by looking again at the Keynesian term effective demand. We have seen that there is no need for the adjective. It implies that there are two kinds of demand, effective and ineffective. Ineffective demand could then only mean desire unaccompanied by monetary purchasing power, but economists have never called this demand. The term demand as used by economists has always meant effective demand and nothing else. Inserting the adjective then adds nothing but confusion. How then about the term aggregate demand? Aggregate demand may be thought of in two senses, in terms of commodities or in terms of money. Abstracting from money, the aggregate demand for commodities is ultimately the aggregate supply of commodities. The supply of one commodity is the demand for another, and vice versa. We are back to Say's law, and Say's law is always true. In fact, it is a truism when we assume prices and production to be in equilibrium. Under such conditions, aggregate demand follows from aggregate supply, but Keynes and the Keynesians reject aggregative economics in the one sense in which it is both true and useful. If the aggregate demand is thought of in terms of money, then it tends to change only with the supply of money. If it is invalid, as Keynes contends, to argue from what happens in a particular industry to industry as a whole, then it is no less invalid to argue from what happens in a particular firm to what happens in a whole industry. But as a matter of fact, the invalidity exists only in Keynes's mind and is a result of the confusion of his own thinking. Let us begin with a single industry and see what happens. There are two main cases to be considered. The first is that in a closed domestic industry, in which prices are too high because wage rates are too high, and therefore the market is contracted and there is unemployment, suppose wage rates are reduced enough to allow prices to be reduced enough to restore the market and restore full employment in that industry. There is then both more employment in that industry and more production. Therefore, more total wages and more gross income. Therefore, more purchasing power for the goods of other industries.
So restoring employment in that industry through cutting wage rates, i.e., cutting them just enough to make the reemployment possible, has not merely left aggregate effective demand where it was; it has increased it by raising the effective demand of the workers and entrepreneurs in the industry involved, while doing nothing whatever to reduce the effective demand of the workers and entrepreneurs in other industries. Let us call this industry A. Suppose now that the same thing happens in industry B. Then the increase in the effective demand of industry B for the products of all other industries, including A, must add still further to the aggregate effective demand. And so also, if we go on to consider industries C, D, E, N, Keynes has simply raised a pseudo problem. The other case, which Keynes does not consider, would be in an open international industry, as for example copper. Here, the price would be fixed internationally, with allowance for transportation costs, by the state of international supply and demand. The American copper industry would not be able to lower the world price proportionately, or perhaps even significantly, by lowering its own wages. But if there were unemployment in the American copper industry, it would be, assuming the mines themselves were not inferior to those elsewhere, because wage rates were too high. They would have to be cut to make employment and the reopening of the mines possible. If a cut in wages did, proportionately or more than proportionately, restore employment in the American copper industry, however, obviously the effect would be to increase the effective demand of the workers and owners in that industry for the products of other American industries. Again, Keynes's problem becomes a pseudo problem, created merely by his own confusion, not by some gap or missing link in classical theory. The attack on flexible wage rates, but the chapter on wages is crammed with confusions and fallacies. One of the most incredible is Keynes's argument against permitting flexibility of wage rates. This flies in the face of everything that has been learned about economics and the advantages of a free economy in the last two centuries. To suppose that a flexible wage policy is a right and proper adjunct of a system which, on the whole, is one of laissez-faire, is the opposite of the truth. It is only in a highly authoritarian society, where sudden, substantial, all-around changes could be decreed, that a flexible wage policy could function with success. One can imagine it in operation in Italy, Germany, or Russia, but not in France, the United States, or Great Britain. Page two sixty nine. Such a statement fairly takes one's breath away. Laissez-faire means non-adjustment. Laissez-faire means inflexibility. Authoritarianism means flexibility. Flexibility means rigidity. One thinks of George Orwell's 1984, where war is peace, ignorance is strength, and freedom is slavery. Nor is the implied approval in the foregoing quotation of totalitarian economic controls to be dismissed as a mere momentary fancy. In the preface that Keynes wrote in September 1936 to the German edition of his General Theory, he tried to sell his system to Nazi Germany by writing.
The theory of aggregate production that is the goal of the following book can be much more easily applied to the conditions of a totalitarian state than the theory of the production and distribution of a given output turned out under the conditions of free competition and of a considerable degree of laissez-faire. Keynes, in brief, does not believe in a free market, does not believe in a free and flexible economy. In his eyes, the very virtues of a free economy become its vices. Except in a socialized community, where wage policy is settled by decree, there is no means of securing uniform wage reductions for every class of labor. The result can only be brought about by a series of gradual irregular changes, justifiable on no criterion of social justice or economic expediency. Page 267. If important classes are to have their remuneration fixed in terms of money in any case, social justice and social expedience are best served if the remuneration of all factors are somewhat inflexible in terms of money. Page 268. Now, in a free, non-statist, non-socialist, non-totalitarian economy, wages do not and cannot adjust themselves and block as a unit, by some neat, fixed, round, uniform percentage, nor do prices adjust themselves and block by a uniform percentage or as a unit, nor does production adjust itself and block or as a unit. In a free economy, there are literally millions of different prices, millions of individual wage rates, thousands of classes of wage rates, prices of hundreds of thousands of different commodities of different grades and at different points. In a free economy, there are millions of daily adjustments of one wage rate to another, of one price to another, of this wage rate to that price, of that price to this wage rate. There is constantly going on in a free economy, in brief, an almost infinite number of mutual adjustments. This is how the economy works. This is how it keeps in dynamic equilibrium. This is how the balance of production is maintained among thousands of different goods and services to meet the changing needs and desires of millions of different consumers. But all this conflicts with the simplistic theories of Keynes. He thinks in aggregates, in averages, in abstractions which are mental constructs that have lost touch with reality. He thinks, in short, in lumps. He deals only in his own lump concepts like average level of wages, average level of prices, aggregate demand, aggregate supply. Production itself is regarded as being divided only into a few big lumps called industries. Sometimes production is even regarded as one big homogeneous lump. Keynes cannot understand a free economy precisely because it does not consist of such lumps. Having reduced everything to averages, he cannot understand any adjustment. He is even against any adjustment that is not a uniform adjustment of each of these averages, blocks, lumps to the other. In denouncing such a free and flexible adjustment of individual prices and wage rates and outputs as unjust and inexpedient, Keynes does not seem to realize that he is by implication accepting as both economically and ethically right the previous interrelationship of prices and wage rates.
If only a simultaneous and equal reduction of money wages in all industries (page 264) is to be tolerated, if a series of gradual irregular changes in wages is justifiable on no criterion of social justice or economic expediency (page 267), then it must be because the previous relationship of wage rate to wage rate was precisely what it ought to have been. This is defending the status quo with a vengeance. In brief, Keynes forms a ridiculously oversimplified theory of how a free enterprise economy ought to work, and because it does not work that way, he denounces it. Then he goes on to self-contradictory arguments to prove that reducing wage rates to bring them more into line with economic realities would reduce or violently disturb prices and production, and that the way to stabilize the economy is to refuse to allow free or piecemeal adjustments to take place. Page two sixty nine. Inflation versus piecemeal adjustment. Having decided that piecemeal adjustment of wage rates is unjust, Keynes decides that the best way to get a uniform reduction of wage rates is by a little deception, i.e., by inflating or debasing the money supply so as to raise prices. It appears that only a foolish person would prefer a flexible wage policy to a flexible money policy. Page two sixty eight and. It can only be an unjust person who would prefer a flexible wage policy to a flexible money policy. Page two sixty eight. In brief, a person must be both foolish and unjust not to prefer inflation, i.e., debasement of the monetary unit, to adjustment of individual wage rates to a change in prices or conditions of supply and demand. And one of the advantages of a flexible money policy is that one can thereby systematically cheat creditors and so reduce the burden of debt. Page two sixty eight. And of course, having regard to the excessive burden of many types of debt, it can only be an inexperienced person. Pages two sixty eight through two sixty nine, who would hesitate to fleece creditors by paying them off in a debased currency rather than make honest wage adjustments, because Keynes, with his lump aggregate thinking, is opposed to restoring employment or equilibrium by small, gradual, piecemeal adjustments. He can only advocate sudden, overall, violent adjustments. Either we must simultaneously, he argues, slash the wages of everybody by a flat, uniform percentage in totalitarian fashion, or we must achieve the same result by inflating the money supply and raising the price level so that everybody's real wages are slashed by the same percentage. But the irony of this is that if only a small specific adjustment is needed in one sector of the economy, the violent remedy that Keynes recommends will be quite ineffective. Let us assume a situation, for example, in which all wage rates are at equilibrium levels except wages in the building trades, which are 10% above equilibrium levels. There will then probably be unemployment, not only in the building trades themselves, but also, say, in the steel, cement, brick, and lumber industries, because of the falling off in demand from the building trades. 
and there will be some unemployment in the television, camera, clothing, and other trades because of the unemployment in the building trades and the consequent fall in retail business. The whole situation could be cured by a 10% cut in building wages alone, which would show up in the average for all industry, say, as a cut of less than 1% in wage rates. But such a cut in building wages alone, in Keynesian theory, would be gradual and irregular and hence unjust and inexpedient. For Keynesian theory is not interested at all in particular adjustments. It sees them merely as disturbing factors. Therefore, Keynes's remedy would be a 10% debasement of the monetary unit to raise prices and living costs. In other words, he would wish to raise all prices 10% and cut everybody's real wage about 10%. But if he could succeed in doing this, the outcome would not cure the situation. For after all, these adjustments had been made, wages in the building trades would still be 10% too high in terms of all other wages and prices. When the temporary effects of the inflation had worked themselves out, the unemployment would return because the same maladjustment within the wage price structure would exist. I begin the last paragraph by saying, if he could succeed in doing this. I meant, if he could succeed in his declared goal of cutting all real wage rates by a uniform 10%. But of course, this is not what inflation of the money supply would be likely to do. Unless the inflation were brought about chiefly by an increase in loans or subsidies to the construction industry itself, a more probable effect of a general monetary inflation would be to increase other wages and prices to bring them approximately abreast of, that is to say, more nearly in equilibrium with, wages and prices in the construction industry. This is what would happen, that is, if the Keynesian scheme worked as planned. But even if it did, what would this mean? If wages in the construction industry constitute 9% of all wages, then the Keynesian remedy, at its best, would involve raising 91% of all money wages 10% in order to avoid asking the receivers of 10% of money wages to accept a 10% cut. The Keynesian remedy, in short, is like changing the lock to avoid changing to the right key, or like adjusting the piano to the stool instead of the stool to the piano. And even so, it is unlikely to be more than temporarily successful. For new maladjustments and disequilibria would be almost certain to occur at the higher scale of price. These, under the Keynesian ground rules, would have to be corrected by still further inflation, and so ad infinitum. Always what is relevant to economic equilibrium and full employment is the relationship of particular wage rates to other wage rates, of particular prices to other prices, and of particular wages to particular prices. Never of averages to averages or of the wage level to the price level. Such mathematical averages or average levels do not exist in the real world. They are mental constructs. They are fictions. They conceal the real maladjustments in any given economic situation, or make them appear to cancel out. 
They do not really cancel out, however. If we use an index number of 100 to represent each equilibrium wage rate, respectively, in four different industries, then if industry A has a wage rate index of 80, industry B of 90, industry C of 110, and industry D of 120, their average index number would be 100. A Keynesian statistician relying on averages and aggregates would declare wages to be in equilibrium. Yet the wage rate of none of these four industries would be in equilibrium. The solution for a restoration of equilibrium and full employment would be a mutual and multiple adjustment of particular wage rates. It would not be to raise the whole level to an index number of 120 so as not to hurt the feelings or disturb the prejudices of the union leaders in industry D. It is important, finally, to point out that no real adjustments of wages or prices are ever made, upward or downward, in the flat, uniform, simultaneous way in which Keynes implies they are made or ought to be made. I present on pages 284 and 285 two charts prepared for a 1948 publication by the National Industrial Conference Board. These show the percentage changes in average hourly earnings of workers in 25 manufacturing industries over two different periods. Let us see first of all what happened in the earlier period when wages were falling. Chart 1. In the period from 1929 to 1932, there was an average decline in hourly earnings in all 25 industries of 15.6%. But the decline was different in each of the 25 industries, ranging from only 2.1% in the least affected to 29% in the most affected. Turn to chart 2 and let us see what happened in the longer period from 1929 to 1939 when wages were dominantly rising. In this period, the average rise in all 25 industries was 22%, but the rise was different in each of the 25 industries, ranging from 3.6% in the least affected to 37.1% in the most affected. It is worth making some additional observations about these charts. The range of changes in individual hourly earnings is even greater than the charts show. Each of the 25 solid lines on each chart is itself an average of hourly earnings in a particular industry and conceals the range within that industry. Keynesians will no doubt be quick to point out that the decline in hourly earnings between 1929 and 1932 did not prevent, and they will no doubt contend that it even intensified, the decline in employment and output in that period. But several points may be made on the other side. First, there is nothing in the charts to show that the declines were greatest in the industries where they were most needed to restore employment and production. Secondly, changes in hourly earnings are likely to be much greater than changes in hourly wage rates. This is because when volume of business is low, overtime rates tend to disappear, and when volume of business is high, overtime rates tend to pile up. This gives an exaggerated impression both ways of changes in standard time wage rates. 
In fact, the hourly earnings may change widely in either direction without any change in standard wage rates. Thirdly, wage rates are not the only factor governing the volume of employment at any moment. Possibly from a purely hypothetical point of view, there is always some wage rate, however low, capable of assuring full employment under almost any condition. But in practice, supplementary adjustments will be necessary. In practice also, no adjustment can be instantaneous or sufficiently quick to assure full employment at all times, even with assumed flexible wage rates. Finally, the striking increase in hourly earnings between 1929 and 1939, which of course meant an even more striking increase between 1932 and 1939, certainly did not wipe out unemployment or bring full recovery. On the contrary, the period was one of continued mass unemployment. In the 10 years from 1931 to 1940, there was average unemployment of 10 million, or 18.6% of the total working force. A Class Theory of Unemployment Keynes's preference for general monetary inflation over piecemeal wage and price adjustments is the result of still other major fallacies. He does not realize that the government cannot cheat creditors through inflation if the creditors have full advanced knowledge of the government's intentions. He does not realize that a planned inflation cannot be gradual or controlled, but will get out of hand the moment the plan is known. And he does not realize that when prices are falling because costs of production are falling, the price fall does not endanger profit margins or employment. And bound up with these is still another major fallacy. Though Keynes has poured more derision on Ricardo than perhaps on any other economist, he has himself adopted a primitive Ricardian cost of production theory of prices, according to which a nation can artificially hold up its price level by holding up its wage level. Pages 268 and 271. To explain this fallacy, after Menger, Jevons, Bombavirk, Wicksteed, Knight, Mises, would take too long. It is better to refer the Keynesians to some good modern textbook. Nor shall I go at length into the reasons why unemployment is not caused, as Keynes insists, primarily by maladjustments between the rate of interest, the marginal efficiency of capital and investment. It is sufficient to point out not only that his theory of interest is completely false, but that interest rates are extremely fluid and flexible, that they are determined by full competition among lenders as well as borrowers, and are not held rigid by compulsory collective bargaining, union monopolies, and mass picket lines. It is more instructive to inquire why Keynes put forward this extremely complicated and implausible theory. And here we may have to answer that, citing as he did with the immemorial labor union insistence that employment is not caused by excessive wage rates, he had to come up with some theory as to what does cause it. And as he couldn't blame the labor union leaders, what more natural and politically convenient than to blame the money lenders, the creditors, and the rich? 
Like Marxism, this is a class theory of the business cycle, a class theory of unemployment. As in Marxism, the capitalists become the scapegoats, with the sole difference that the chief villains are the moneylenders rather than the employers. And that, I suspect, rather than any new discoveries of technical analysis, is the real secret of the tremendous vogue of the general theory. It is the 20th century's Das Kapital. Chapter 20 Employment, Money, and Prices An Unproved Functional Relationship I hope I have not said it too often, but as we advance in the general theory, the confusions and fallacies become progressively denser, and crowd up to a point where the task of disentangling the traffic snarl begins to look utterly hopeless. This is not surprising. In chapters 20 and 21, for example, which we shall now consider together, Keynes applied to the theory of money and prices, as one Keynesian has put it, the tools of analysis which he had developed earlier in the book. But as these tools of analysis, as we have seen, nearly all consisted of faulty and confused concepts, a discussion of their supposed interaction merely compounds the confusion. As we have already analyzed these basic confusions, I need not repeat the analysis, though it may be necessary to remind the reader from time to time of these basic confusions in calling attention to the additional and derived confusions that arise when these fallacious concepts are made the basis of further reasoning concerning their alleged interrelationships. The substance of chapter 20, the employment function, need not detain us long. It is an effect to work out a series of mathematical equations concerning the employment function. Keynes offers an alleged definition of the employment function on page 280, but what he really gives us is, as in other cases, an equation without a definition. He does tell us, however, that... The object of the employment function is to relate the amount of the effective demand measured in terms of the wage unit directed to a given firm or industry or to industry as a whole with the amount of employment, the supply price of the output of which will compare to that amount of effective demand. Page 280. The reader may make whatever he can of this, but a few hints will probably economize his time and mental effort. The first thing he can do is to put aside the phrase measured in terms of the wage unit. Though Keynes defined the wage unit as a quantity of employment, page 41, his explanation showed that he really defined it as meaning merely a quantity of money paid to persons employed. In fact, it seems to mean merely the average national hourly wage rate at any moment as measured in shillings or dollars. But in accordance with the philosophic principle of Occam's razor, that entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily, it is better to think in any given context either of the number of man-hours worked, or the number of men employed, or total wage payments, and to omit the merely confusing hybrid concept of wage units. If these mean nothing more than the average national hourly wage rate, and if this is, say, 
$2, then it is easy to convert total wage payments into total man-hours worked, or vice versa, if we know one sum or the other. Then we shall at least know whether what we are talking about is total man-hours worked, or average hourly wage rates in dollars, or total wage payments in dollars, and we shall be at least one step nearer to clarity of thought. When a few other simplifications have been made, we shall find that all Keynes is talking about is the relation of effective demand, another confused conception, the aggregate income or proceeds which the entrepreneurs expect to receive, page 55, to the amount of employment. But without analyzing this further, what reason is there to suppose that this relationship is a functional relationship at all, that there is any such thing as the employment function? Keynes never condescends to offer any statistical evidence that any such function exists, or, for that matter, that any of his other functions exist. And certainly he does not offer any plausible deductive proof that it exists. We touch here upon an economic error that long antedates Keynes. It can be traced back as far as Cournot in 1838, and was revived in its modern form chiefly by Jevons in 1871. It is the basis today of a huge literature of mathematical economics. When an empiric or presumptive relationship seems to exist between one economic quantity and another, so that one seems to vary proportionately or increasingly, decreasingly, or inversely with another, some economists have fallen into the habit of calling the first a function of the second. This suggests a mathematical analogy, and perhaps little harm is done as long as it is treated merely as an analogy, as a figure of speech. It is unobjectionable to say, for example, that other things remaining unchanged, the demand for a commodity, in the sense of the amount bought, seems to vary almost as if this demand were a decreasing function of the price of the commodity. But the moment we put this in the form of a mathematical expression, the moment we write, for example, D equals FP, or use some similar notation to stand for such a relationship, we are in danger of making an illicit leap. We have assumed in our formula that this mathematical relationship exists. We can, of course, assume such a relationship by hypothesis, but this can never yield anything better than a hypothetical conclusion. We can no more prove that a relationship exists by expressing it in a mathematical equation than by expressing the same assumption in words. We are merely more in danger of deceiving ourselves, because we have made our assumption precise, though it may be precisely wrong. Let us remind ourselves, for example, of exactly what a function is. Once more, I take the definition. If a variable y is related to a variable x in such a way that each assignment of a value to x definitely determines one or more values of y, then y is called a function of x. That a given value of x in any assigned meaning definitely determines one or more values of y is something that we must prove to be true, not something that we make true simply because we have assumed it. 
Section one of Chapter twenty on the employment function consists of a set of equations concerning this alleged function. Keynes assumes that the functional relationship exists, but never attempts to prove it. There is, in fact, no good reason whatever to assume that any functional relationship exists between effective demand and the volume of employment. Everything depends, in fact, upon the interrelationships of wage rates, prices, and the money supply. No matter how low total monetary demand falls, full employment could exist at the appropriate relationship of wage rates to prices. No matter how high total monetary demand is pushed, unemployment will exist if an unworkable relationship exists between wage rates and prices. But even Keynes does not seem to take his mathematical explorations very seriously. At the beginning of section one, he remarks in a footnote: "Those who rightly dislike algebra will lose little by omitting the first section of this chapter." Page two eighty. General value theory versus monetary theory. As all the other major questions raised by Chapter Twenty are also raised by Chapter Twenty One on the theory of prices, we may proceed to the latter forthwith. Keynes opens this chapter with a long paragraph that is worth quoting in full. So long as economists are concerned with what is called the theory of value, they have been accustomed to teach that prices are governed by the conditions of supply and demand. And in particular, changes in marginal cost and the elasticity of short period supply have played a prominent part. But when they pass in Volume Two, or more often in a separate treatise, to the theory of money and prices, we hear no more of these homely but intelligible concepts, and move into a world where prices are governed by the quantity of money, by its income velocity, by the velocity of circulation relatively to the volume of transactions, by hoarding, by forced saving, by inflation and deflation at hoc genus omni. And little or no attempt is made to relate these vaguer phrases to our former notions of the elasticities of supply and demand. If we reflect on what we are being taught and try to rationalize it in the simpler discussions, it seems that the elasticity of supply must have become zero and demand proportional to the quantity of money, whilst in the more sophisticated we are lost in a haze where nothing is clear and everything is possible. We have all of us become used to finding ourselves on the one side of the moon and sometimes on the other, without knowing what route or journey connects them. Related apparently after the fashion of our waking and our dreaming lives. Page two ninety two. This satire would have had considerably more point if it had been made a generation earlier. It sounds indeed suspiciously like a sly allusion to Keynes's own teacher Alfred Marshall, but at the time it appeared in 1936, it no longer applied, at least to the pioneers of economic thought. Newt Wicksell's lectures on political economy in two volumes. Volume One: General Theory, Volume Two: Money, appeared in an English edition in 1934 and 1935. They had existed in German since 1901 and 1906. 
These lectures made giant strides toward a reconciliation and unification of value theory and monetary theory. Ludwig von Mises's Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, which carried this unification even further, appeared in its first German edition as early as 1912, and in its second in 1924. It had been translated into English as the Theory of Money and Credit in 1934. In America, Benjamin M. Anderson's The Value of Money, which appeared first in 1917, was in large part a protest. Against the tradition and practice of putting general economic theory and monetary theory in separate compartments, Anderson's book has appeared in a second edition in 1936. Was Keynes aware of all this? If so, why did he ignore it all in the paragraph just quoted? One dislikes to write of him, as Wicksell wrote of Gustav Castle, that he ignored those who had anticipated him because he desired, at all costs, to be esteemed an original and even path-breaking theorist. But one must choose between this explanation or the explanation of sheer ignorance. And Keynes, even in the general theory, makes references, though largely disparaging, to the work of both Huxley and Mises. But perhaps the dichotomy between general value theory and monetary theory was never quite as sharp as Keynes's satiric portrait assumes. Scientific progress in all fields is made by isolating a problem, by studying the effect of one force or factor at a time. In the physical sciences, this is done through a method of hypothesis tested by experiment. In the social sciences, experiment in any meaningful scientific sense is impossible, and the method of isolating hypotheses must be the chief reliance. Keynes himself admits this in Chapter 20. The object of our analysis is to provide ourselves with an organized and orderly method of thinking out particular problems, and after we have reached a provisional conclusion by isolating the complicating factors one by one, we then have to go back on ourselves and allow, as well as we can, for the probable interaction of the factors amongst themselves. Page two ninety seven. This was the method originated by the classical economists, and specifically by Keynes's Bachnor, Ricardo. They abstracted, among other things, from money in order to simplify and make manageable the problem of value. In a perhaps unfortunate phrase of Mill's, they tried to look behind the monetary veil. Their mistake was not in doing this, but in later forgetting that they had abstracted from money, and that their conclusions were therefore oversimplified and more hypothetical than realistic. And when they reintroduced money or discussed monetary problems, they made the further mistake of forgetting what they had learned when they had abstracted from money. They failed, in short, to put the two sets of problems together, or rather, their solutions were merely pasted together, not unified. Monetary economists and general economists worked within separate frames of reference, and both lost by the separation. Curiously enough, Keynes does much the same thing. 
his own effort at unification of monetary theory and general value theory, as well as of static and dynamic theory, is unsuccessful. It is unsuccessful because of a number of specific errors, some of them astonishing. Keynes's general method in Chapter 20 of introducing a number of simplifying assumptions in the theory of value and money and prices, and then reintroducing the possible complications which will in fact influence events, is correct in principle. But he is unsuccessful in result because some of his simplifications and complications are the wrong simplifications and complications, and because some of his fundamental concepts are either misleading or false. In discussing money, for example, he tells us in italics, "The importance of money essentially flows from its being a link between the present and the future." Page two ninety three. And again, money in its significant attributes is, above all, a subtle device for linking the present to the future. Page two ninety four. Now I should say, on the contrary, that the importance of money flows essentially from its being a medium of exchange, and that its most significant attribute is that it functions as the medium of exchange. In performing this function, it is true money does incidentally serve as a link between present and future, but so do all sorts of other things. Money is far from unique in this respect. It may be doubted whether, in economic life, it serves even as the chief link between the present and the future. That honor should preferably be reserved for the rate of interest, which is not Keynes's theories, notwithstanding, a purely monetary phenomenon. Another link between the present and the future is the system of forward and future prices on the organized exchanges. All prices, in fact, even present prices of securities and commodities, are links between the present and the future, because they embody and reflect the anticipations of buyers and sellers respecting the future. It is true that such prices happen to be expressed in terms of money, but they would anticipate the future just as much if they were expressed in terms of each other. If the price of wheat were expressed in terms of cotton, or of cotton in terms of wheat, of course, prices expressed in terms of money also reflect anticipations regarding the future value of the monetary unit itself. But money, as such, has no unique quality in reflecting anticipations regarding the future. It is, in fact, men's anticipations regarding the future, and not the particular material terms in which these anticipations are expressed, that constitute the real link between the present and the future. Men constantly act with an eye on the future, and their actions and valuations express their anticipations regarding that future. Chapter Twenty One: Prices and Money. Costs are prices. Another strange thing about Keynes's Chapter Twenty One is that though it is called the theory of prices, it is hardly a theory of individual prices at all, or even of relative prices, but merely a theory of changes in the price level. Keynes even specifically declares, 
The theory of prices, that is to say, the analysis of the relation between changes in the quantity of money and changes in the price level, with a view to determining the elasticity of prices in response to changes in the quantity of money. Page 296. Now, unless one has a correct theory of individual prices and of relative prices, one is unlikely to have a correct theory of the price level, which is merely an average made up of individual prices. But when we try to analyze Keynes's theory of individual prices and of relative prices, we encounter so many confusions and contradictions that the task of straightening them out becomes next to hopeless. In a single industry, we are told, its particular price level depends partly on the rate of remuneration of the factors of production which enter into its marginal cost, and partly on the scale of output. There is no reason to modify this conclusion when we pass to industry as a whole. Page 294. Let us notice first of all a couple of the minor ambiguities in these two sentences. We have already seen that a single industry involves an arbitrary classification without definite boundaries. Notice also that even in speaking of a single industry, Keynes speaks of its price level, which is already a collective concept involving an average. What he probably meant to say, or in any case, what would have been theoretically more defensible, is that the particular price of a single homogeneous product depends partly, etc. But this minor difficulty surmounted, we find that what we have here is a crude Ricardian cost of production theory of prices, in which the marginal utility of a particular commodity, or the relative marginal utility of two or more commodities, is not even mentioned. Keynes continues. The general price level depends partly on the rate of remuneration of the factors of production, which enter into marginal cost, and partly on the scale of output as a whole, i.e., taking equipment and technique as given on the volume of employment. Page 294. Here, the general price level is explained by rates of remuneration and marginal costs. But wage rates and costs are not explained at all; they are simply taken for granted. Yet wage rates and costs are prices. Marginally speaking, they are the price of an extra hour's labor, or an extra unit of raw materials, or an extra increment of equipment, etc. In modern marginal theory, prices and costs mutually determine each other. There is no one-way causation. Wicksell, endorsing the mathematical formulation of Walras, put it forcibly: "As soon as we have more than one factor of production, e.g., simple manual labor, and in fact we have hundreds of different kinds, the principle that costs of production determine the exchange value of a product can no longer be maintained." These costs become quite simply the prices of the factors of production, which are necessarily determined in combination with the prices of commodities in a single system of simultaneous equations. Relative costs of production may legitimately play a part in modern economics when we are dealing with the problem of relative price formation. 
Here, costs may be said to determine prices, not directly, but by their influence on relative supply and hence on relative marginal utilities. It is true that Keynes finally does bring in the effect of demand on the general price level, but what he discusses is merely the effect of changes in demand. It is true that when we pass to output as a whole, the costs of production in any industry depend partly on the output of other industries. But the more significant change of which we have to take account is the effect of changes in demand, both on costs and on volume. It is on the side of demand that we have to introduce quite new ideas when we are dealing with demand as a whole and no longer with the demand for a single product taken in isolation, with demand as a whole assumed to be unchanged. Pages 294 through 295. All that Keynes does at this point, however, is to consider the effect on the general price level of an increase in the money supply. But here, his confusions simply increase. He has presented no theory at all, or at best, only a circular theory of what determines a particular price or the relationship of particular prices to each other. But he proceeds to explain why the average of all prices, i.e., the general price level, rises or falls. Perhaps what he is really talking about is the average of retail commodity prices, as he seems to consider costs and wage rates to be somehow outside of the general price level. What makes prices rise, according to Keynes, is a rise in aggregate effective demand. And aggregate or effective demand turns out to be, for all practical purposes, synonymous with the money supply. Keynes is right in not accepting the crude quantity theory of money, but his treatment on the whole subject is superficial and confused. He does draw a distinction between effective demand and the quantity of money. Effective demand will not change in exact proportion to the quantity of money. Page 296. But two pages later, he makes the astonishing statement that. The primary effect of a change in the quantity of money on the quantity of effective demand is through its influence on the rate of interest. Page 298. This is like asserting that a circuitous detour is the shortest distance between two points. By effective demand, Keynes seems to mean little more than total monetary demand. Therefore, doubling the quantity of money, say, directly doubles the effective demand, because the two terms practically mean the same thing. Keynes is also right, though not for the reasons he gives, in pointing out that if we begin with a condition of underemployment, a given increase in the quantity of money will probably not raise prices proportionately, but will spend itself partly in raising employment. But though he almost invariably assumes a condition of underemployment, he just as consistently fails to recognize or acknowledge the real reason for this underemployment when it exists. That reason is almost invariably the existence of excessive wage rates in relation to prices. To put the matter in another way, some wage rates are above the point of equilibrium. 
If now we pour an increased supply of money into the system, and if the effect of this is to raise wholesale and retail prices without raising the excessive wage rates proportionately, then the result will be increased employment, and the consequent increased supply of goods will make the general price rise lower than it would otherwise have been. But Keynes gets to this conclusion by a set of artificial assumptions and arbitrary reasons that have little relation to economic realities. The positive theory of money. Instead of making a detailed criticism of Keynes's implied theory of money, it would affect a considerable economy of time and space if I said a few words at this point concerning what I believe to be the correct theory of money. These remarks must necessarily be sketchy, and as they will often give conclusions without the underlying argument. They may sometimes unintentionally sound dogmatic. The quantity of money is always a relevant consideration in determining the value of the monetary unit, just as the total supply of wheat is relevant in determining the value of a bushel of wheat. But the value of the monetary unit is not necessarily in exact inverse proportion to the quantity of money. As held by the rigid or mechanical quantity theory, any more than the value of a bushel of wheat is necessarily in exact inverse proportion to the supply of wheat. The inflexible quantity theory of money tacitly assumes that the elasticity of demand for money is unity. This proposition has never been proved and receives little statistical support. The value of the monetary unit is determined not merely by the quantity of money, but by the quality of that money. Putting the matter in another way, the value of the monetary unit is not determined merely by the present quantity of money, but by people's expectations concerning the future quantity, and by such other factors as the assumed integrity or stability of the issuing government or banks. Hence, it is typical at the beginning of any inflation to find that prices rise less than the increase in the money supply, and that in the later stages of an inflation, prices rise more than the increase in the money supply. It must be borne in mind, furthermore, that an increase in the quantity of money, no matter by how much it may raise the average of prices, never results in an exactly proportionate increase in each price. It is only, in fact, because Keynes and other inflationists tacitly assume that an increase in the quantity of money will raise some prices more than others. Particularly retail prices more than costs and wage rates, that they conclude that inflation will cure unemployment. I have said nothing above about the much discussed velocity of circulation of money and its supposed effect on prices. This is because I believe the term velocity of circulation involves numerous irrelevancies and confusions. Strictly speaking, money does not circulate; it is exchanged against goods. 
A house that frequently changes hands does not circulate. A man can only spend his monetary income once. Other things remaining equal, velocity of circulation of money can increase only if the number of times that goods also change hands, say stocks or bonds or speculative commodities, increases correspondingly. The annual rate of turnover of demand bank deposits is normally twice as great in New York City as it is in the rest of the country. In 1957, for example, it was 49.5 in New York and averaged only 23.0 in 337 other reporting districts. This is because New York is the speculative center. An increase in the velocity of circulation of money, therefore, does not necessarily mean other things remaining unchanged, a corresponding or proportionate increase in the price level. An increased velocity of circulation of money is not a cause of an increase in commodity prices. It is itself a result of changing valuations on the part of buyers and sellers. It is usually a sign merely of an increase in speculative activity. An increased velocity of circulation of money may even accompany, especially in a crisis at the peak of a boom, a fall in prices of stocks or bonds or commodities. What theory of prices? Though I shall elaborate upon this at a later point, it follows from the above that inflation is one a dangerous remedy for unemployment because the inflation may get out of hand and will, in any case, create great injustices. Two, an unnecessary remedy for unemployment, which can be cured simply by the appropriate free market adjustment and coordination of wage rates and prices to each other and to the existing money supply, and three, an uncertain remedy for unemployment, because the unemployment will either continue or be resumed if wage rates go up to the same extent as prices, so that the maladjustment which caused the unemployment is, after all, not corrected. I have already pointed out that, though Keynes calls Chapter 21 the theory of prices, he defines the theory of prices, page 296, as the analysis of the relation between changes in the quantity of money and changes in the price level. This, as I have remarked, is merely a theory of changes in a statistical average of prices. It therefore omits any analysis or explanation of 1. What determines any one particular price, say the price of eggs, and 2. What determines the relation of individual prices to each other. But these are the really fundamental problems involved. Until we have solved them, we cannot go on to any rational discussion of why individual prices change and why the price level, which is a purely statistical construct put together from individual prices, changes. But Keynes simply takes these fundamental problems for granted. It is hard to escape the verdict of Hayek.
Although the technocrats and other believers in the undoubted productive capacity of our economic system do not yet appear to have realized it, what Keynes has given us is really that economics of abundance for which they have been clamoring so long. Or rather, he has given us a system of economics which is based on the assumption that no real scarcity exists and that the only real scarcity with which we need concern ourselves is the artificial scarcity created by the determination of people not to sell their services and products below certain arbitrarily fixed prices. These prices are in no way explained, but are simply assumed to remain at their historically given level, except at rare intervals when full employment is approached, and the different goods begin successively to become scarce and to rise in price. Now, if there is a well-established fact which dominates economic life, it is the incessant, even hourly, variation in the prices of most of the important raw materials and of the wholesale prices of nearly all foodstuffs. But the reader of Mr. Keynes's theory is left with the implication that these fluctuations of prices are entirely unmotivated and irrelevant, except toward the end of the boom, when the fact of scarcity is readmitted into the analysis as an apparent exception under the designation of bottlenecks. Let us look at Keynes's strange picture of the economic world a little more closely. But in general, the demand for some services and commodities will reach a level beyond which their supply is, for the time being, perfectly inelastic, whilst in other directions there is still a substantial surplus of resources without employment. Thus, as output increases, a series of bottlenecks will be successively reached, where the supply of particular commodities ceases to be elastic and their price have to rise to whatever level is necessary to divert demand into other directions. Page 300. Some of the shortcomings in this picture have already been pointed out in the quotation from Hayek above. There are assumed to be, as a usual and virtually a normal condition, all sorts of unemployed resources kicking around, including, apparently, surplus raw materials, so that for a long time increase in demand does not lead to increase in price. Increasing costs are not regarded as typical, but as exceptional, and then only because bottlenecks are created. And bottlenecks themselves are treated as exceptions, instead of as the outcome of varying degrees of scarcity and varying but inevitable lags in the responsiveness of demand. This brings us to an aspect of Keynes's thought that has been seldom recognized even by his critics. A surprisingly large number of his errors spring not from his heterodoxies, but from his uncritical acceptance of certain classical, or, it would be better to say, Marshallian doctrines, concepts, or terms. One of these concepts, now used almost universally, is that of the elasticity of demand, supply, price, or what have you. The concept, or rather the term, 
owes its present great vogue to Marshall. It is a very useful concept, but it can also be a deceptive one, particularly when, as in the last thirty years, a whole literature develops around it that combines oversimplification with a spurious precision. This latter development is mainly the result of the use of the dubiously appropriate term elasticity. I have previously adverted to the misleading quality of this term, but it is now worth scrutinizing even more closely. Responsiveness, as I shall now try to show, is a term that not only expresses more clearly and directly what is meant, but avoids most of the pitfalls of elasticity. It is an ironic misfortune in the recent history of economic thought that, though Marshall himself suggested this alternative, he immediately dropped it and used the term elasticity instead. We may say generally, he wrote, that the elasticity or responsiveness of demand in a market is great or small according as the amount demanded increases much or little for a given fall in price, and diminishes much or little for a given rise in price. And he continues in a footnote. We may say that the elasticity of demand is one if a small fall in price will cause an equal proportionate increase in the amount demanded, or as we may say roughly, if a fall of one percent in price will increase the sales by one percent, that is two or one half, if a fall of one percent in prices makes an increase of two or one half percent respectively in the amount demanded and so on. But there are serious drawbacks to the term elasticity. One, the mechanical analogy on which it rests is somewhat forced and far-fetched, and does not suggest what happens as directly and simply as response or responsiveness does. Two, it leads easily to the false assumption that the elasticity of demand for a commodity is something built into the commodity rather than merely the response of consumers to a change of price. Three, it has led to a literature of mock precision, and at the same time of oversimplification, to which the term response, or even responsiveness, is unlikely to lead. Our present purpose, however, is not to elaborate in general upon each of these drawbacks, but merely to show how Keynes's thought and writing were vitiated both by his use of the term elasticity and by his careless concept of it. It constantly leads him into tautology. They may also have different elasticities of supply in response to changes in the money rewards offered, page 302. But as elasticities of supply means response, this could have been written more briefly, simply and clearly. The response of their supply to changes in price may also be different. Again, the elasticity of effective demand in response to changes in the quantity of money, page 305, 
could be at once clarified and shortened by writing the response of demand to changes in the quantity of money, etc. And still again, the elasticity of money prices in response to changes in effective demand measured in terms of money, page 285, could have been phrased simply, the response of prices to changes in demand. It is largely on such pretentious pleonasms and circumlocutions that Keynes's reputation for profundity seems to rest. Another Digression on Mathematical Economics Keynes devotes a whole section of Chapter 21 to a statement of his price theories in mathematical form. But we have even Keynes's word for it that we lose practically nothing if we bypass these equations. It is a great fault of symbolic pseudo-mathematical methods of formalizing a system of economic analysis, such as we shall set down in section 6 of this chapter, that they expressly assume strict independence between the factors involved and lose all their cogency and authority if this hypothesis is disallowed, whereas in ordinary discourse, where we are not blindly manipulating but know all the time what we are doing and what the words mean, we can keep at the back of our heads the necessary reserves and qualifications and the adjustments which we shall have to make later on, in a way in which we cannot keep complicated partial differentials at the back of several pages of algebra, which assume that they all vanish. Too large a proportion of recent mathematical economics are mere concoctions, as imprecise as the initial assumptions they rest on, which allow the author to lose sight of the complexities and interdependencies of the real world in a maze of pretentious and unhelpful symbols. Pages 297 through 298. This is admirably said but Keynes himself does not seem to have realized the full force of it. It is hard otherwise to account for the maze of pretentious and unhelpful symbols that he himself uses. Even after he has used them in section 6, he declares, I do not myself attach much value to manipulations of this kind, and I would repeat the warning which I have given above that they involved just as much tacit assumption as to what variables are taken as independent, partial differentials being ignored throughout, as does ordinary discourse, whilst I doubt if they carry us any further than ordinary discourse can. Perhaps the best purpose served by writing them down is to exhibit the extreme complexity of the relationship between prices and the quantity of money when we attempt to express it in a formal manner. Page 305 Do such symbols and manipulations, however, in fact usually serve this purpose? Or do they not much more frequently deceive the writer who uses them, and many of his readers, into supposing that he has discovered something that it will now be easy, or at least possible, to ascertain and substitute real numerical values for his algebraic symbols, and hence determine real relationships or make precise predictions that apply to the real world? The majority of Keynesians undoubtedly believe this, 
and the master has encouraged this belief. Nevertheless, if we have all the facts before us, we shall have enough simultaneous equations to give us a determinate result. Page 299. Of course, if we have all the facts, we shall have all the facts. If we already know the future, we can predict it. But when Keynes leads his readers to suppose that they can make real economic predictions or solve practical problems of economic policy if they only pull enough simultaneous equations together, if they only make sure to have as many equations as unknowns, he reminds one, by contrast, of the much sounder warning of Irving Fisher. Fisher, though he used even more mathematics in his theory of interest than Keynes does in his general theory, had a much surer sense of the limitations of the algebraic method. In science, the most useful formulas are those which apply to the simplest cases. For instance, in the study of projectiles, the formula of most fundamental importance is that which applies to the path of a projectile in a vacuum. Next comes the formula which applies to the path of a projectile in still air. Even the mathematician declines to go beyond this and to take into account the effect of wind currents, still less to write the equations for the path of a boomerang or a feather. At best, science can only determine what would happen under assumed conditions. It can never state exactly what does or will happen under actual conditions. Keynes's mathematical equations on pages 304 through 306 are peculiarly suspect because they are all concerned with elasticities of prices, wage units, output, effective demand, employment, etc. Some of these concepts, e.g. output, are obviously too heterogeneous and hazy to be capable of statement in useful or valid mathematical form. But my present purpose is simply to ask whether elasticity itself is a precise enough concept to justify its use in a mathematical question. Marshall himself had great doubts on the matter. After a long section on elasticity of supply and supply schedules, he writes, But such notions must be taken broadly. The attempt to make them precise overreaches our strength. If we include in our account nearly all the conditions of real life, the problem is too heavy to be handled. If we select a few, then long drawn out and subtle reasonings with regard to them become scientific toys rather than engines for practical work. Frank H. Knight points out that Serious embarrassment arises from the fact that there is no conceivable way of determining the elasticity of either demand or supply with reference to any particular time period. The conditions underlying either curve will never actually remain constant. As to the chance of making any estimate or calculation of elasticity for any real period, the possibilities in the abstract are limited enough on the supply side but are virtually zero on that of demand. 
We may surely carry our doubts further than Marshall carried his. Even to speak of the elasticity of demand for a commodity is to imply, as we have seen, not only that this elasticity is a quality of the commodity, but that there is something fixed or constant about it, at least within a given price range. To speak merely of the response of demand to a change in prices is to make neither of these tacit assumptions. We realize then that we are merely speaking of the response of buyers or consumers to a change of price under a whole complex set of concrete conditions at one moment of time, without jumping to any tacit conclusions regarding what the response would be to a still further change of price of that commodity in the same direction, or even to precisely the same change of price of the same commodity under another set of concrete circumstances at another moment in time. Elasticity of demand cannot be measured. In spite of many ambitious efforts in real years, elasticity of demand is not only difficult but impossible to measure. We can collect plenty of statistics approaching infinity, but we can never be sure which to take and how to interpret them. To glimpse some of the real difficulties, the closing price of a bushel of ordinary hard wheat at Kansas City on October 2nd, 1957 was $2.10, and X bushels were sold there on that day. On October 3rd, the closing price was $2.10, and Y bushels were sold. On October 3, 1956, the closing price was $2.25.5, and Z bushels were sold. Assuming that we knew the values of X, Y, and Z, that is, the total amount sold at Kansas City on each of these days, the data would still tell us nothing whatever about elasticity of demand. The price of wheat fluctuated greatly on each of these three days. To get an accurate average price, a statistician would have to know how many bushels sold at each different price, there is an eighth of a cent difference between prices, and make up a weighted average for the day. But this average would already begin to conceal what the statistician was trying to find out for a different amount of wheat was sold at each eighth of a cent's difference. He would have to chart these and draw a very irregular curve. This information would in turn be valueless, because it would only tell us what went on at Kansas City on three days. Suppose, disregarding the enormous difficulties and complexities, we could find out and chart the amounts of ordinary hard wheat sold at each different price on every business day of 1956 and 1957 everywhere in the United States, and even that we could do the same for the preceding 50 years. Would we even then be able to measure the elasticity of demand for wheat? 
the figures would still be worthless because the price of and demand for wheat are influenced in the United States, in spite of controls and price supports, by the total world supply and total world demand for wheat. Assuming we could collect world prices and world sales and translate them in acceptable statistical ways into terms of the American dollar, would we still be able to measure the elasticity of demand for wheat? Putting aside the enormous and practically insurmountable difficulties in the way of collecting and arranging statistics of any real precision, for the annual price of wheat as obtainable in any existing statistical compilation is merely the average of an enormous number of different daily and hourly prices of several different grades of wheat, we come up against the basic insoluble problem. When the price of a commodity changes, and the amount of it that is bought also changes, we are never able to say with confidence whether the amount bought changed because the price was at a different point on the same demand curve, or whether the amount bought changed because the demand curve itself shifted. And this is true whether we are talking about different prices and different amounts sold from one year to another, from one month to another, from one day to another, or from one hour to another. What economists do in practice is usually to beg the question. If the price is lowered and the amount of the product bought is increased, they say this proves that the demand for the product is elastic. If the price is lowered and the amount of the product bought is not increased, they say this proves that the demand for the product is inelastic. But if the price is lowered and the amount sold also declines, the kind of thing that happens on the commodity and stock exchanges every day of the week, they say this proves that the demand curve itself has fallen, or, in the professional jargon, has shifted to the left. And when we turn to elasticity of supply, our difficulties of measurement increase rather than diminish. For both elasticity of demand and elasticity of supply have a time dimension. As applied to supply, this time dimension is somewhat different for every commodity, yet nothing is more frequent than to find lags in adjustment confused with lack of adjustment. The supply of coffee, for example, is called inelastic, when what is meant is that it takes about five years for newly planted coffee trees to mature and bear. Therefore, if there is a rise in the demand for coffee and a consequent rise in the price, this year's supply and even next year's supply may prove inelastic, but the supply five years from now may prove to be only too responsive to this year's increase in demand, which may not be permanent. Again, to take an imaginary commodity, we may find that the elasticity of supply in response to an increase in price, as measured in Marshallian terms, is one and a half the first month because the increased price brings forth speculative holdings of the commodity, then only one quarter the second month, one sixteenth the third month, 
zero for the next nine months, and then suddenly unity or better as a new crop comes on the market or a new plant comes into production. But what then is the elasticity of supply for that commodity? I have not entered upon this long digression to attempt to discredit the concept of elasticity of demand or supply, or demand or supply schedules or curves. These are useful diagrammatic analogies, concepts, and tools of thought when employed with moderation and humility. But they have become the basis for an enormous and pretentious and cocky literature of mathematical economics, which parades and manipulates a maze of algebraic symbols which are assumed to have scientific and even predictive value, but for which it would be impossible in practice to ascertain or assign real numerical values. One reason for this is not merely that these values cannot really be known, but that they are oversimplified and hence falsified even in concept. Demand responds to changes in price. Supply responds to changes in price. But there is no reason to suppose that any scientifically predeterminable response of demand or supply attaches under all conditions to any given change in price. To the practical businessman or entrepreneur, this is and must remain a matter of guesswork. He can find out what has happened to that commodity or similar commodities in the past, but this is no sure guide to the future. The mathematical economist cannot give him any sure-fire formula. Keynes, it is true, has no unique guilt for the mathematical part of the general theory. His mathematics are comparatively modest in extent. His claims for the usefulness of his equations are far more modest than those of the present school of mathematical economists. But it is just as well to point out that nearly all the mathematics employed in the general theory, insofar as practical application or even theoretical illumination is concerned, is empty and useless. Sacrosanct Wage Rates Sinful Interest Rates Keynes ends chapter 21 in a burst of pure demagogy reminiscent of Marx. It is impossible to treat this final section as serious economics. It is designed to prove, one, that it would be harmful or dangerous to reduce almost any wage rate, and two, that it would be beneficial to reduce almost any interest rate. The confusions in this section are almost hopeless. Some of them are foreshadowed a few pages ahead. The cost unit or the wage unit can thus be regarded as the essential standard of value, and the price level, given the state of technique and equipment, will depend partly on the cost unit and partly on the scale of output. Page 302. Now, to say that the wage unit is the essential standard of value is to say that the price in dollars, and moreover the average price in dollars, of a heterogeneous good or service is the essential standard of value, and not the dollar in terms of which the price is expressed. 
For the wage unit, let us remember, is the money wage of an hour's employment of ordinary labor. Page forty-one. In other words, Keynes is saying that the dollar in which the price of labor is expressed is not the essential standard of value, but that this average price is the essential standard of value. Logically, this is something like saying that the foot is not the standard of length, but that the arm unit, the length of the ordinary man's arm, is the essential standard of length. It is like saying that the pound is not the standard of weight, but that the ordinary beefsteak, which say now happens to average two and a half pounds, is the essential standard of weight. I am not myself arguing that the dollar is the standard of value in the United States. All prices are expressed in dollars, and when two or more prices are compared with each other, they are compared in terms of dollars and are, in that sense, measured in dollars. But the dollar or any other monetary unit is not the standard of value in the sense that a foot is the standard of value, or the pound is the standard of weight. For so far, at least as practical life is concerned, the foot and the pound are not relative but absolute; they remain unchanged. But the value of the dollar or of any other monetary unit is itself constantly changing. Its value is itself measured in terms of its purchasing power, i.e., by the varying amounts of goods and services against which it is exchanged. Economic value, in short, cannot be measured in absolute terms. Market value can be expressed only as a comparison, as a ratio of exchange. But it is the dollar or other monetary unit in terms of which all economic values are commonly expressed. The dollar then is not the essential standard of value, but this only multiplies the absurdity of regarding the dollar price of an hour's ordinary labor as the essential standard of value. One might say that this was a return to the crude value theories of Ricardo and of Marx, but it is logically even more indefensible because in regarding an hour's ordinary labor as the standard of value. Ricardo and Marx were trying to set this standard in real terms, whereas Keynes rejects the monetary unit as the standard of value and fails to see that its value is inevitably involved in the essential standard of value he chooses. For the wage unit, being merely the average hourly wage in terms of dollars, is itself merely the temporary average ratio of exchange between the currency unit and a labor unit. And when Keynes declares that the price level will depend partly on the cost unit, page 302. He is saying that the average of all prices is determined and caused by a single price. Modern economic theory has made it clear not only that costs are themselves prices, but that costs and prices mutually determine each other. How did Keynes come to slip into these logical monstrosities, these apparently quite gratuitous absurdities? The answer is that he considered these absurdities essential to his central thesis that it is always harmful even to think about reducing wage rates. 
If money wages were to fall without limit whenever there was a tendency for less than full employment, there would be no resting place below full employment until either the rate of interest was incapable of falling further or wages were zero. Page 303 and 304 the hysterical supposition that any attempt to adjust wage rates to bring them into equilibrium with other prices would cause wages to fall without limit and go to zero is a bugaboo that could scare only mental children. It is just what it sounds like, howling nonsense. Monetary Inflation Preferred to Wage Adjustment Section 7 of Chapter 21 is chiefly given over to the proposition that whenever there is unemployment, the escape will be normally found in changing the monetary standard or the monetary system so as to raise the quantity of money, rather than enforcing down the wage unit and thereby increasing the burden of debt. Page 307 in other words, unemployment should always be cured by further monetary inflation, never by adjusting wage rates that have got out of line. The piano must be adjusted to the stool, not the stool to the piano. We have already dealt with the folly of all this, but a further point should be expanded upon here. Keynes speaks of forcing down the wage unit. But we have seen that this wage unit is in fact an average of hourly wage rates. Now this average is a statistical construct, not a concrete fact, and not necessarily a relevant fact. Unemployment at any given time may be cured, not by reducing average wages, but by reducing certain specific wage rates, and probably by diverse percentages. Reducing the specific wage rates will, of course, necessarily also reduce the average, but it is the specific adjustments and not the resulting average adjustment that are relevant to curing the unemployment. I have already shown in the illustration of what happened in 25 different industries, pages 284 through 285, that it is by widely varying specific changes that wage adjustments are actually made. But we may make the principle clearer by a hypothetical illustration. Let us say that we have two commodities, gadgets and widgets, each of which sells for $2.50. The marginal unit cost of each consists chiefly of labor cost. At a wage of $2 an hour, say, the total marginal unit cost of each would be equal to the price, $2.50. But the wage rate in the gadget industry happens to be $1.40 an hour, and the wage rate in the widget industry, $2.60 an hour. The average wage rate in both industries together is then $2. The average is not excessive in relation to the demand for and the price of each commodity, but this average is no consolation to the widget industry, which cannot make a profit. 
In a closed economy and with no acceptable substitute, the widget industry could raise its prices, but this would reduce the demand for its product and hence would create unemployment in the industry. In an open economy, in which, say, the Japanese industry could still sell widgets in New York at $2.50, the American widget industry would have to close down entirely, throwing all previous workers in the industry out of employment. There might continue to be full employment in the gadget industry, which would be able to lower prices and might even expand. But not enough, at least not for a long time, to absorb the unemployment in the widget industry. The illustration is perhaps lengthy, but it is apparently necessary to spell it out to make clear the meaninglessness of averages and aggregates when we are trying to discuss realistically the maladjustments in the economy which led to unemployment. Keynes's insistence on lumped thinking, on dealing with the economy in such unacknowledged averages and aggregates and mixed bags as the wage unit and the price level, results in systematically missing the very problems to be solved. Those arbitrary moneylenders. Keynes's discussion of interest rates is, as we have seen, even more demagogic than his discussion of wage rates. Today, and presumably for the future, the schedule of the marginal efficiency of capital is, for a variety of reasons, much lower than it was in the 19th century. Page 308. Here is a sweeping generalization based on conditions in 1935, the year in which Keynes was composing the general theory, and on the four or five years preceding. There is no reason for supposing it to be true. It seems merely quaint in the 1950s in a world of inflation, full employment, overemployment, and unparalleled capital investment plans everywhere. The acuteness and peculiarity of our contemporary problem arises, therefore, Keynes continues, out of the possibility that the average rate of interest which will allow a reasonable level of employment is one so unacceptable to wealth owners that it cannot be readily established merely by manipulating the quantity of money. But the most stable and the least easily shifted element in our contemporary economy has been hitherto, and may prove to be in the future, the minimum rate of interest acceptable to the generality of wealth owners. Pages 308 through 309. Here everything that has been discovered about economics since the Middle Ages, when all interest was called usury and considered wholly unjustified, is thrown out the window. Interest rates, we are to understand, unlike everything else in the market, are fixed merely by one party to the transaction, by the seller or the lender, by sheer arbitrary determination, custom, or extortion. We are back to a crude exploitation theory of interest. Everything depends on what lenders will accept, and nothing on what borrowers will offer, or why they will offer it. 
Neither the current yield of direct capital investments nor the expected yield of direct capital investments, the marginal efficiency of capital, is supposed to have any influence on the interest rate. The borrowers and the lenders are supposed to be a different class of people, presumably the poor and the rich. And never the same person, say, who is trying to decide whether it is to his advantage to lend his money to someone else for an interest rate, or to invest it directly in some project for a return and perhaps even to borrow more. If A is thinking of buying a stock that is currently yielding 5% a year on its price, it is presumably an outrage for B to ask 5% interest if A wants to borrow the money to buy the stock. All this is, of course, nonsense. The rate of interest is a market price like any other market price. It is as flexible on new loans as any other price, as any historic comparisons will show, and much more flexible over short periods, especially in the downward direction, than wage rates. Moreover, in the modern capitalistic economy, the lenders, owners of bonds, of savings deposits, and life insurance policies, are as a rule not the rich, and the borrowers, owners of common stock, of private firms, and of real estate, not the poor. Interest rates are related to other prices and are constantly adjusting to other prices as other prices are to them. Wage rates are related to other prices and, when not fixed by government or union coercion, are constantly adjusting to other prices as other prices are to them. When both adjustments are right, when there is full price, wage, and interest rate coordination, there is full employment and maximum balanced production. But Keynes treats both interest rates and wages as if they were completely outside of the price system, or at least as if they ought to be. Government must constantly step in to keep up wage rates and to push down interest rates. This, of course, is a naked class theory of the business cycle and of unemployment, strikingly similar to Marxist theory. As with Marxism, the tacit assumption is that these government policies are necessary to protect the poor and discomfit the rich. But as also with Marxism, there is the pose that morality has nothing to do with it, that the existing system just won't work and must break down. The chief difference between Marxism and Keynesianism is that for the former, the employer is the chief villain, and for the latter, the lender, with his nasty and pointless liquidity preference. Chapter 22 The Trade Cycle A sudden collapse of the marginal efficiency of capital? Keynes begins his chapter 22, Notes on the Trade Cycle, by telling us that if his theory of what determines the volume of employment is right, it must be capable of explaining the phenomena of the trade cycle. 
Though this chapter professes to be merely an application of the theories hitherto expounded, it actually adds many new errors. I doubt whether many avowed Keynesians have ever really worked through the general theory, but most of them have probably read this chapter, which is one of the least technical in the book, or at least popularizations of it. It contains the essence of those practical recommendations that have done so much harm. The essential character of the trade cycle, Keynes begins by telling us, and especially the regularity of time sequence and of duration which justifies us in calling it a cycle, is mainly due to the way in which the marginal efficiency of capital fluctuates. The trade cycle is best regarded, I think, as being occasioned by a cyclical change in the marginal efficiency of capital. Page 313 now, as we have already pointed out, the marginal efficiency of capital, like most of the key Keynesian terms, is vague, and is used by Keynes in several different senses. At one time it seems to mean the actual present yield of capital assets, at another time the expected future yield of specific capital assets, and at still another time it seems to mean merely the outlook for business profits, regardless of the specific return to a specific capital asset. If we give the marginal efficiency of capital this broad meaning, it does not make much sense whether we say that changes in the marginal efficiency of capital cause the trade cycle, or that changes in the trade cycle cause changes in the marginal efficiency of capital, because in this broad sense, changes in the marginal efficiency of capital and changes in the business outlook turn out to mean pretty much the same thing. If, however, Keynes's proposition were that trade cycle movements are caused, initiated, and led by independent changes in the specific returns to specific capital assets, it would be too implausible on its face to be worth disproving. Keynes's belief that there is some recognizable degree of regularity in the time sequence and duration of the upward and downward movements, page 314, of the business cycle is debatable. The closer the investigation, the less regular the duration that seems to emerge. The first problem is that of agreeing upon any specific way of measuring the length of business cycles. The possible indices or combinations thereof are infinite. Taking coke production as one index, Burns and Mitchell found that from 1914 to 1932, the length of the expansion phase of what they distinguished as five distinct cycles varied between 15 and 44 months, of the contraction phase between 10 and 37 months, and of the full cycle between 26 and 57 months. These ranges would no doubt be greater if more cycles were studied. Moreover, the peak and trough months of these cycles do not correspond very closely if we shift to other indices, such as coal production, steel production, petroleum output, 
cotton stocks at mills, calves slaughtered under federal inspection, etc. Passing over these difficulties, what seems to be true is that business cycles are phenomena that occur typically over a period of a few years, rather than over a period measured in days or weeks on the one hand, or decades on the other. This is particularly because this is the amplitude and type of fluctuation we have arbitrarily decided to call the trade cycle or business cycle, and partly because there is a certain viscosity in the economic system, so that changes at any point normally take a certain time to make their effects felt more generally. There are exceptions even to this. A labor strike, or an enemy bombing, or a flood, or a fire, or an earthquake, or even a holiday, may bring business almost to a halt in a single day from a period of great activity, and activity may just as promptly be restored. But we ordinarily do not count such changes when we study business cycles. Keynes's belief in the regularity of duration of trade cycles, however, is an important part of the theory he puts forward to explain them. A more typical and often the predominant explanation of the crisis is, he declares, not primarily a rise in the rate of interest, but a sudden collapse in the marginal efficiency of capital. Page 315. Now, the truth or importance that we attach to this statement depends once more upon the interpretation we give to Keynes's ambiguous term, the marginal efficiency of capital. If it means merely the outlook for business profits, which in this context it does seem to mean, then it is true but obvious. For a collapse in the outlook for business profits is in turn merely another name for a collapse of confidence. A collapse in the state of confidence is, of course, an inherent part of the crisis. But this merely raises the question what caused confidence to collapse? What caused the outlook for profits to turn sour? What brought on the sudden collapse in the marginal efficiency of capital? This is merely one more illustration of the confusions Keynes gets into through the ambiguity of his own terms. If the marginal efficiency of capital means the expected yield of capital assets, as Keynes frequently tells us it does, then it is an expectation, a psychological phenomenon, dependent on the general outlook for business profits as businessmen estimate that outlook correctly or incorrectly. If the marginal efficiency of capital means, as it seems on its face to mean, the present physical productivity of capital assets, then clearly it is not this that collapses in the crisis, either as cause or consequence. If finally the marginal efficiency of capital means the present monetary value of the goods that capital instruments helps to produce, then a collapse in that monetary value may cause a collapse in the marginal efficiency of capital, but the causation is not the other way round.
In some, Keynes's explanation of the crisis as a sudden collapse of the marginal efficiency of capital is either a useless truism or an obvious error, according to the interpretation we give the phrase, the marginal efficiency of capital. When Governments Control Investment it is significant that Keynes's explanation of the crisis exonerates a rise in the rate of interest as the chief culprit, in spite of his tendency elsewhere to make excessive interest rates and liquidity preference the main cause of unemployment. We have been accustomed in explaining the crisis, he writes, to lay stress on the rising tendency of the rate of interest under the influence of the increased demand for money both for trade and speculative purposes. At times this factor may certainly play an aggravating and occasionally perhaps an initiating part. Page 315 but when this happens, he neglects to point out, or perhaps does not understand, that it is precisely because the rate of interest had previously been kept too low, and credit had been freely extended to marginal and other dubious projects, incapable of earning a realistic rate of interest or surviving, except under conditions of inflation. The high rate of interest then gets the blame for the collapse of the marginal or unsound projects that were launched only under the illusions created by the preceding inflationary low rate of interest. Insofar as Keynes presents any clear theory of the trade cycle whatever, it is the theory that the economy cannot be trusted to private hands, cannot be trusted to the free play of the market, but must be put in the hands of government bureaucrats, who are apparently to be regarded as ex officio, perfectly rational, completely informed, incorruptible, and free from any taint of political interest. His distrust of a free economy is unconcealed. It is of the nature of organized investment markets under the influence of purchasers largely ignorant of what they are buying and of speculators who are more concerned with forecasting the next shift of market sentiment than with a reasonable estimate of the future yield of capital assets that, when disillusion falls upon an over-optimistic and over-bought market, it should fall with sudden and even catastrophic force. Pages 315 through 316. It is not so easy to revive the marginal efficiency of capital, determined as it is, by the uncontrollable and disobedient psychology of the business world. It is the return of confidence, to speak in ordinary language, which is so insusceptible to control and an economy of individualistic capitalism. Page 317. One incidental point brought out in this passage is that it extends the phrase the marginal efficiency of capital to the point where it means in ordinary language merely confidence. But 
What the passage reveals most of all, in the words I have italicized, is the essentially authoritarian nature of Keynes's thought. In free markets, purchasers are largely ignorant of what they are buying. The business world is uncontrollable and disobedient, like a naughty child. Obviously, in such a world, investors cannot be trusted to invest their own money or entrepreneurs to make their own decisions. Keynes does not flinch from drawing the logical conclusion. I conclude that the duty of ordering the current volume of investment cannot safely be left in private hands. Page three twenty. Whoever controls investment controls the direction and nature of production, decides what is to be made and sold and what is not, what consumers are to be permitted to have and in what volume. And Keynes does not shrink from this corollary either, except for a certain lack of clarity and candor, but begins to talk lightly of supporting. All sorts of policies for increasing the propensity to consume, page 325, and redistributing the wealth. In existing conditions where the volume of investment is unplanned and uncontrolled, subject to the vagaries of the marginal efficiency of capital, as determined by the private judgment of individuals ignorant or speculative. The least he would support is a socially controlled rate of investment. Pages three twenty four through three twenty five. All this implies once more not only that entrepreneurs, businessmen, investors, and speculators are ignorant, mercurial, and irresponsible, but that there exists a class of people, perhaps economists very much resembling Lord Keynes, who are completely informed, rational, balanced, wise, who have means of knowing at all times exactly how much investment is needed and in exact. What amounts it should be allocated to exactly which industries and projects, and that these managers are above corruption and above any interest in the outcome of the next election. Great Britain, unfortunately, decided to try the Keynesian remedy. The results are now known. I present herewith an analysis by Professor Eli Devon of the University of Manchester, which appeared in Lloyd's Bank Review of London for July 1954. It is now generally acknowledged that there are no objective criteria by which the government can decide what is the right amount of investment in total, but it is still sometimes argued that it is possible by statistical analysis to decide on the distribution of investment. If the government, in its control over investment, merely wants to imitate market procedure and to select the right lines of investment that will pay best, then it might try to work out rates of return on the various projects submitted to it and use such rates as the criteria for selecting which to approve. Even on this basis, however, prospective rates of return could be calculated only with very wide margins, representing the essential risks involved in such forecasting. And as with estimates of future coal and steel requirements, statistical investigation might expose and illustrate these risks, but is unlikely to narrow them.
Usually, government control of investment does not merely try to imitate market procedures. Indeed, the very purpose of government control is to prevent ordinary market forces being the criterion of distribution. The controlling authority tries to select on the basis of the public interest or of social priorities. It is extremely difficult to see how social priorities or social rates of return can be measured statistically. How does one compare statistically the social rate of return from building more houses with the social rate of return from more investment on road building and repair, or compare the social rate of return from additional investment in the coal industry with investment in engineering or textiles? Whether or not it is possible to measure social rates of return statistically, there is in any case little evidence that such calculation ever played an important role in the deliberations of the Capital Issues Committee and the Investments Program Committee. Little has been published about the proceedings of these two important committees and the criteria which they used in arriving at their decisions, but I suspect that the allocation of investment is much better thought of as the result of political and administrative struggles and pressures than as a rational choice determined by the statistical measurement of rates of social return. Each industry or line of investment is the administrative responsibility of some government department, and in the argument about the investment program, each department would fight for the interests for which it was responsible. Every argument would, of course, be used to demonstrate that the investment being sponsored is vital to the economy, because it would relieve a potential bottleneck, result in export expansion or dollar saving. The strength of this case, the efficiency with which it is presented, the power and energy of the minister in charge, public pressure, and generally accepted but vaguely expressed ideas of what is essential and inessential. Would all go to determine how each particular request for inclusion in the investment program was treated. No doubt, argument before these committees would be dressed up in statistics, since every official knows that a statistical case always makes an impression. And if all those concerned play the statistical game correctly, especially if they are not sure that they are playing a game, then an apparent air of deciding the issues rationally in terms of quantitative estimates of the results of alternative lines of action may easily be maintained. The life of durable assets. So much for one of the main economic policies Keynes advocated. Now let us return to some of the technical economic analysis upon which his astonishing conclusion was based. Keynes, as we have seen, believed in regularity in the duration of the business cycle. Specifically, he believed that the duration of the downward movement had an order of magnitude which is not fortuitous, but which shows some regularity of habit between, let us say, three and five years. Page 317. Characteristically, he presents no statistical evidence of this, nor does he refer to any source where the statistical evidence can be found. 
The extreme difficulty, even of measuring business cycle durations, is brought out by Burns and Mitchell in Measuring Business Cycles. Table 56 on page 221 of that volume shows that the contraction phase of 15 American cycles, as measured by monthly pig iron production between 1879 and 1933, ranged from five months to 44 months, as compared with Keynes's three to five years. Jeffrey H. Moore, continuing the statistical studies of the National Bureau of Economic Research, finds that the average duration of the downward movement of the 24 cycles in the period from 1854 to 1954 was just 20 months. But this statistical average conceals a wide range of duration. The contraction beginning in August 1918 lasted only seven months. That beginning in October 1873 lasted 65 months. In spite of Keynes's impression of regularity, here is a difference in duration of almost ten times as much in one case as in another. Had Keynes been discussing the average duration of the whole cycle instead of merely the downward phase, his guess would have come near the mark. The expansion and contraction phase together of the 24 cycles add up to just 50 months or slightly over four years, but this average again conceals wide differences. For Whereas the average expansion phase of the 24 cycles lasted 30 months, the range was from as low as 10 months to as long as 80 months. Now Keynes tries to explain his assumed regularity by the influences which govern the recovery of the marginal efficiency of capital, page 317. But here he shifts once more from the wider interpretation of that phrase as equivalent merely to the state of confidence to the narrow interpretation of the specific productivity of specific capital assets. He concludes that the duration of the slump has a definite relationship to the length of life of durable assets, page 318, and also to the carrying costs of surplus stocks, page 317. Here again, no statistical evidence is offered, and it may be questioned whether any is possible. There is no meaningful average length of life of durable assets and no meaningful average period of getting rid of surplus stocks. Every capital instrument has a different economic lifespan, not necessarily coincident with its physical lifespan. Even durable assets of approximately the same lifespan were bought and installed at different times, and therefore need replacement at different times. The average life expectation of a human being is, say, 70 years, but under normal conditions, approximately the same percentage and numbers of men and women die and are replaced each year at a fairly even rate. They do not die all at once. And get replaced each seventieth year. Keynes has not only got his elementary arithmetic mixed up, but has reversed economic cause and effect. The amount of new and durable assets or current inventories purchased depends on the state of expectations, the state of confidence, rather than the other way round. 
Whether a manufacturer keeps his old equipment for another year or two, or buys new equipment, depends less upon the physical age of his equipment than upon his expectations regarding the future of sales, costs, and prices. Whether people keep their old automobiles or buy new ones depends more upon their own present income or estimate of future income than upon the precise age of their old car. There is no point at which people are compelled to buy new cars or at which a manufacturer is compelled to buy new equipment. This depends chiefly upon his estimate of future conditions in his business. The same reasoning applies even more to inventories. There is no meaningful average time for getting rid of them. Nothing is gained by averaging the time it takes a department store to get rid of an excess inventory of bedsheets with the time it takes a Cadillac dealer to get rid of an excess stock of cars. And in any case, each specific time period depends more upon the purchasing power and state of expectations of buyers and upon the willingness of sellers to cut prices for clearance than upon the need of buyers to replace their own stocks. In brief, while the length of life of durable assets perhaps has some relationship to the duration of a slump, it is only one of many factors and seldom the most important. Nor does there appear to be any statistical way of determining its exact relationship or relative importance. A Policy of Perpetual Inflation Keynes's theory of the crisis, like his theory of so many other things, consists merely in a contra mundum attitude, a denial of nearly every doctrine that is orthodox or established. If one truth concerning economic crises has been established in recent years, it is that they are typically brought on by cheap money, i.e. low interest rate policies that encourage excessive borrowing, excessive credit expansion, imprudent speculation, and all the distortions and instabilities in the economy that these finally bring about. It follows that such crises can be prevented by keeping money sufficiently tight, so that credit expansion, reckless speculation, and harebrained ventures are not encouraged in the first place. It follows also that when such symptoms of an inflationary boom appear, a timely increase in money rates can prevent them from running too far and dampen down the boom before it has run to excessive lengths. All this, of course, Keynes rejects. He treats the whole thing as a strange and perverse theory. It may appear extraordinary that a school of thought should exist which finds the solution for the trade cycle in checking the boom in its early stages by a higher rate of interest. Page 326. Keynes professes to be totally incapable of understanding the reasoning of this school of thought, and this profession seems to be sincere. 
The only line of argument, along with any justification for this policy, can be discovered, is that put forward by Mr. D. H. Robertson, who assumes, in effect, that full employment is an impracticable ideal, and that the best that we can hope for is a level of employment much more stable than at present, and averaging perhaps a little higher. Pages 326 through 327. Now, whether full employment, as conceived by the Keynesians, is a practicable or even a definable ideal, is a question we shall later examine. And whether or not Keynes correctly states Robertson's argument is a question with which we are here not concerned. We need merely point out that this is not the real line of argument for checking the boom in its early stages by a higher rate of interest. The real objection to keeping rates of interest too low too long is that they encourage excessive borrowing, inflationary price and wage rises, speculative projects that cannot pay their way, and illusions, instabilities, and distortions throughout the economy that are bound to lead eventually to a crash. But Keynes professes to believe that those who are opposed to inflationary bubbles are opposed to full employment. The austere view, which would employ a high rate of interest to check at once any tendency in the level of employment to rise appreciably above the average of, say, the previous decade, is, however, more usually supported by arguments which have no foundation at all apart from confusion of mind. Pages 327 through 328. Now, I know of no one who advocates or ever advocated raising the rate of interest in order to lower the level of employment. If Keynes knew of such an economist, he should have quoted him. Economists have advocated raising the rate of interest in order to slow down or to halt or to prevent in the first place a money and credit inflation with the instabilities and final crisis to which such an inflation always leads. They want the rate of interest raised to a non-inflationary level so as not to be confronted with a crisis and heavy unemployment when the inflationary bubble bursts. Keynes's economics is the economics of wish fulfillment, the economics of the land of cocaine, where every problem can be solved by rhetoric. Thus, the remedy for the boom is not a higher rate of interest, but a lower rate of interest, for that may enable the so-called boom to last. The right remedy for the trade cycle is not to be found in abolishing booms and thus keeping us permanently in a semi-slump, but in abolishing slumps and thus keeping us permanently in a quasi-boom. Page 322. This sounds more like the wind-up speech of a political candidate at the final rally of a campaign than like the statement of a serious economist. Of course, the economic ideal is to keep maximum production and even full employment sensibly defined all the time. But Keynes proposes to do this, in effect, by a policy of perpetual inflation, of keeping the interest rate low by a constant expansion of the money and credit supply, for that is what a policy of perpetual cheap money means. But this would not bring maximum balanced production of the products that consumers most wanted, nor steady employment.
It is a policy of boom and bust, with the method correctly described. And Keynes solves the trade cycle problem rhetorically by the simple device of never once mentioning in this chapter the level of wage rates. Never once does he ask what would happen if wage rates in this full employment boom started racing ahead of prices and wiping out profit margins. Never once does he say what he would do to stop this from happening. In the Keynesian system, the level of wage rates and their effect on employment is the great unmentionable. Keynes's theory of the trade cycle, including his theory of interest rate policy, is crowded with contradictions. The rate of interest, according to him, should be low in the depression, low in the boom, and low in the crisis. His remedy is to keep the boom going by encouraging overinvestment and malinvestment, and then, when the boom cracks, to keep it going by lowering the rate of interest still more to encourage still more overinvestment and malinvestment. He refused to recognize the rate of interest as a payment for anything real, whether the productivity or rental value of the capital assets that could be bought with the borrowed funds, or the payment for generalized time usance. He failed to recognize that the rate of interest is a market phenomenon like any other. He was opposed to clapping on a high rate of interest, which would probably deter some useful investments, page 321, forgetting that any market price for anything cuts off all the possible purchasers who are unwilling or unable to pay that price, but if the total supply is sold, the commodity nonetheless goes into presumably its most productive uses. What confused Keynes was the belief that money was not anything real, but merely pieces of paper that could be turned out at will by the printing press. He was capable of writing, for example, Or, again, the evil is supposed to creep in if the increased investment has been promoted by a fall in the rate of interest engineered by an increase in the quantity of money. Yet there is no special virtue in the pre-existing rate of interest, and the new money is not forced on anyone. Page 328. Here, Keynes clearly acknowledges that he favors artificially cheap money, even if it is brought about by direct monetary inflation. As a matter of fact, this is the only way in which a cheap money policy can be made effective. Either the supply of money and or credit has to be increased to keep the interest rate down, or the artificially low interest rate, if it is effective at all, will stimulate increased borrowing and a consequent increase in the money and credit supply. True, there is no special virtue in the pre-existing rate of interest, but there is at least a negative virtue in a rate of interest which is not inflationary. More Carts Before Horses There are some incidental fallacies in Section 6 of Chapter 22 that are worth noticing chiefly as an index to the unreliability and slovenliness of Keynes's thought. 
He dismisses the belief that in a boom, investment tends to outrun saving, on the ground that it implies that saving and investment can be unequal, and has, therefore, no meaning until these terms have been defined in some special sense. Page 328. This is disingenuous, not only because Keynes himself defined investment and savings in this special sense in his treatise on money, but because, notwithstanding his formal definitions of saving and investment in section 2 of chapter 6, according to which they must always be equal, the whole thesis of the general theory which makes saving sinful and investment virtuous depends constantly on the tacit assumption that one can, in fact, occur without the automatic occurrence of an equal amount of the other. The truth, as we saw in our chapter 16, is that in a boom, monetary investment can outrun previous genuine saving, provided new money or bank credit has been meanwhile created, provided, in other words, there is monetary inflation. Again, Keynes makes some astonishing statements on page 328. In the short period, supply price usually increases with increasing output, on account either of the physical fact of diminishing return, or of the tendency of the cost unit to rise in terms of money when output increases. But in the typical Keynesian situation, after there has been unemployment and unused capacity, unit costs of production fall when output increases because of the reduction of unit overhead costs. The rise of prices is merely a byproduct of the increased output. But increased output, demand remaining unchanged, means a fall of prices. No one has a legitimate vested interest in being able to buy at prices which are only low because output is low. This is a reversal of cause and effect. When output is low, it is usually because prices are low because demand is low. When statements about elementary economic relationships are so slovenly and confused, it is hardly surprising that we should encounter so much confusion and fallacy in the discussion of more complicated problems. Sunspots Before the Eyes the final section of chapter 22, on the supposed connection of the size of crops with the business cycle, is irrelevant to the main themes of the general theory, and need detain us only as a further illustration of the slipshod and offhand theorizing that Keynes seems to think good enough for economics. Keynes takes off from the theory of W. Stanley Jevons, presented in 1878, that the trade cycle was primarily due to the fluctuations in the bounty of the harvest, and these in turn to a sunspot cycle. Keynes restates and defends the theory in this form. When an exceptionally large harvest is gathered in, an important addition is usually made to the quantity carried over into later years. 
The proceeds of this addition are added to the current incomes of the farmers and are treated by them as income, whereas the increased carryover involves no drain on the income expenditure of other sections of the community, but is financed out of savings. That is to say, the addition to the carryover is an addition to current investment. This conclusion is not invalidated even if prices fall sharply. Thus, it is natural that we should find the upward turning point to be marked by bountiful harvests and the downward turning point by deficient harvests. Pages 329 through 330. Now, such a theory, to be even superficially plausible, calls first of all for an inductive or statistical support. It would be necessary to show... 1. A direct correspondence, or at least a positive correlation, simultaneous or lagging, between the size of crops and the degree of prosperity. 2. At least an approximate correspondence between the total size of crops and the size of the carryover from them. 3. At least an approximate correspondence between the total size of a crop and the volume of bank loans for carrying the carryover. And four, a correlation between the annual changes in the volume of agricultural loans for carrying crops and the annual changes in the total volume of bank loans for all purposes. Not one of these statistical comparisons is made by Keynes or even suggested. Yet, these statistics are all easily available, at least on a national scale, and some of them are directly contrary to the theory. The total monetary value of a crop, and there is no other practicable way of measuring the value except in monetary terms, bears no direct correspondence with the size of the crop. Thus, in the decade 1876 to 1885, to take figures from Jevons' own period, the annual production of wheat in the United States averaged 448,337,000 bushels, and the annual farm value averaged $413,730,000. But in the decade 1886 through 1895, the annual average production of wheat in the U.S. rose to 526,076,000 bushels, whereas the annual average farm value fell to $356,288,000. I could cite any number of similar falls in total farm value of crops when the crops themselves increased. Speaking broadly, in fact, the farmer's total income from crops does not vary either directly or inversely with the total size of the crops. The conditions of demand in any year and changes in the value of the monetary unit itself are just as important as changes in crop supply. Secondly, there is no necessary correspondence between the total size of a crop and the size of its carryover.
Thus, in the five years 1941 through 1945, the average size of the new American wheat crop was 984,580,000 bushels, and the average size of the carryover was 389,099,000 bushels. Whereas in the five years 1946 to 1950, the average size of the new American wheat crop rose to 1,184,749,000 bushels, and the average size of the carryover fell to 281,603,000 bushels. In 1948, the new wheat crop was 1,294,911,000 bushels, and the carryover 307,285,000 bushels. In 1949, the new crop fell to 1,098,415,000 bushels, but the carryover rose to 424,714,000 bushels. I need not go on to show the lack of correspondence between the total size of crops or carryovers with total bank loans year by year. After all, it is the business of the propounder of a theory to present at least the prima facie reasons that make it seem plausible before it becomes incumbent on anybody else to present an elaborate disproof. Keynes's deductive argument for his modernized version of the Javonian trade cycle theory is implausible even in the absence of statistical disproof. It is based on the tacit assumptions, never spelled out, that large crops lead to a corresponding automatic increase in the volume of bank loans, that this increase adds to the volume of monetary purchasing power, and also that, for some mysterious reason, none of this purchasing power is ever tied up by the holding of the crops themselves. In fact, Keynes contends that the reduction of redundant stocks to A normal level actually has a deflationary effect. Page 331. It is, on the contrary, surplus stocks hanging over the market that have the deflationary effect. Prices of any commodity tend to rise as such surplus stocks are worked off. These are facts known to every informed speculator or businessman, but they were apparently never called to Lord Keynes's attention. Chapter 23: Return to Mercantilism. Let goods be homespun. I have had occasion to point out several times in the course of this book that the leading ideas put forward by Keynes in the general theory, far from being advanced and original, were a revision to much older and more primitive ideas. And though Keynes flattered himself in the preface to the general theory for treading along unfamiliar paths and for escaping from the old ideas, he began to recognize increasingly in the course of the general theory that he was really moving back in his essential notions to pre-classical 17th-century thinking, and that his ideas bore a striking similarity to those of the mercantilists.
In chapter 23, he recognized these similarities frankly and explicitly, but treated them as confirmation of the correctness of his new views. In rejecting the classical views on free trade, he thinks it fairest to point out the extent of his own conversion. So lately as 1923, as a faithful pupil of the classical school, who did not at that time doubt what he had been taught, and entertained on this matter no reserves at all, I wrote, If there is one thing that protection cannot do, it is to cure unemployment. There are some arguments for protection, based upon its securing possible but improbable advantages, to which there is no simple answer. But the claim to cure unemployment involves the protectionist fallacy in its grossest and crudest form. Page 334 Keynes might have quoted a far more comprehensive endorsement of free trade that he made only a few months before in the Manchester Guardian commercial supplement of January 4, 1923. We must hold to free trade in its widest interpretation as an inflexible dogma to which no exception is admitted wherever the decision rests with us. We must hold to this even where we receive no reciprocity of treatment, and even in those rare cases whereby infringing it we could in fact obtain a direct economic advantage, we should hold to free trade as a principle of international morals and not merely as a doctrine of economic advantage. These quotations are chiefly interesting as illustrations of Keynes's intellectual virtuosity and instability. He could be equally eloquent and brilliant on either side of a question. While he repudiates his free trade views in the general theory published in 1936, he had repudiated them even more strongly in an article in the Yale Review in the summer of 1933. There he announced the abandonment of his former free trade ideas and frankly sympathized with those who would minimize rather than with those who would maximize economic entanglement among nations. Let goods be homespun wherever it is reasonably and conveniently possible, Keynes continued there. And above all, let finance be primarily national. A greater measure of national self-sufficiency and economic isolation among countries than existed in 1914 may tend to serve the cause of peace rather than otherwise. This last belief must have received something of a jolt with the outbreak of World War II six years later. It is an historic irony that Keynes wrote these words just when Nazi Germany was about to launch on its policy of autarky. In that 1933 article, Keynes at least recognized that national self-sufficiency and a planned domestic economy went logically together, whereas domestic planning and free trade or internationalism did not. In the general theory, this is less explicitly admitted. As a further example of Keynes's intellectual instability, his admiring biographer speaks of his reversion towards free trade at the end of his life. 
But our chief purpose here is not to point to Keynes's many inconsistencies, but to examine which of his ideas were right and which were wrong. And clearly the position he took in the general theory on free trade versus mercantilism was untenable. He begins by stating what seems to him the element of scientific truth in mercantilist doctrine, page 335. He admits that the advantages claimed by the mercantilists are avowedly national advantages and are unlikely to benefit the world as a whole, page 335. But he neglects to add that they are all beggar-thy-neighbor policies, the total result of which, even on the mercantilists' own assumptions, could only injure the world as a whole if universally applied. And he refuses to recognize that the typical mercantilist policies, the chief of which is protection, hurt even, and most often especially, the nation that tries them alone. For such a nation either forces its own consumers to pay more for the products they wish than they would otherwise have to pay, or deprives them of these products altogether. Protection creates home industries that are less efficient than the corresponding foreign industries, at the cost of injuring home industries that are more efficient than the corresponding foreign industries. Keynes concedes this in a parenthetic and left-handed way. The advantages of the international division of labor are real and substantial, even though the classical school greatly overstressed them. Page 338. But he never tells the reader explicitly what these advantages are, for when they are spelled out it becomes evident that even some of the authors of the classical school never really stressed them enough. Keynes states and endorses practically all the ancient and long-exploded fallacies of the mercantilists. We may safely leave the refutation of these to Adam Smith, Ricardo, Bostier, and Mill, or even to Henry George, William Graham Sumner, Taussig, and a hundred others. It really is not a task that needs to be done over and over again in every generation or decade. Or is it? What keeps the mercantilist fallacies alive, in spite of a thousand refutations, is 1. The special short-run interests of particular producers within each country who would always stand to benefit if competition against them alone could be kept out, and 2. The persistent inability or refusal, even of many economists, to look for or understand the secondary and long-run effects of a proposed policy. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy not merely for one group, but for all groups. Running Comment on Running Comments it may be well, then, to make a running comment on some of Keynes's running comments. 
The weight of my criticism, he tells us, is directed against the inadequacy of the theoretical foundations of the laissez-faire doctrine upon which I was brought up and which for many years I taught, against the notion that the rate of interest and the volume of investment are self-adjusting at the optimum level, so that preoccupation with the balance of trade is a waste of time. For we, the faculty of economists, prove to have been guilty of presumptuous error in treating as a puerile obsession what for centuries has been a prime object of political statecraft. Page 339. What is to be said of this? In a free economy, the rate of interest and the volume of investment are, in the absence of government tampering with the money and credit supply, just as much market phenomena as the price of milk and the quantity of milk sold. They are just as self-adjusting as any other price or any other volume of sales. They are just as self-adjusting in relation to current supply and current demand. Classical theory held that, in free markets, prices, wages, and interest rates, volume of sales and volume of investment, tended to move forward or oscillate about, hypothetical and always changing, equilibrium levels. But good classical theory never assumed that they invariably adjusted themselves at the optimum level. If that phrase is used to mean some ideal level, that would require perfect foresight on the part of buyers and sellers, lenders, borrowers, and entrepreneurs. Sound classical theory never assumed perfect foresight. One may ask whether it is not Keynes who is guilty of presumptuous error in so cavalierly dismissing what the best economists have taught for two centuries. Keynes's attack on free interest rates is really an attack on free markets and free enterprise generally. In the very next paragraph, we find him describing free markets as the operation of blind forces, page 339. Recently, he continues, practical bankers in London have learnt much, and one can almost hope that in Great Britain the technique of bank rate will never be used again to protect the foreign balance in conditions in which it is likely to cause unemployment at home. Page 339. By 1957, however, bankers had really learnt much. They had learnt that Keynes's theories didn't work. After 20 years of cheap money policies, they raised the discount rate of the Bank of England to 7%, to halt inflation and to protect the foreign balance. But the world is only slowly beginning to realize that excessive wage rates can cause unemployment under any conditions, and it is precisely at excessive wage rates that Keynes forbids us to point an accusing finger. His whipping boy was the interest rate. He even goes so far as to write in a footnote, The remedy of an elastic wage unit so that a depression is met by a reduction of wages is liable to be a means of benefiting ourselves at the expense of our neighbors. Page 339 just how it injures our neighbors to offer them goods at lower prices, or just how it injures the great body of the workers to reduce wage rates to the equilibrium point that maximizes employment and total payrolls, I leave to the Keynesians to explain.
In any case, Keynes ends up with the mercantilist conclusion that markets must never be left free, that the government must control practically everything. There was wisdom in the mercantilist's intense preoccupation with keeping down the rate of interest by means of usury laws, and in their readiness in the last resort to restore the stock of money by devaluation, if it had become plainly deficient through an unavoidable foreign drain, a rise in the wage unit or any other cause. Page 340. Practically all the Keynesian remedies, then, especially arbitrarily holding down interest rates and inflating the currency, were known to and practiced by the mercantilists of the 17th century and earlier, by Keynes's own admission. The new economics, in brief, turns out to be merely the exhumation of ancient and exploded fallacies. Wise Mercantilists, Stupid Economists Instead of becoming disturbed when he found out that his new and path-breaking ideas had been anticipated by the 17th century mercantilists, Keynes seems to have been reassured and delighted by the discovery. Mercantilist thought never supposed that there was a self-adjusting tendency by which the rate of interest would be established at the appropriate level. On the contrary, they were emphatic that an unduly high rate of interest was the main obstacle to the growth of wealth, and they were even aware that the rate of interest depended on liquidity preference and the quantity of money. They were concerned both with diminishing liquidity preference and with increasing the quantity of money, and several of them made it clear that their preoccupation with increasing the quantity of money was due to their desire to diminish the rate of interest. Page 341. Keynes was charmed to find that his own chief fallacies had been anticipated by the philosopher John Locke in 1692. The great Locke was, perhaps, the first to express in abstract terms the relationship between the rate of interest and the quantity of money in his controversy with Petty. Page 342. The reason Locke also mistook this relationship was that he, too, like Keynes, assumed that the rate of interest was a purely monetary phenomenon. But Locke at least had the excuse of having lived and died not only before the appearance of the classical economists or of the work of Bombavirk or Irving Fisher, but even before the appearance of David Hume's essay of interest in 1741. The great Hume was perhaps the first to point out that the rate of interest is not derived from the quantity of the precious metals, by which he meant the quantity of money. The mercantilists, continues Keynes, were under no illusions as to the nationalistic character of their policies and their tendency to promote war. It was national advantage and relative strength at which they were admittedly aiming. We may criticize them for the apparent indifference with which they accepted this inevitable consequence of an international monetary system, but intellectually their realism is much preferable to the confused thinking of contemporary advocates of an international fixed gold standard and laissez-faire in international lending who believe that it is precisely these policies which will best promote peace. Page 348. 
This is the beginning of a series of closely packed paradoxes and contradictions in which Keynes proceeds to prove triumphantly that nationalism is the best internationalism, that hostile policies bring peace, and friendly policies war, that international currency stability and free trade bring instability and chaos, and that nationalistic and mutually hostile policies bring international stability and prosperity. Having just implied in the passage quoted above that nationalistic and beggar-my-neighbor policies were realistic, and that an international gold standard and freedom of lending and trade lead to war rather than peace, Keynes goes on. For in an economy subject to money contracts and customs more or less fixed over an appreciable period of time, where the quantity of domestic circulation and the domestic rate of interest are primarily determined by the balance of payments, page 348. I must interrupt here to point out that this is an obvious confusion of cause and effect. The balance of payments is itself heavily influenced and largely determined by relative rates of interest in different nations, relative national changes in the quantity of money, and relative changes in national price averages, or rather in specific prices. The balance of payments, in fact, is far more often a consequence of one or more of these changes than they are of the balance of payments. Continuing from the point where I interrupted, Keynes goes on to declare that, under these conditions, there is no orthodox means open to the authorities for countering unemployment at home except by struggling for an export surplus and an import of the monetary metal at the expense of their neighbors. Never in history was there a method devised of such efficacy for setting each country's advantage at variance with its neighbors as the international gold or formerly silver standard for it made domestic prosperity directly dependent on a competitive pursuit of markets and a competitive appetite for the precious metals. Pages 348-349 through 349. What this passage mainly illustrates is how thoroughly mercantilistic Keynes's assumptions had become, and how infirm and uncertain was his grasp of classical theory. Under an international gold standard and freedom of trade, the import of gold by Alfavia is no more at the expense of Betavia, which exported the gold, than the import of wheat by Betavia is at the expense of Alfavia, which exported the wheat. Just as an individual merchant in either country may wish to exchange his money for wheat, or vice versa, so one merchant in Alfavia may wish to exchange his wheat for money, and another merchant in Batavia may wish to exchange his money for Alfavian wheat. The transaction occurs because both parties to the transaction gain by it. It is at neither's expense. To say that Alfavia gains gold and that Batavia loses gold is merely a mercantilistic confusion. The transaction is between individual merchants. To assume that only the person who gets the money or gold gains, and that the person who gets goods for it must lose, is another puerile confusion. True, Free trade under an international gold standard involves a competitive pursuit of markets, 
So does domestic trade. An American and a German steel company may bid against each other for a construction contract in Italy, but other American and German steel companies may also bid against their respective compatriots, either for domestic or for foreign business. It is precisely mercantilism, medieval and modern, that turns what ought to be competition between individuals or firms into competition between nations. It is precisely domestic currency manipulations, devaluations, exchange controls, import quotas, bilateral trade treaties, and high tariffs that create international antagonisms. As for a competitive appetite for the precious metals, one may just as well speak of a competitive appetite for Swiss watches, or for German cameras, or for French wines, or for English dinnerware, or for American typewriters and automobiles. If I want to buy anything at all, at home and abroad, my bid must compete with that of others who want it. Was Keynes against competition itself? If so, what did he propose to substitute? His actual proposals merely tend to substitute nationalized and politicalized competition for interpersonal or interfirm competition. They would increase rather than reduce the pressure for beggar-my-neighbor policies and for trade wars and real wars. When by happy accident the new supplies of gold and silver were comparatively abundant, Keynes continues without break from the foregoing quotation, the struggle for the precious metals might be somewhat abated. Page 349. Here is another glaring fallacy. If the precious metals had been abundant, they would not have been precious. If abundance of the monetary metal is what is needed, then the logical remedy would be a copper standard, or, still better, an iron standard. In the remark just quoted, even the most elementary and basic economic principle, the relationship between value and quantity, is forgotten. Unless, of course, Keynes's unstated argument is that it would have been precisely necessary to have a constant cheapening of the precious metals to perpetuate a rise of prices, a constant inflation. Keynes goes on, adding bad controversial manners to bad logic. The part played by orthodox economists, whose common sense has been insufficient to check their faulty logic, has been disastrous to the latest act. Page 349. Here is a wholesale jibe at Adam Smith, Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, Bostier, Bastable, Marshall, and Taussig at everyone who has contributed anything to the extension or clarification of the theory of foreign trade, and made by a man whose own common sense was insufficient to check his illogic. One begins to suspect that Keynes's reputation, like Shaw's, rests in large part on sheer impudence. And what, in the place of the disastrous policies favored by the orthodox economist, does Keynes recommend? The opposite. 
It is the policy of an autonomous rate of interest, unimpeded by international preoccupations, and of a national investment program directed to an optimum level of domestic employment, which is twice blessed in the sense that it helps ourselves and our neighbors at the same time. And it is the simultaneous pursuit of these policies by all countries together, which is capable of restoring economic health and strength internationally, whether we measure it by the level. Level of domestic employment, or by the volume of international trade. Page 349. So this is what logic and common sense are supposed to look like. If each nation follows nationalistic policies, regardless of their effect on other nations, if each nation tries to maximize exports and to minimize or forbid imports, the volume of international trade will be greater than ever. If the bureaucrats seize our savings and forbid us to invest our own funds for fear that we would make a terrible mess of it, they will have the omniscience to know just when to invest it and just where, and just how much to put into each venture, and just what ventures will succeed and what will not. And we shall all live forever in a perfectly regulated economic paradise. For further particulars, see what happened to the British government investment program since the end of World War II, and the history of our own Reconstruction Finance Corporation. The religion of governmental controls. In sections four, five, and six of Chapter Twenty-three, in his further onslaught on the doctrine of free trade and a free market rate of interest, Keynes continues to abuse the classical economists and to praise, in contrast, the medievalists and the present-day currency cranks. The classical school created a cleavage, he contends, between the conclusions of economic theory and those of common sense. The extraordinary achievement of the classical theory was to overcome the beliefs of the natural man and at the same time to be wrong. Page three fifty. Such epigrams came easily to Keynes. They are the chief source, I suspect, of his reputation among literary men as a great economist. But it is astonishing how much more appropriate they are when applied to Keynes's own theories than to those against which they were directed. Certainly, there is a yawning gap between the conclusions of Keynesian theory and those of common sense. Keynes's own most extraordinary achievement was to overcome the beliefs of the natural man and, at the same time, to be wrong. For the natural man, unconfused by Keynesian economics, assumes in theory, if not in practice, that thrift is better than squandering. And Robinson Crusoe took it for granted that the propensity to work was more essential to his survival than the propensity to spend. I remember Bernard Law's mingled rage and perplexity in face of the economists, writes Keynes in approval of Bernard Law. Because they were denying what was obvious, page three fifty. That is, they seemed to Bernard Law to be denying what was obvious. Keynes might have done better to remember the remark by a character in Bernard Shaw's Saint Joan, when told of the theory of Pythagoras that the Earth is round and revolves around the sun. What an utter fool! Couldn't he use his eyes?
But Keynes goes gaily on. One recurs to the analogy between the sway of the classical school of economic theory and that of certain religions, pages 350 through 351. It was Keynes's own great contribution to exorcise the obvious, page 351, and to substitute the religion of spending, the religion of monetary inflation, the religion of governmental controls, with the government bureaucrats as the high priests, regulating the volume, direction, and nature of investment with infallible wisdom. There remains an allied but distinct matter where for centuries, indeed for several millenniums, enlightened opinion held for certain and obvious a doctrine which the classical school has repudiated as childish, but which deserves rehabilitation and honor. I mean the doctrine that the rate of interest is not self-adjusting at a level best suited to the social advantage, but constantly tends to rise too high, so that a wise government is concerned to curb it by statute and custom, and even by invoking the sanctions of the moral law. Page 351 here Keynes entirely misconceives or misstates the classical theory of interest rates, indeed the classical theory of prices generally. That theory does not contend that whatever is, is right. It does not say that today's prevailing interest rate arrived at in the free market is always the right one, best suited to the social advantage, any more than it asserts that the price of a commodity or of a share on the stock market is at any moment the right one. The classical theory merely asserts that, in the long run, the unhampered market, reflecting the composite desires, valuations, and actions of the individuals composing it, is the best method for determining prices or interest rates, and, while never infallible, is more calculated to bring optimum social advantage than any other method. Keynes's own tacit assumption is that he or his friends or bureaucrats who would be necessarily politically motivated by the desire to please the politically dominant groups and to stay in power would be far better judges of the right interest rate than lenders and borrowers acting in accordance with their own judgment. It is true, of course, that borrowers always consider interest rates too high, just as workers always think wages too low, producers always think prices too low, and consumers always think prices too high. But to appeal to these interested sentiments is political demagogy, not economics. Provisions against usury continues Keynes, are amongst the world's most ancient economic practices of which we have record. Page 351. So indeed they are. And so are all forms of government price control, from the Code of Hammurabi, circa 2000 BC, through the edicts of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, 245 to 313 AD, and through the dreadful Law of the Maximum in the French Revolution. But it is certainly strange to find the antiquity of a stupid economic prohibition put forward in 1936 as a serious argument for its revival. The destruction of the inducement to invest by an excessive liquidity preference, 
continues Keynes, was the outstanding evil, the prime impediment to the growth of wealth in the ancient and medieval worlds. Page 351. Here is another striking illustration of the way in which Keynes's thought was distorted by an inappropriate vocabulary of his own coining. What is excessive liquidity preference if it is not merely the absence of inducement to invest? Or just another name for that absence? The inducement to invest, by Keynes's definition, is the inducement to buy capital goods or other investment assets. But no one would seriously think of saying that the inducement to buy anything at all is destroyed by a preference not to buy. An insufficient inducement to invest, or a more than sufficient liquidity preference, are merely two ways of saying the same thing. The second is not an explanation of the first, it is merely a repetition of it in different words. Of course, if we think of the investor and the lender as two different persons, as they sometimes are, then the inducement to invest of the borrower must be at least a tiny bit higher than the reluctance to lend of the lender before a transaction can take place. The two must agree upon an equating interest rate, in short, that is mutually satisfactory. But the like is true of any transaction in any commodity whatever. The inducement to buy of the buyer of shares on the stock market or of anything else must be high enough for him to offer a price sufficient to overcome the reluctance to sell of the seller. Otherwise, there is no transaction. If the reluctance of any merchant to sell his goods at a certain price is greater than the inducement of customers to buy at that price, then the goods will not be sold until the seller either lowers his asking price or the buyers overcome their reluctance to pay the existing price. My reluctance to buy a share on the stock exchange at 75 may be overcome by my inducement to buy it at 70. My reluctance to sell it at 70 may be overcome by my inducement to sell it at 75. Buying and selling, lending and borrowing, in short, can all be explained either in terms of inducement or in terms of reluctance. My desire to buy a Buick may be greater or less than my reluctance to part with the necessary cash, but it does not constitute a new and revolutionary system of economics, or a more penetrating one, to explain the economic process in terms of reluctance rather than in terms of desire and inducement. The term liquidity preference does not explain the level of interest rates a whit better than the term egg preference would explain the price of eggs. And an explanation of the level of interest rate in terms of a reluctance to part with cash no more proves that interest rates are chronically too high than an explanation of the price of jewelry in terms of the holder's reluctance to part with the jewels would prove that jewelry is chronically priced too high. I would blush to expound the obvious and elementary at this length if it were not constantly denied for 400 pages in a book hailed by the dominant academic economist today as the greatest economic revelation of the 20th century. Keynes resumes, 
I now read these discussions of the medieval church as an honest intellectual effort to keep separate what the classical theory has inextricably confused together, namely the rate of interest and the marginal efficiency of capital. For it now seems clear that the disquisition of the schoolmen were directed against the elucidation of a formula which should allow the schedule of the marginal efficiency of capital to be high, whilst using rule and And custom and the moral law to keep down the rate of interest. Page 352. As Keynes merely returns here to one of the fallacies in his theory of interest, we need not repeat our analysis of it. It is simply necessary to point out that, while the rate of interest is of course not identical with the marginal efficiency of capital, or even caused by it, the two are intimately related. The relationship is analogous to that between price and marginal cost of production, though in the short run these may often vary from each other in either direction. There is always a long-run tendency for them to come to equality. To treat interest rates and the marginal efficiency of capital not only as separate but as disconnected and without reciprocal influence is to be blind to one of the central relationships of economic. Life, though time preference or the rate of time discount is primary, there is always a tendency for the rate of interest and the marginal yield of capital to come into equilibrium with each other. Keynes's belief that a special Deus ex machina or government bureaucrat is necessary to adjust the rate of interest to the marginal efficiency of capital goes with the belief that a government price controller is necessary to adjust prices to marginal production costs. What Keynes is proposing here is, in fact, government price fixing in a special field. A free market can be counted on to make the appropriate adjustments infinitely better. Canonization of the Cranks. Just as Keynes was astonished to find that his new opinions had been anticipated by the mercantilists of the 17th century, so he found that some of these opinions had also been anticipated by modern monetary cranks. But in the second case, as in the first, instead of taking this as a warning to re-examine his assumptions and deductions, he greeted the agreement as a confirmation of his new doctrines. And one of those whose reputation he tried to rehabilitate was the strange, unduly neglected prophet Silvio Giselle, page 353. Giselle had attracted some attention in the economic underworld by proposing a form of money that would automatically lose part of its value every month, like a rotting vegetable. His proposed method of achieving this was to require the holder of every currency note to have it stamped each month with stamps purchased at the post office in order to keep it good at its face value. This meant, in effect, that people would have to pay interest to the government for the privilege of holding their own money. Money held without being stamped would lose a fraction of its purchasing power every month. The purpose of this was to discourage people from saving, to make monetary saving practically impossible, to force everyone to spend his money for no matter what before it lost its value. 
anyone who is wicked enough to wish to put aside money against the contingency of illness in his family, for example, would thus be effectively frustrated. It is obvious that such money would never freely circulate except in a community of idiots, unless it were made legal tender and there was no choice but to accept it. There was, in principle, nothing original in the proposal. It did not differ essentially from the immemorial practice of coin-clipping, except that it would have occurred much more systematically and much more often. It combined nearly all the evils of ordinary paper inflation with some special disadvantages of its own. Its sole advantage as compared with ordinary paper money inflation is that the holder would clearly recognize and identify the government tax and know precisely what the incidence of that tax was on himself. But Keynes takes it all very seriously, regrets that once... Like other academic economists, I treated Giselle's profoundly original strivings as being no better than those of a crank, page 353, and suggests exactly how much the monthly stamp tax ought to be. It should be roughly equal to the excess of the money rate of interest apart from the stamps over the marginal efficiency of capital corresponding to a rate of new investment compatible with full employment. And this figure could be determined by trial and error, page 357. We need not linger over this particular absurdity. Even most Keynesians maintain an embarrassed silence about it. In this new wonderland into which Keynes has wandered, it was the classical economists who suddenly seemed stupid and lacking in common sense. And it was the works of the currency cranks, for Giselle was only one of scores with similar schemes, that were full of flashes of deep insight. I shall pause only to comment upon one sentence in the course of Keynes's discussion of Giselle's ideas. The prime necessity is to reduce the money rate of interest, and this, he pointed out, can be effected by causing money to incur carrying costs, just like other stocks of barren goods. Page 357. Thus, Keynes endorses the medieval idea that money is barren, but if money is barren, and if, on Keynes's own theory, interest is paid only for money itself, and never for the yield of what it will buy, why are borrowers so foolish as to agree to pay interest for money, and why are lenders not happy to find themselves able to lend money at any rate whatever above absolute zero? Why do people insist either on borrowing or on holding on to something that yields them nothing whatever? Such questions have already been answered, not only in our previous chapters on the rate of interest, but specifically by W. H. Hutt in his essay, The Yield from Money Held, in which he shows that money is as productive as all other assets and productive in exactly the same sense, that its marginal productive yield is constantly being equated with that of all other assets, and that its yield, like the yield of so many other assets, consists precisely in its availability at the moment when it is wanted or needed. 
The reader may consult Hutt's essay for the expansion of this argument. It is simply necessary to point out here that the failure of Keynes and his followers to recognize the real yield enjoyed by the holder of money assets is one of the most serious fallacies in their theory of interest. Mandeville, Malthus, and the Misers Section 7 of Keynes's Chapter 23 comprises a discussion of the anticipations by Bernard Mandeville, Thomas Malthus, and J. A. Hobson of Keynesian underconsumption theory. It opens, however, with a quotation from Professor E. Heckscher's Mercantilism on the 16th and 17th century, deep-rooted belief in the utility of luxury and the evil of thrift. Thrift, in fact, was regarded as the cause of unemployment, and for two reasons. In the first place, because real income was believed to diminish by the amount of money which did not enter into exchange, and secondly, because saving was believed to withdraw money from circulation. Surely the Keynesians ought to conspire to suppress this quotation. It so perfectly and nakedly sums up Keynes's central contribution to economic thought. Incidentally, though Keynes takes many quotations from Heckscher's two volumes and holds them up for admiration of mercantilist thought, there are some passages in Heckscher's history that are conspicuously not quoted by Keynes. I take one as an example, a passage concerning French mercantilism during the 17th and 18th centuries. It is estimated that the economic measures taken in this connection cost the lives of some 16,000 people, partly through executions and partly through armed affrays, without reckoning the unknown but certainly much larger number of people who were sent to the galleys or punished in other ways. On one occasion in Valence, 77 were sent to the galleys. One was set free and none were pardoned. But even this vigorous action did not help to attain the desired end. Printed calicoes spread more and more widely among all classes of the population, in France as everywhere else. Would Keynes have presented this as another example of the realism of mercantilist thought, which deserves rehabilitation and honor? Keynes next launches upon an extended series of quotations from Bernard Mandeville's Fable of the Bees, or Private Vices, Public Benefits, which first appeared in 1714. There is much wisdom in this remarkable poem, and much fallacy. Keynes likes the fallacious part, and quotes extensively from Mandeville's doctrine that prosperity is increased by expenditure and luxurious living, and reduced by thrift and prudence and saving. It is a little late to start answering this fallacy of Mandeville's. The classical economists did it quite adequately, and I shall excuse myself from repeating the task. Besides, we shall have a chance to answer the same doctrine as formulated much more guardedly by Malthus. 
For after praising Petty for his statement in 1662, justifying entertainments, magnificent shoes, triumphal arches, etc., on the ground that their costs flowed back into the pockets of brewers, bakers, tailors, and shoemakers (page 359), and after depreciating by contrast the penny wisdom of Gladstonian finance. Page 362, Keynes comes to the later phase of Malthus, where the notion of the insufficiency of effective demand takes a definite place as a scientific explanation of unemployment. Page 362, he quotes practically two full pages from Malthus, from which I shall take two passages, for it is instructive to distinguish what was right in Malthus's views from what was wrong. Adam Smith has stated that capitals are increased by parsimony, that every frugal man is a public benefactor, and that the increase of wealth depends upon the balance of produce above consumption. That these propositions are true to a great extent is perfectly unquestionable. It is important to notice that Malthus, unlike Mandeville and Keynes, did not ridicule thrift as such, but only what he considers an unreasonable degree of it. It is quite obvious, he continues, that they are not true to an indefinite extent, and that the principles of saving pushed to excess would destroy the motive to production. If every person were satisfied with the simplest food, the poorest clothing, and the meanest houses, it is certain that no other sort of food, clothing, and lodging would be in existence. In still another passage, which is notable for its failure to grasp the essential truth in Say's law, Malthus asks, "What would become of the demand for commodities if all consumption except bread and water were suspended for the next half year?" Now, the conclusions of Malthus just quoted are perfectly true, and even truisms, if we accept the quite unrealistic assumptions on which they are based. They tacitly assume that everyone has approximately the same income, and that everyone tries to produce more than he is interested in consuming. And they explicitly assume that every person is satisfied with the meanest house, etc., and that all consumption except bread and water is suspended. But it is very difficult even to imagine a community in which everybody, or even any substantial percentage of the population, would act in so irrational a manner as the Malthus hypothesis assumes. It is true that there are nations and communities that are poor because most of the people are satisfied with low living standards, but these communities are poor not because they try to save too much out of what they produce, but simply because they fail to produce. Their characteristic mark is not thrift, but laziness or improvidence. They live from day to day. They are racked periodically by disease and famine because they do not produce enough in order to save enough to carry them through years of bad crops or other contingencies. The people in a community who produce above the subsistence level are, in the overwhelming majority, precisely the people who want to live and spend above the subsistence level. 
a community in which everybody strove to work enough and earn enough to live at ten times or even twice the subsistence level, but refused to live above a subsistence level and insisted on saving the rest, would be a community possessed by a psychology so irrational and so difficult to imagine that the implications of the hypothesis are hardly worth working out in much detail. But even if we assume such a community with such a psychology, it would at least be possible to imagine it surviving successfully for the six months assumed in Malthus's rhetorical question. For it could invest its money in capital goods, and these capital goods industries would give the necessary employment to those laid off from employment on consumption goods, and the capital goods industries would even earn a profit, provided they were capital goods for which there was a real demand, and the community at the end of the six months gave up its Spartan frugality and used its income to buy the added consumption goods that the new capital equipment was capable of producing. Many a country has done something closely equivalent to this in wartime, when it lived on a subsistence level of consumption in order to support armies and produce implements of war. And if, moving from Malthus's violent hypothesis toward less unrealistic but still grossly oversimplified assumptions, we assume a community with only two income classes, in which the great mass, consisting of nine-tenths of the population, has a per capita subsistence income of X dollars, and spends it all as it goes along, while the remaining tenth of the population has a per capita income of 3x dollars, but consists entirely of misers who also spend only x dollars a year and save two-thirds of their income, or 2x dollars per capita, we have a community which, assuming that producers' expectations are based on this situation, would nonetheless progress and grow constantly richer. For the misers would invest their money in capital equipment. This would be used to increase production of consumer goods, to improve the quality of such goods, and to lower production costs. The real wages and income of both the masses and the misers would increase, and as the consumption of both the masses and the misers would increase by the hypothesis for the masses would always spend their whole incomes, and the rich misers would individually spend as much as, though not more than, the poor masses spent individually, consumption, production, and saving would all increase pari passu. Suppose we change the names of our classes and call the upper 10% with the 3x incomes the capitalists and the lower 90% with the x incomes the workers. Then it is the implied contention of the Mandevilles, Malthuses, and Keynes's that, assuming the workers had no surplus incomes to save, the capitalists would maximize prosperity by spending their full incomes, but produce depression by spending only as much as the workers spend on consumption, and saving and investing, or vainly looking for investment outlets for, the other two-thirds of their incomes. 
But nothing could be further from the truth, for if the capitalists spent all their income on luxurious living, there would be no capital investment. In that case, there would be no increased production and no lowering of production costs, hence no increase in the real wages or incomes of the workers and no increase in their consumption. But if the capitalists saved and invested the whole of the excess of their own incomes above the workers' incomes, then all this investment would necessarily go into capital equipment for increasing the production of mass consumption goods. The investment would not only produce jobs, which is the only consequence that Keynes seems to recognize, but it would increase the average productivity of all jobs. Hence, it would increase the production of consumption goods, lower production costs, increase average marginal labor productivity, and average real wages. In brief, even if we make the extreme assumption that the capitalists or upper-income class spend no more on consumption than the workers or lower-income class, we find no necessary insufficiency of investment outlets or investment opportunities. Production will be increased by the new capital equipment. Real costs will be lowered by it. Hence, prices will be lowered in the absence of inflation, and real wages will therefore increase to buy the additional product. We are assuming by our hypothesis that there is no sudden, uncaused, or irrational saving, but that workers increase their consumption in proportion to their increase in incomes, and that the capitalists consume at least as much as the workers. And directly contrary to the Mandeville Malthus Keynes thesis, this extreme thrift on the part of the capitalists would not only not retard economic progress, it would maximize it. It would particularly maximize the progress of the masses, because the capitalists per capita would not be taking any more out of the consumption cake per capita than the workers would. The surplus income of the capitalists, instead of going for ostentation and wasteful sybaritic living, would be going into investment to increase the production, reduce the cost, and improve the quality of consumption goods for the masses. Incidentally, envy and hatred, which play such a large role behind the schemes of revolutionary economic reformers, would be minimized under such behavior by the capitalists. For though there would be inequality of income, there would be equality of consumption. Ostentatious and sybaritic living on the part of the rich, accompanied by Veblen's conspicuous waste, which is recommended by implication by the Keynesians, is precisely the course most calculated to inflame envy and resentment and social discontent. This is the conclusion that we get even when we make the extreme assumption of two income classes in which the higher income class saves the whole of its per capita excess of income above that of the lower income class. We can generalize this assumption and bring it closer to reality, first by assuming and different income classes, instead of only two, with the poorest class having a mere subsistence per capita income of X, 
the next worse off class an income of x plus 2y, the third class from the bottom an income of x plus 4y, the fourth an income of x plus 6y, etc. And instead of assuming that those with incomes above the minimum save the whole excess, we can assume that they save only half of it and spend respectively x plus y, x plus 2y, x plus 3y, etc. Or we can state our assumptions regarding saving and spending in the form of a continuous function in which those with higher incomes not only save a continuously greater absolute amount than those with lower incomes, but a continuously greater percentage of their incomes. If there is no reason to fear an insufficiency of investment opportunities or outlets, even under our preceding extreme assumption, there is of course still less reason to fear such an insufficiency under these more moderate and realistic assumptions. The Contribution of Mill so, when we look at the matter closely, we find that Gladstone and Benjamin Franklin, with their penny wisdom, were perhaps better economists after all in every sense of the word than Petty with his entertainments, magnificent shoes, triumphal arches, etc., or Mandeville with his liveries and coaches and miraculous palaces, or Keynes with his propensity to consume. I do not wish to be understood as recommending Spartan living or parsimonious spending on the part of anybody who can afford better. On the contrary, I am inclined to agree with the conclusion of Malthus himself, which appears in the preface to his Principles of Political Economy, just after the passage quoted a few pages back. The two extremes, prodigality and frugality, are obvious, and it follows that there must be some intermediate point, though the resources of political economy may not be able to ascertain it, where, taking into consideration both the power to produce and the will to consume, the encouragement to the increase of wealth is the greatest. The exact optimum point could be achieved only on the assumption of perfect foreknowledge and wisdom on the part of investors, producers, and consumers. But it may be approximated by the exercise of common prudence, civilized wants and tastes, and good sense. In any case, rational thrift is still a virtue, saving is not an economic crime, and no one has a duty to be a spendthrift. What is certain is that the optimum relationship between saving and spending will never be determined by algebra, by academicians, or by government bureaucrats. Consumers, following their own inclinations, will make mistakes, but are likely to come incomparably closer, on the average, to the optimum balance. It is strange that in his sweeping historical review from the mercantilists Mandeville and Petty through Malthus to J. A. Hobson and Major Douglas, Keynes never mentions John Stuart Mill. Yet, in his Principles of Political Economy, Mill wrote a passage that reads like a direct refutation of Keynes's spending theories. It was a direct refutation of the immemorial fallacies that Keynes tried to revive. 
Mill set himself to establish the fundamental theorem that demand for commodities is not demand for labor. This theorem that to purchase produce is not to employ labor, that the demand for labor is constituted by the wages which precede the production and not by the demand which may exist for the commodities resulting from the production, is a proposition which greatly needs all the illustration it can receive. It is to common apprehension, a paradox, and even among political economists of reputation, I can hardly point to any, except Mr. Ricardo and Mr. Say, who have kept it constantly and steadily in view. Almost all others occasionally express themselves as if a person who buys commodities, the produce of labor, was an employer of labor, and created a demand for it as really, and in the same sense, as as if he had bought the labor itself directly by the payment of wages. It is no wonder that political economy advances slowly when such a question as this still remains open at its very threshold. I apprehend that if by demand for labor he meant the demand by which wages are raised, or the number of laborers and employment increased, demand for commodities does not constitute demand for labor. I conceive that a person who buys commodities and consumes them himself does no good to the laboring classes, that it is only by what he abstains from consuming and expends in direct payments to labor laborers in exchange for labor that he benefits the laboring classes or adds anything to the amount of their employment. Present-day economists who are aware of this passage assume that it is wholly invalidated because it was based on the wages fund theory rather than on the marginal productivity theory that has supplanted it. Such a sweeping rejection, however, goes much too far. It is, of course, true, notwithstanding Mill's argument, that $1,000 of saving and investment does not employ any more workers than $1,000 of consumer spending. But it does help to increase wage rates because it helps to increase marginal labor productivity, whereas direct consumer spending does nothing in the long run to increase wage rates because it does nothing to increase productivity. If there had been nothing but consumer spending plus mere capital replacement since the 17th century, wages would still be at the miserable levels of that period, and two-thirds to three-quarters of the present world population would not have come into existence. Mill, though much of his argument was mistaken, was right as against Keynes in at least emphasizing that the demand by which wages are raised is in the long run only investment demand, not consumer demand. But I come now to a far more important quotation from Mill, a set of passages amazing in their anticipation of and masterly answers to the Keynesian fallacies. Mill was able to anticipate and answer these because, as we have seen, most of them are very old, dating back to the 17th century and earlier. The book from which the following passages are taken is Mill's Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy. These essays were actually written in 1829 and 1830, 
when Mill was twenty-four, some eighteen years before the appearance of his Principles of Political Economy in 1848, but they were not published until 1844. Unlike the Principles, which has run into perhaps sixty editions, these essays are difficult to come by. In 1948, the London School of Economics included the work in its series of reprints of scarce works on political economy by making a photolithographic reproduction of the first edition in 1844. It is perhaps this lack of availability which accounts for the astonishing fact that in the whole of the Keynesian controversy of the last quarter century, Mill's remarkable essay of the influence of consumption on production has not been quoted, so far as my knowledge goes, by either the pro or the anti-Keynesians. To come upon it after long trudging in the Keynesian bog has something of the same excitement for the student of the new economics as biblical scholars must have felt when they discovered and deciphered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is the rediscovery of a long-buried treasure. Because this twenty-eight-page essay is so hard to come by, I shall quote from it at some length. But first, I should like to advert once more to the curious intellectual paralysis that seems to seize so many contemporary economists where the theories of Keynes are concerned. When they find gross errors, they still cannot conceive themselves that all the reputational smoke was without a justifying fire, and they try to find some original contribution that Keynes must have made. Even John H. Williams, after a very able critique of Keynes, in which he predicts that the wave of enthusiasm for the new economics will, in the longer perspective, seem to us extravagant, draws back, worries about his own bias, tries objectively to appraise Keynes's contribution, and concludes. Beyond question, it was very great. What he has given us, in particular, is a much stronger sense than we had before of the need for consumption analysis. Did we need this stronger sense? Let us listen to Mill in 1830. Among the mistakes of the pre-classical writers, which were most pernicious in their direct consequences, was the immense importance attached to consumption. The great end of legislation in matters of national wealth was to create consumers. This object, under the varying names of an extensive demand, a brisk circulation, a great expenditure of money, and sometimes totidem verbis, a large consumption, was conceived to be the great condition of prosperity. It is not necessary, in the present state of the science, to contest this doctrine in the most flagrantly absurd of its forms or of its applications. The utility of a large government expenditure for the purpose of encouraging industry is no longer maintained. In opposition to these palpable absurdities, it was triumphantly established by political economists that consumption never needs encouragement. The person who saves his income is no less a consumer than he who spends it. He consumes it in a different way. It supplies food and clothing to be consumed. 
tools and materials to be used by productive laborers. Consumption, therefore, already takes place to the greatest extent which the amount of production admits of. But of the two kinds of consumption, reproductive and unproductive, the former alone adds to the national wealth, the latter impairs it. What is consumed for mere enjoyment is gone. What is consumed for reproduction leaves commodities of equal value, commonly with the addition of a profit. The usual effect of the attempts of government to encourage consumption is merely to prevent saving, that is, to promote unproductive consumption at the expense of reproductive and diminish the national wealth by the very means which were intended to increase it. What a country wants to make it richer is never consumption but production. Where there is the latter, we may be sure that there is no want of the former. To produce implies that the producer desires to consume. Why else should he give himself useless labor? He may not wish to consume what he himself produces, but his motive for producing and selling is the desire to buy. Therefore, if the producers generally produce and sell more and more, they certainly also buy more and more. But then Mill, with characteristic conscientiousness, wants to make sure that no scattered particles of important truth are buried and lost in the ruins of exploded error. He proceeds, therefore, to examine the nature of the appearances which gave rise to the belief that a great demand, a rapid consumption, are a cause of national prosperity. After a few pages, Mill makes the admission, which according to the Keynesians no classical economist ever made, that at all times a very large proportion of capital may be lying idle. The annual produce of a country is never anything approaching in magnitude to what it might be if all the resources devoted to reproduction, if all the capital, in short, of the country were in full employment. This perpetual non-employment of a large proportion of capital, Mill continues, is the price we pay for the division of labor. The purchase is worth what it costs, but the price is considerable. After enlarging upon this for ten pages, Mill calls attention to the folly of the inflationary remedy. From what has been already said, it is obvious that periods of brisk demand are also the periods of greatest production. The national capital is never called into full employment but at those periods. This, however, is no reason for desiring such times. It is not desirable that the whole capital of the country should be in full employment, for the calculations of producers and traders being of necessity imperfect, there are always some commodities which are more or less in excess, as there are always some which are in deficiency. If, therefore, the whole truth were known, there would always be some classes of producers contracting, not extending, their operations. If all are endeavoring to extend them, it is a certain proof that some general delusion is afloat.
The commonest cause of such delusion is some general or very extensive rise of prices, whether caused by speculation or by the currency, which persuades all dealers that they are growing rich, and hence an increase of production really takes place during the progress of depreciation, as long as the existence of depreciation is not suspected. But when the delusion vanishes and the truth is disclosed, those whose commodities are relatively in excess must diminish their production or be ruined. And if during the high prices they have built mills and erected machinery, they will be likely to repent at leisure. The believers in Say's law and the classical school generally have been accused by the Keynesians of ignoring the very existence of business cycles. True, Mill did not have the phrase, but he points out how unreasonable hopes and unreasonable fears alternately rule with tyrannical sway over the minds of a majority of the mercantile public. General eagerness to buy and general reluctance to buy succeed one another in a manner more or less marked at brief intervals. Except during short periods of transition, there is almost always either great briskness of business or great stagnation. Either the principal producers of almost all the leading articles of industry have as many orders as they can possibly execute, or the dealers in almost all commodities have their warehouses full of unsold goods. In this last case, it is commonly said that there is a general superabundance, and as those economists who have contested the possibility of general superabundance would none of them deny the possibility or even the frequent occurrence of the phenomenon which we have just noticed, it would seem incumbent upon them to show that the expression to which they object is not applicable to a state of things in which all or most commodities remain unsold, in the same sense in which there is said to be a superabundance of any one commodity when it remains in the warehouses of dealers for want of a market. He proceeds then to the following exposition of Say's Law, though he never mentions it by that name. Whoever offers a commodity for sale desires to obtain a commodity in exchange for it, and is therefore a buyer by the mere fact of his being a seller. The sellers and the buyers, for all commodities taken together, must, by the metaphysical necessity of the case, be in exact equipoise to each other, and if there be more sellers than buyers of one thing, there must be more buyers than sellers for another. This argument is evidently founded on the supposition of a state of barter, and on that supposition it is perfectly incontestable. When two persons perform an act of barter, each of them is at once a seller and a buyer. He cannot sell without buying. Unless he chooses to buy some other person's commodity, he does not sell his own. If, however, we suppose that money is used, these propositions cease to be exactly true. Interchange by means of money is therefore 
as has been often observed, ultimately nothing but barter. But there is this difference, that in the case of barter, the selling and the buying are simultaneously confounded in one operation. You sell what you have, and you buy what you want, by one indivisible act, and you cannot do the one without doing the other. Now the effect of the employment of money, and even the utility of it, is that it enables this one act of interchange to be divided into two separate acts or operations, one of which may be performed now and the other a year hence, or whenever it shall be most convenient. Although he who sells really sells only to buy, he need not buy at the same moment when he sells, and he does not therefore necessarily add to the immediate demand for one commodity when he adds to the supply of another. The buying and selling being now separated, it may very well occur that there may be, at some given time, a very general inclination to sell with as little delay as possible, accompanied with an equally general inclination to defer all purchases as long as possible. There is always actually the case in those periods which are described as periods of general excess. And no one, after sufficient explanation, will contest the possibility of general excess in this sense of the word. The state of things which we have just described, and which is of no uncommon occurrence, amounts to it. For when there is a general anxiety to sell, and a general disinclination to buy, commodities of all kinds remain for a long time unsold, and those which find an immediate market do so at a very low price. There is stagnation to those who are not obliged to sell, and distress to those who are. In order to render the argument for the impossibility of an excess of all commodities applicable to the case in which a circulating medium is employed, money must itself be considered as a commodity. It must undoubtedly be admitted that there cannot be an excess of all other commodities and an excess of money at the same time. But those who have, at periods such as we have described, affirmed that there was an excess of all commodities never pretended that money was one of these commodities. They held that there was not an excess, but a deficiency of the circulating medium. What they called a general superabundance was not a superabundance of commodities relatively to commodities, but a superabundance of all commodities relative to money. Mill then discusses liquidity preference, once more without benefit of having the phrase. What it amounted to was that persons in general, at that particular time, from a general expectation of being called upon to meet sudden demands, liked better to possess money than any other commodity. Money, consequently, was in request, and all other commodities were in comparative disrepute. In extreme cases, money is collected in masses and hoarded. In the milder cases, people merely defer parting with their money or coming under any new engagements to part with it. But the result is that all commodities fall in price or become unsaleable.
It is, however, of the utmost importance to observe that excess of all commodities, in the only sense in which it is possible, means only a temporary fall in their value relatively to money. To suppose that the markets for all commodities could, in any other sense than this, be overstocked, involves the absurdity that commodities may fall in value relatively to themselves. Mill next turns to the Keynes-Hansen bogey of a mature economy, though he had perhaps the good fortune not to know that phrase. He treats it as a fallacy discredited at least a generation before 1830. The argument against the possibility of general overproduction is quite conclusive, so far as it applies to the doctrine that a country may accumulate capital too fast, that produce in general may, by increasing faster than the demand for it, reduce all producers to distress. This proposition, strange to say, was almost a received doctrine as lately as thirty years ago, and the merit of those who have exploded it is much greater than might be inferred from the extreme obviousness of its absurdity when it is stated in its native simplicity. It is true that if all the wants of all the inhabitants of a country were fully satisfied, no further capital could find useful employment, but in that case none would be accumulated. So long as there remain any persons not possessed, we do not say of substance, but one of the most refined luxuries, and who would work to possess them, there is employment for capital." Nothing can be more chimerical than the fear that the accumulation of capital should produce poverty and not wealth, or that it will ever take place too fast for its own end. Nothing is more true than that it is produce which constitutes the market for produce, and that every increase of production, if distributed without miscalculation among all kinds of produce in the proportion which private interest would dictate, creates or rather constitutes its own demand. This is the truth which the deniers of general overproduction have seized and enforced. And in a final paragraph, Mill sums up, The essentials of the doctrine are preserved when it is allowed that there cannot be permanent excess of production or of accumulation, though it be at the same time admitted that as there may be a temporary excess of any one article considered separately, so may there of commodities generally, not in consequence of overproduction, but of a want of commercial confidence. If Keynes and the Keynesians had known of this essay, and read and pondered it in time, we might have been spared the dreary and sterile economic revolution of the last quarter century. J. A. Hobson and Major Douglas Only a comparatively short discussion is now required on the ideas of J. A. Hobson, from whom Keynes next quotes extensively. Hobson fortunately states his theory so clearly that his errors are easily detected and answered. I hardly realized that in appearing to question the virtue of unlimited thrift, I had committed the unpardonable sin. Page 366. Of course, 
unlimited thrift, if words have any meaning, would mean that nobody would spend any part of his income at all, an adventure in race suicide which no sane man has ever recommended. In the problem of the optimum relationship of saving to spending, what we are discussing is ratios and quantities, and none of these are specified in any of the quotations from Hobson that Keynes presents. Hobson habitually attacks an undue exercise of the habit of saving, page 367. Any undue exercise of this habit, page 367, undue saving, page 368, and, of course, whatever is undue is condemned by the adjective itself. If by undue saving, Hobson means sudden, unusual, and unexpected saving, to which the previous volume or balance of production was unadjusted, then such saving is of course unsettling. But even here, we do not know whether this sudden saving is the real cause of the harm done, unless we know whether it is completely irrational and uncaused, or whether it is itself a natural or rational consequence of some preceding disturbing factor. In any case, it is clear that Hobson believes in the existence of general overproduction, page 367, and it is Say's law properly understood which tells us that general overproduction is impossible. What is possible is only unbalanced production, misdirected production, production of the wrong things. But we have now been over this point too often to need to elaborate upon it once again. This section 7 of chapter 23 might have been entitled by Keynes, Myself and Some Eminent Predecessors Who Have Never Understood Say's Law. Keynes closes with a few words on Major Douglas. Since the war, there has been a spate of heretical theories of underconsumption, of which those of Major Douglas are the most famous. Page 370. Of course, since the appearance of the general theory, the most famous heretical theory of underconsumption is Keynes's own. But Keynes goes on. The detail of Douglas's diagnosis, in particular the so-called A plus B theorem, includes much mere mystification, page 371. And is there no needless mystification in the Keynesian I plus C theorem, or in the S equals Y minus C theorem, or in the Z equals phi N theorem, or in the function of n equals k function of n2 theorem, etc., etc. Chapter 14. Keynes Lets Himself Go In his final chapter, Concluding Notes on the Social Philosophy, Towards Which the General Theory Might Lead, Keynes Really Lets Himself Go. Here he assumes that all his previous propositions have been proved, and draws his triumphant and sweeping conclusions. This chapter, therefore, is even more tightly packed with fallacies and unwarranted deductions than any of the others. 
but it has the advantage of stating its fallacies in relatively clear and untechnical language, and it will therefore give us the opportunity also of reviewing them in clearer and less technical language than heretofore. Inequalities of Income The outstanding faults of the economic society in which we live, Keynes begins, are its failure to provide for full employment and its arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes. Page 372 There are four chief things wrong with this statement. 1. The vagueness of Keynes's full employment concept, to which we shall return later for closer examination. 2. Prolonged mass unemployment is not the fault of our economic society, but of governmental interventions in labor-management relations, wage rates, and money and banking policy, the very kind of intervention that Keynes wished to increase. 3. The distribution of wealth and incomes is, in the main, neither arbitrary nor inequitable in a competitive free market system. As John Bates Clark showed so brilliantly in The Distribution of Wealth, 1899, free competition tends to give to labor what labor creates, to capitalists what capital creates, and to entrepreneurs what the coordinating function creates. Individual inequities are bound to occur, but they are not systematic. Capitalism itself tends constantly to reduce them by its rewards to production. If we are looking for really arbitrary and inequitable distribution, we can find it in the East, or in backward and underdeveloped countries, or in communist Russia and China, in short, in either pre-capitalistic or socialist societies. 4. It is even a misnomer in capitalist countries to call this process distribution. Income and wealth are not distributed, but produced, and in general go to those who produce them. But even if all this were not true, there is no reason to suppose that the Keynesian nostrums would remedy the situation. Keynes next goes on to praise the significant progress brought about by the progressive income tax and death duties, a progress that economists are coming increasingly to doubt. Up to the point where full employment prevails, he tells us, the growth of capital depends not at all on a low propensity to consume, but is, on the contrary, held back by it. Pages 372 to 373. An increase in the habitual propensity to consume will, in general, i.e., except in conditions of full employment, serve to increase at the same time the inducement to invest. Page 373. The growth of wealth, so far from being dependent on the abstinence of the rich, as is commonly supposed, is more likely to be impeded by it, 
One of the chief social justifications of great inequality of wealth is, therefore, removed. Page three seventy three. How marvelous is the Keynesian world! The more you spend, the more you save. The more you eat your cake, the more cake you have. The less you save, the more inducement you have to invest. But there is perhaps a flaw in this logic. Even Keynes has insisted that saving and investment must be equal. As you can only invest what you save, the less you save, the less you are able to invest, no matter how great the inducement to invest. Moreover, it is not excessive saving that creates unemployment, but excessive wage rates, wage rates that is above the marginal productivity point. But we have been over and over all this ground before. There follows a long paragraph in which Keynes concedes that there is social and psychological justification for significant inequalities of incomes and wealth, but not for such large disparities as exist today. Page three seventy four. It appears that there are valuable human activities which require the motive of money making, but much lower stakes will serve the purpose equally well, and the task of transmuting human nature must not be confused with the task of managing it. This paragraph is revelatory. It betrays the totalitarian touch. It shows Keynes in the role of father knows best. He and his friends know, just by personal judgment, exactly what rewards and penalties are necessary. The people are to be managed by the Keynesian elite. A man does not have a right to keep what he earns, but allowing him to keep some of it is a gracious privilege in which a government clique of omniscient Keynesians may indulge him, like allowing a child to have just a little candy. Just what, except expediency, prevented Keynes from announcing himself a complete socialist, I do not know. What he seemed to want was a government-managed economy that would imitate some of the features of capitalism. The euthanasia of the rentier. Keynes turns back next to his theory of the rate of interest. The justification for a moderately high rate of interest has been found hitherto in the necessity of providing a sufficient inducement to save, but we have shown that the extent of effective saving is necessarily determined by the scale of investment, and that the scale of investment is promoted by a low rate of interest. Thus, it is to our best advantage to reduce the rate of interest to that point relatively to the schedule of the marginal efficiency of capital at which there is full employment. There can be no doubt that this criterion will lead to a much lower rate of interest than has ruled hitherto. Page three seventy five. Now, many non-Keynesian economists are not sure that the inducement to save increases in direct proportion to the rate of interest. 
We need not go into the pros and cons of this argument, except to point out that a certain minimum interest rate is necessary to induce, if not saving, at least investment, which Keynes tells us is his main interest. Keynes persistently thinks of investment as merely what a borrowing entrepreneur puts into his own business. I am here using the term to mean also any loan that a man makes with his savings, the purchase of a bond, etc. When Keynes tells us that the scale of effective saving is necessarily determined by the scale of investment, he forgets that the primary causation is the other way round. Saving determines investment. Without saving, there is nothing to invest. Even on Keynes's own definitions, investment cannot come into being without equivalent savings. To say that the scale of investment is promoted by a low rate of interest is to look at the matter solely from the point of view of the borrower and to forget the point of view of the lender. Suppose we applied Keynes's dictums to buying and selling. We would then write something like this. Buying is not determined by purchasing power, but effective purchasing power is determined by the scale of buying, and the scale of buying is promoted by low prices. This would be immediately recognized as nonsense. Even a Keynesian might be expected to see that the scale of selling or of producing for sale is promoted by high prices, which give the highest inducement to produce. Of course, in practice, the maximum production, buying and selling, are achieved by the right equilibrium price, the price which does most to harmonize the desires and incentives of producers, sellers, buyers, and consumers, respectively. So it is with interest rates. The interest rate that promotes the maximum saving, lending, borrowing, and investment is neither the highest interest rate nor the lowest interest rate, but an equilibrium interest rate at which the greatest numbers of desires and incentives of both lenders and borrowers are reconciled. Keynes's theory of the interest rate, like his emphasis on the monetary income of consumers and on the propensity to consume, is purely a demand theory. Just as he seems to think in terms solely of the propensity to spend and buy, and not of the propensity to work or produce or sell, so he thinks solely of the incentive to borrow, and ignores the need of the incentive to save and to lend. When he takes account of the latter incentive, he does so only to denounce it as antisocial and wicked. How does Keynes know that there can be no doubt that a rate of interest fixed in accordance with the marginal efficiency of capital at which there is full employment will be a much lower rate of interest than has ruled hitherto? Apparently, because his personal feelings tell him so. 
I feel sure that the demand for capital is strictly limited in the sense that it would not be difficult to increase the stock of capital up to a point where its marginal efficiency had fallen to a very low figure. Where the return from capital instruments would have to cover little more than their exhaustion by wastage and obsolescence. Page three seventy five. In so far as there is any argument at all for the conclusion on page three seventy five, it seems to rest on the question-begging assumption that unemployment is the result of excessive interest rates rather than excessive wage rates. Keynes does not appear to understand even the main purpose of capital and capital goods. That purpose is not merely to increase output and to produce consumer goods that could not otherwise be produced, but to reduce costs of production. Why would anybody invest in capital goods if he got no net return worth speaking of? Let us take, for example, a house that costs twenty thousand dollars to build. One can understand that a man might build such a house to live in himself. One can understand that he might build it to rent out to someone else, provided, of course, that he got a good deal more rent than simply enough to cover exhaustion by wastage and obsolescence. But suppose he were asked instead to lend a mortgage for the full value of such a house to enable someone else to build it to rent out to still a third person. It is obvious that, in order to induce him to do this, the interest rate offered would have to be equal to the presumptive rent of the house minus the annual estimated depreciation. Compensation for the worry and trouble of management, the landlord function, and relative protection against the risks of vacancy and of real estate speculation. The mortgagee's return, in short, is intimately connected with the prospective return of the legal owner of the building. This is merely a special case of the constant close relationship between the rate of interest and the marginal yield of specific capital goods. If the intended mortgagee were not offered such a return, he would not lend the money. If the builder of the house were not allowed to charge a rent, making it worth while, he would not build houses, either with his own money or somebody else's. How then would Keynes force down interest rates and even the return to the entrepreneur, and still get his saving, investment, and production? What he really has in mind, apparently, is seizing the money through taxation and creating forced investment through the government. Does my assumption go too far? Then listen to this. Though this state of affairs, just about enough return to cover cost of capital replacement, would be quite compatible with some measures of individualism, yet it would mean the euthanasia of the rentier, and consequently the euthanasia of the cumulative oppressive power of the capitalist to exploit the scarcity value of capital. Pages three seventy-five through three seventy-six. 
for the light it throws on the heart of Keynes's message and on the popularity of his ideas among leftists, this sentence is one of the most revealing in the book. Notice how patronizingly individualism, i.e. individual liberty, is treated. Keynes would graciously allow some measure of it, but he insists on the euthanasia of the rentier. Euthanasia means painless death. That is, the death of the rentier would be painless to Keynes. There is an old proverb that if you want to hang a dog, you must first call him mad. If you want to knock a man down, you should first give him a bad name. So Keynes uses the French rentier as a smear word. The rentier is the terrible fellow who saves a little money and puts it in a savings bank, or he buys a bond of United States steel and uses his cumulative oppressive power as a capitalist to exploit the U.S. Steel Corporation. All this is demagogy and claptrap. It differs from the Marxist brand only in technical detail. Robbing the productive. Interest today, Keynes goes on, rewards no genuine sacrifice any more than does the rent of land. The owner of capital can obtain interest because capital is scarce, just as the owner of land can obtain rent because land is scarce. But whilst there may be intrinsic reasons for the scarcity of land, there can be no intrinsic reasons for the scarcity of capital. Even so, it will still be possible for a communal saving through the agency of the state to be maintained at a level which will allow the growth of capital up to the point where it ceases to be scarce. Page 376. How does Keynes know that interest rewards no genuine sacrifice? Certainly, savers in moderate circumstances are constantly making sacrifices of immediate gratifications in order to save for a home, for the education of their children, or against possible ill health. What does Keynes know about the individual sacrifices, abstentions, and choices of individual savers? And does the rent of land reward no genuine sacrifice? Doesn't Keynes know that the capital and rental value of most land in the civilized world today is in large part the result of the capital that has gone into the roads and other communications that lead to it, as well as the clearing, leveling, draining, irrigation, plowing, fertilization, and building that have been put into it, all at a capital cost? What does Keynes mean when he declares that there are no intrinsic reasons for the scarcity of capital? Isn't the greatest and sufficient intrinsic reason the fact that, in America, for example, there was no capital at all when we got here, and all of it had to be created by somebody? By some people's hard work and saving, even if some of them wouldn't have been admitted into the Bloomsbury circle? There is still scarcity of capital, simply and solely because not enough of it has been created by work and saving. 
Incidentally, people are not rewarded in economic life for sacrifice, but simply for producing something that somebody else wants enough to be willing to pay for. I don't pay the General Motors Corporation three thousand dollars to reward its sacrifice in producing an Oldsmobile. I pay it because I want the Oldsmobile. If a man turns out something that you or I don't want, we are not interested in how much sacrifice his product cost him. It is not up to us to reward him for producing something for which we can find no use. In Keynes's topsy-turvy economics, in which only genuine sacrifice is rewarded, we would pay nothing to an inventor, musical composer. Artist or author, unless he could prove that he didn't actually enjoy inventing, composing, painting, or writing. To say that the owner of capital or the owner of land exploits scarcity is merely an ominous way of saying that all economic value is scarcity value. A market price for anything, whatever, can be obtained only because that thing is relatively scarce, in the sense that it is not a free gift of nature. Keynes's economics of abundance for capital goods could be set down as a dream world if it were not for the final sentence from Keynes quoted above. There, he tacitly admits that savings and capital will not be forthcoming on the practically non-existent return that he proposes. But then, ah, the state steps in. The magical state seizes the capital through taxation and does its own investing. Only the long-run result of this, of course, would be to reduce production and to make real capital scarcer than ever. Keynes goes on. I see, therefore, the rentier aspect of capitalism as a transitional phase which will disappear when it has done its work. Page three seventy-six. This sentence implies the Hegelian-Marxian stage theory of history, except that nothing previous in the theory of Keynes explains what the work of the rentier aspect actually was. According to his theory, the rentier always demanded a rate of interest that was too high, and for some inscrutable reason was able to get it. As the rentier, in brief, according to Keynesian theory, never had any excuse for existing in the first place, he never did any work except to hold up economic progress and produce unemployment. And with the disappearance of its rentier aspect, Keynes goes on, much else in it besides will suffer a sea change. It will be, moreover, a great advantage of the order of events which I am advocating that the euthanasia of the rentier, of the functionless investor, will be nothing sudden, merely a gradual but prolonged continuance of what we have seen recently in Great Britain, and will need no revolution. 
page 376. This is all very reassuring. The rentier will be killed off quietly because he will be unable to offer any resistance, and Britain will enjoy that marvelous prosperity that followed her adoption of the Keynesian remedies. Although, after years of cheap money following the appearance of the general theory, a bank rate of 2% in 1937, 1948, 1950, etc., the Bank of England was finally forced to tighten up to a discount rate of 7% in September of 1957. But what about the functionless investor? Here, I think, Keynes's pen inadvertently slipped. The investor, by his previous definition, has hitherto been his hero, his entrepreneur, exploited by that real villain, the saver. Did not the investor serve a function by earning and saving enough to become an investor? Did he not serve another function by making a choice of which project or firm to invest in and which not to invest in? But Keynes is really waxing eloquent now, and we should not interrupt him by these trivial questions. He goes on, Thus we might aim in practice, there being nothing in this which is unattainable, at an increase in the volume of capital until it ceases to be scarce, so that the functionless investor will no longer receive a bonus, and at a scheme of direct taxation which allows the intelligence and determination and executive skill of the financier, the entrepreneur at hoc genus omni, who are certainly so fond of their craft that their labor could be obtained much cheaper than at present, to be harnessed to the service of the community on reasonable terms of reward. Pages 376 through 377. In reply, it may be pointed out that capital will cease to be scarce only when it ceases to have value, so that anybody will be willing to give it away. It will cease to have value only when it either costs nothing to produce, or when its application ceases to reduce the costs, including time, of production of anything, or when the consumer goods that it helps to turn out themselves cease to be scarce and to have value, all of which conditions are impossible. The application of capital increases technological progress, and technological progress itself makes old machines and materials obsolete at the expense of new machines and materials. So, capital, by aiding progress, automatically increases the need and value and scarcity of new capital for new applications. Keynes's scheme of direct taxation is a scheme to rob the productive in order to reward the unproductive. It tries to exploit the fact that certain entrepreneurs, like certain poets, musicians, artists, scientists, are fond of their craft. 
but the attempt to exploit these, to treat them like draft horses, to pay them just enough to keep them working, would have one flaw. Other entrepreneurs work primarily for the rewards in it, and when these are cut down below a sufficient inducement, they play golf or choose some other alternative, as the results of the expropriatory rates of the existing income tax are proving every day. It is obvious from Keynes's tone that he had an ill-concealed contempt, as befitted a member of the Bloomsbury Circle, for the business entrepreneur. Keynes concludes this section by writing: "It would remain for separate decision on what scale and by what means it is right and reasonable to call on the living generation to restrict their consumption so as to establish, in course of time, a state of full investment for their successors." Page 377. But people have already been deciding this question as individuals and voluntarily, and not by collective compulsion, except through progressive income and inheritance taxes and so-called state investment. Having rejected the voluntary solution, Keynes is forced to look for a solution through compulsion, such as that made by totalitarian governments. Incidentally, full investment, as we have seen, is a silly and meaningless phrase. It fails to recognize the illimitable improvements that are always possible in quality, and it is based on purely static assumptions. What becomes of full investment in a particular machine, for example, when a new machine or process is invented that makes the old one obsolete? The socialization of investment. And now Keynes has a few kind and condescending words to say about a free and voluntary economic system. But beware of Keynes when he brings gifts. In some other respects, he begins, the foregoing theory is moderately conservative in its implications. There are wide fields of activity which are unaffected. Pages 377 through 378. Of course, the state will have to increase the propensity to consume. I.e., discourage saving, and it must fix. I.e., lower the rate of interest, and there must be a somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment. But beyond this, no obvious case can be made out for a system of state socialism which would embrace most of the economic life of the community. Page three seventy-eight. It is hard to believe that Keynes is as naive as he pretends, and that he is not laughing up his sleeve. The rate of interest, the valuation of time and of all investments, is to be taken out of the market and put completely in the hands of the state. But Keynes ignores the complete interconnectedness of all prices. This especially includes the price of capital loans, any state tinkering with which must necessarily affect and distort 
all prices and price relationships throughout the economy. Through its socialized investment, moreover, the state would decide which firms or industries to expand and which to freeze or contract. Even though the state did not technically own the instruments of production, this would lead to a de facto socialism. Keynes continues. But if our central controls succeed in establishing an aggregate volume of output corresponding to full employment as nearly as practicable, the classical theory comes into its own again from this point onwards. Page 378. Let's see. The free market system, which is what Keynes means by the classical theory, is incapable, according to him, of properly fixing the volume of money and credit, or the proper rate of interest, or the right volume and direction of investment, or the right volume of output, or adequate employment. But outside of that, very little can be said against it. Yet Keynesians solemnly cite selected sentences of the sort I have just quoted in order to prove that Keynes was really a conservative, and aside from one or two minor reservations, a disciple of the classical economy. It is worth noting that though he talks constantly in this chapter, as in others, of full employment, he never mentions excessive wage rates as a possible cause of unemployment, or suggests any government interference with them. These are to be left, as before, to the labor union leaders, which are to continue to enjoy legal privileges and immunities denied to all other groups. If we suppose the volume of output to be given, Keynes continues, i.e., to be determined by forces outside the classical scheme of thought, then private self-interest will determine what, in particular, is produced, in what proportions the factors of production will be combined to produce it, and how the value of the final product will be distributed between them. Pages 378 through 379. This passage is an obvious self-contradiction. If the state determines how much will be invested, at what interest rate, and just where, it necessarily determines what, in particular, is produced and with what factors. Keynes's scheme would take all of this out of private hands. He merely refuses to recognize the implications of his own proposals. Keynes continues his patronizing attitude toward personal liberty. There will still remain a wide field for the exercise of private initiative and responsibility. Within this field, the traditional advantages of individualism will still hold good. Page 380. I suppose one example of this would be the progressive income tax, so warmly approved by Keynes, which in the United States at the time of writing rises to 91% on the highest brackets. 
but the individual is still allowed to retain and spend nine percent of any additional money he earns, if it is not taken by state taxes, as a wide field for the exercise of his private initiative. Let us stop for a moment. Keynes goes on to remind ourselves what these advantages are. They are partly advantages of efficiency, the advantages of decentralization, and of the play of self-interest. The advantage to efficiency of the decentralization of decisions and of individual responsibility is even greater, perhaps, than the nineteenth century supposed. And the reaction against the appeal to self-interest may have gone too far. Page three eighty. Well, after three hundred seventy-nine pages talking about all the alleged damage done by individual responsibility and self-interest, it seems a little late on the fourth page from the end to begin a retraction. All this is, of course, only another self-contradiction. Government control of the volume of saving, of interest rates, and of investment centralizes the key decisions, leaving only derivative and much less important decisions to individuals. But above all, Keynes continues, individualism, if it can be purged of its defects and its abuses, is the best safeguard of personal liberty, in the sense that, compared with any other system, it greatly widens the field for the exercise of personal choice. Page three eighty. This sententious declaration is mere tautology. Individualism not only safeguards personal liberty; it means personal liberty, and personal liberty means, of course, among other things, the freedom to exercise personal choice. The abuses and defects of which individualism is to be purged are, I presume, all the actions or decisions of which the bureaucrats happen to disapprove. Keynes then goes on to praise, in a patronizing manner, the variety of life which emerges from this extended field of personal choice. But this whole passage on page three hundred eighty, and the whole chapter, in fact, is a series of self-contradictions. In it, Keynes tries to get the best of both worlds. To insist on a government-controlled economy, and to call it individualism and freedom of enterprise. As to his praise of variety, why not competition and variety in interest rates, or competition and variety in investments? Why not the exercise of personal choice in making one's own investments with the money one has earned? Whilst, therefore, Keynes goes on, the enlargement of the functions of government would seem to a nineteenth-century publicist or to a contemporary American financier to be a terrific encroachment on individualism. I defend it, on the contrary, both as the only practicable means of avoiding the destruction of existing economic forms in their entirety. And as the condition of the successful functioning of individual initiative, page three eighty.
In other words, the way to preserve individualism is to reject it, and in a central field. For investment is a key decision in the operation of any economic system. And government investment is a form of socialism. Only confusion of thought or deliberate duplicity would deny this. For socialism, as any dictionary would tell the Keynesians, means the ownership and control of the means of production by the government. Under the system proposed by Keynes, the government would control all investment in the means of production and would own the part it had itself directly invested. It is, at best, mere muddle-headedness, therefore, to present the Keynesian nostrums as a free enterprise or individualistic alternative to socialism. There follows a paragraph in which Keynes declares that If effective demand is deficient, not only is the public scandal of wasted resources intolerable, but the individual enterpriser who seeks to bring these resources into action is operating with the odds loaded against him. The players as a whole will lose. Hitherto the increment of the world's wealth has fallen short of the aggregate of positive individual savings, and the difference has been made up by the losses of those whose courage and initiative have not been supplemented by exceptional skill or unusual good fortune. But if effective demand is adequate, average skill and average good fortune will be enough. Pages 380 through 381. There is not a sentence in this quotation that is not based on some wrong assumption. Keynes's concept of wasted resources, as W. H. Hutt has shown, will not stand critical examination. There is much less real waste in, frankly, recognizing past malinvestment and either scrapping it or allowing it to become periodically idle than in trying to conceal its existence by a continuing inflation or by throwing good resources after bad. There is also, as Hutt has shown, a great deal of pseudo-idleness, as in lawnmowers or phonographs or evening clothes which are used only occasionally and whose services consist in their availability. Keynes particularly forgets this important availability service when he refers to cash balances as hoarded money. Once again, net real profits, by concept and definition, can go at best under normal or static conditions only to the more foresighted, skillful, or fortunate half of all entrepreneurs. The average entrepreneur tends to make just enough profit to compensate for the price of his own services if he worked for somebody else. The entrepreneurs with less than average foresight, skill, or luck will find themselves with losses. Only the better than average will achieve real profits. This general situation is not improved by continuous inflation, but merely concealed.
The true situation is revealed again when allowance is made for the average lost purchasing power of money incomes received. Keynes offers no support whatever for his belief that the increment of the world's wealth has fallen short of the aggregate of positive individual savings. If this contention is true, it tends to show that the rate of interest, instead of being chronically too high, as Keynes never tires of repeating, has been chronically too low to compensate for risks. But the enormous increase in the world's wealth and the vast accumulation of capital, say in America alone, since the landing of the Pilgrims in 1620, hardly support his contention. The economic causes of war. Keynes now follows with a section in which he offers his nostrum as a remedy for removing the alleged economic causes of war. Strangely enough, he blames domestic laissez-faire and an international gold standard as the causes of the competitive struggle for markets, page 382, between nations. All this, of course, is the exact opposite of the truth. Under an international gold standard and freedom of trade, there was a competition between individuals or between firms for foreign and domestic business, but not between nations as such. Several American firms might bid against each other for a foreign contract, and if German firms were also bidding for it, they would be competing with each other as much as with the American firms. It is nationalism. It is the nonsensical concept of a balance of trade that does not take care of itself, but can only be obtained by government intervention. That causes the nationalistic struggle for markets. Keynes denounces international trade as of the time that he was writing as. A desperate expedient to maintain employment at home by forcing sales on foreign markets and restricting purchases, whereas under Keynesian economics, if nations can learn to provide themselves with full employment by their domestic policy, there need be no important economic forces calculated to set the interest of one country against that of its neighbors. Pages 382 through 383. None of this bears much relation to the truth. Under a system of laissez-faire, i.e., free trade at home and free trade abroad, and an international gold standard, individuals buy what they need wherever they can get it cheapest. They sell in the best market. They do not think nationalistically, and so far as the international gold standard is concerned, nations can stay on it only by keeping their interest rates and their obligations in terms of gold in equilibrium with those prevailing in the rest of the world.
It is precisely the Keynesian system, with its nationalistic fixing of interest rates, with its domestic inflationism and its tricky devaluations of national currencies, that turns the struggle for a favorable balance of trade and for foreign markets into an international struggle. And it is precisely because this system seeks to maintain. Full employment by domestic currency, interest rate, and investment tricks, by disregarding the imbalance of production so brought about, and by disregarding the loss from failure to take full advantage of the international division of labor, that it is also a far less efficient system. The power of ideas. We have been forced to be critical and sometimes harshly so about every chapter of Keynes's general theory and every leading proposition it contains. I am sorry for this for more reasons than one. The present book would have been much shorter. The author would have been saved many dreary hours of analysis, and the reader's time would also have been economized if there were fewer propositions and deductions in the general theory with which one was forced to disagree. So it is with special pleasure that I turn to the final paragraph of the general theory, for here at last we are able to say that Keynes has written something profoundly true and wise and memorably eloquent. The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. I am sure that the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas, not indeed immediately, but after a certain interval. For in the field of economic and political philosophy, there are not many who are influenced by new theories after they are twenty-five or thirty years of age, so that the ideas which civil servants and politicians and even agitators apply to current events are not likely to be the newest. But soon or late, it is ideas. Not vested interests, which are dangerous for good or evil, and what a crowning irony that the defunct economist and academic scribbler of a few years back, whose ideas are being applied by civil servants and politicians and agitators, should now be none other than John Maynard Keynes himself. Chapter twenty-five. Did Keynes recant? The classical medicine. 
There is a persistent belief among many non-Keynesians that Keynes recanted the doctrines expounded in the general theory toward the end of his life. The belief is based in part on reported conversations with friends, but the only public evidence I can think of is an article which appeared in the June 1946 edition of the Economic Journal called The Balance of Payments of the United States. Fifteen of its seventeen pages are concerned precisely with the subject of the title. They are a sympathetic study of the balance of payments of the United States and an attempt to forecast what it will be over the next five to ten years. We need not analyze either the arguments or the forecasts in these fifteen pages, which are either irrelevant to our present purpose or outdated. What concerns us are the final two pages. Here, Keynes declares, I find myself moved, not for the first time, to remind contemporary economists that the classical teaching embodied some permanent truths of great significance, which we are liable today to overlook because we associate them with other doctrines which we cannot now accept without much qualification. There are in these matters deep undercurrents at work, natural forces, one can call them, or even the invisible hand, which are operating towards equilibrium. If it were not so, we could not have got on even so well as we have for many decades past. This passage discloses a dawning suspicion on Keynes's part that the general theory may have gone too far, but it still fails to show a real understanding of the classical teaching, for there is nothing mysterious or occult about the forces which operate toward equilibrium. They are simply the result, in a system of freedom, of the efforts of producers to maximize their profits and the efforts of consumers to maximize their satisfactions. Adam Smith's invisible hand was a brilliant metaphor, but, rightly interpreted, nothing more than a metaphor. If the individual producer is free to try to maximize his profits, but legally and morally prohibited from doing so by force or fraud, then the only way that remains is for him to try to serve the wishes and needs of the consumer better than his competitors, by offering either better goods or the same goods at lower prices. The result of this free competition among producers and freedom of choice of consumers is to bring about a constant tendency toward equilibrium, and what applies to prices, producing, and consuming applies as well to wage rates and employment, and to interest rates, saving, and investing. Admittedly, if the classical medicine is to work, Keynes continues, it is essential that import tariffs and export subsidies should not progressively offset its influence. 
This surely looks like a withdrawal of his advocacy of mercantilist restrictions, economic nationalism, and management of the domestic price level at whatever cost to foreign trade. Praising the sincere and thoroughgoing proposals advanced on behalf of the United States, expressly directed towards creating a system which allows the classical medicine to do its work, Keynes concludes. It shows how much modernist stuff, gone wrong and turned sour and silly, is circulating in our system. Also, incongruously mixed, it seems, with age-old poisons, that we, the British, should have given so doubtful a welcome to this magnificent objective approach. This looks like an almost savage rejection of the doctrines of the general theory. But Keynes goes on. I must not be misunderstood. I do not suppose that the classical medicine will work by itself, or that we can depend on it. We need quicker and less painful aids of which exchange variation and overall import control are the most important. But in the long run, these expedients will work better, and we shall need them less, if the classical medicine is also at work. And if we reject the medicine from our systems altogether, we may just drift from expedient to expedient and never get really fit again. The great virtue of the Bretton Woods and Washington proposals, taken in conjunction, is that they marry the use of the necessary expedients to the wholesome long-run doctrine. It is for this reason that, speaking in the House of Lords, I exclaimed that here is an attempt to use what we have learnt from modern experience and modern analysis, not to defeat, but to implement the wisdom of Adam Smith. No one can be certain of anything in this age of flux and change. Decaying standards of life at a time when our command over the production of material satisfactions is the greatest ever, and a diminishing scope for individual decision and choice at a time when more than before we should be able to afford these satisfactions, are sufficient to indicate an underlying contradiction in every department of our economy. The underlying contradictions. The greatest underlying contradiction, however, as this passage so clearly reveals, was in Keynes's own thought. In 1946, as in 1936, he was still trying to reconcile irreconcilables. By the classical medicine, he could have only meant what Lionel Robbins has called the system of economic freedom, which Robbins defines as an urgent demand that hampering and antisocial impediments should be removed, and that the immense potential of free pioneering individual initiative. Should be released, but Keynes wanted both freedom and controls. He wanted free trade, and he wanted exchange variation and overall import control. That is, he wanted government currency manipulation, exchange control, import quotas, and prohibitions, which are the very negation of free trade and a free economy.
He deplored diminishing scope for individual decision and choice, at the same time as he continued to advocate all these restrictions on individual decision and choice, and failed explicitly to repudiate even his scheme for government control and socialization of investment. He wanted to implement the wisdom of Adam Smith, and yet to ignore the wisdom of Adam Smith. What, then, can we say about this recantation? The great difficulty with Keynes is how to tell his recantations from his contradictions. His contradictions consisted of incompatible views that he held simultaneously. His recantations consisted of incompatible views that he recognized as incompatible and hence held only successively. We saw in chapter 23 that he swung from free trade to hyper-protectionism, almost to autarky, and back again. In his 1946 article, he seems to wish a little of each. In his treatise on money, he gave definitions of saving and investment, which he explicitly repudiated in the general theory and then tacitly adopted anyway, because they were essential to his arguments. In The Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1919, he wrote one of the most eloquent warnings against inflation on record, only to advocate inflation in the general theory as the standard recourse to cure all unemployment, if not as a permanent way of life. And in the general theory itself, perhaps the central contention of which is that a cut in money wage rates cannot cure unemployment and will probably increase it, he blurts out a sentence like this. When we enter on a period of weakening effective demand, a sudden large reduction of money wages to a level so low that no one believes in its indefinite continuance would be the event most favorable to a strengthening of effective demand. Page 265 so the 1946 article in the Economic Journal might be set down as just one more contradiction. True, Keynes says some patronizing things in it in favor of the classical medicine, but he had already paid, as we have seen, many patronizing compliments to the classical system, even in the general theory. And yet... There is that phrase in the Economic Journal article about much modernist stuff gone wrong and turned sour and silly. What could this refer to except Keynesian theory itself, as interpreted and applied by his more zealous disciples? Was Keynes then, in the last years of his life, at least on the verge of recantation? I spoke at the beginning of this chapter of reported conversations with friends or other economists. I shall cite but one. In my last talk with Keynes, a few months before his death, it was clear that he had got far away from his euthanasia of the rentier. 
he complained that the easy money policy was being pushed too far, both in England and here, and emphasized interest as an element of income and its basic importance in the structure and functioning of private capitalism. He was amused by my remark that it was time to write another book because the all-out easy money policy was being preached in his name, and replied that he did think he ought to keep one jump ahead. The situation reminds one of that in the brothers Karamazov, in which Ivan Karamazov, who has preached a purely philosophical atheism and immoralism, everything is permissible, finds to his horror that his half brother Smerdyakov, taking him at his word, has murdered and robbed their father. I was only your instrument," says Smerdyakov. "Your faithful servant, and it was following your words I did it. All things are lawful. That was quite right. What you taught me, for if there's no everlasting God, there's no such thing as virtue, and there's no need of it. Keynes was a brilliant man. Much of what he wrote, he wrote with tongue in cheek, for the pleasure of paradox. To Apater le Bourgeois, in the spirit of Wilde, Shaw, and the Bloomsbury Circle, perhaps the whole of the general theory was intended as a huge, four-hundred-page joke, and Keynes was appalled to find disciples who took it all literally. Wit and satire are dangerous weapons when not used in the service of good sense. Chapter twenty-six. Full employment as the goal. The contribution of Keynes that his disciples most often insist upon as valid and permanent is the substitution of full employment as the goal of economic activity, rather than the maximum production of the classical economists. We shall ask here three main questions about full employment: one, is it definable? Two, is it attainable? Three, is it at all times and under all conditions even desirable? Is it definable? Let us begin with the question of definition. The man in the street has few misgivings about this. Full employment means that everybody has a job. It means jobs for all the people all the time. This naive conception runs into immediate difficulties. Early in 1958, for example, the population of the United States was about 173 million. But there were only some 62 million employed. Therefore, there must have been 111 million unemployed. Yet the official estimate was that there was at that time only 5 million unemployed. For the government statisticians, the unemployed consist only of those in the labor force who are not employed. But just how is the line drawn between the 67.5 million who are counted as part of the labor force and the 105.5 million who were not? 
Here is how the U.S. Bureau of the Census described how it decided. Monthly estimates of the population of working age, 14 years and over, showing the total number employed, the total number unemployed, and the number not in the labor force are obtained from a scientifically selected sample of about 35,000 interviewed households in 330 areas throughout the country. So the estimate of unemployed was in large part based on a sample of only one in every 1,400 households in the country. My purpose here, however, is not to emphasize the probable error in such estimates, but to call attention to the necessarily arbitrary and, in some cases, purely subjective standards by which unemployment is officially determined. The Bureau of the Census's explanation continues. The unemployed total includes all jobless who are looking for work. How is the number of such persons estimated? From replies to the interviews. What constitutes realistically looking for work? The interviewers must rely in large part upon the realism of the replies. The labor force is not even a constant percentage of the total non-institutional population. In July of 1957, it was 60.6%, but in December, only 58.1%. Some paradoxical results emerge. The monthly report for March of 1958, for example, opened as follows. Employment rose by 300,000 between February and March, while unemployment was unchanged. How could that happen? The layman would naturally expect that if employment rose 300,000 in March, unemployment would have dropped that much. The government statistician's answer is that the labor force increased by that much. The labor force increases partly by census estimates of the population reaching working age, etc., but also partly by changes in people's decisions. Suppose a man has a good job with a wife at home and a son and daughter in college. He loses his job whereupon not only he, but his wife, his son, and his daughter start looking for work. Because one person has lost his job, four persons are now unemployed. So unemployment goes up faster than employment goes down. Let's turn now to the explanations of the Department of Labor. Effective January 1957, persons on layoff with definite instructions to return to work within 30 days of layoff and persons waiting to start new wage and salary jobs within the following 30 days are classified as unemployed. Such persons had previously been classified as employed. The combined total of the groups changing classification has averaged about 200,000 to 300,000 a month in recent years. 
So the unemployed increased by about a quarter of a million simply by a change of definition. We get into the same kind of problems and arbitrary decisions when we come to the matter of working hours. Obviously, there cannot be jobs for all the people all the time. We must deduct time for eating, sleeping, rest, and leisure. But how much time? It is customary to think of men being partly unemployed when they are laid off for two working days a week. But obviously, they are as much unemployed if they work every day for correspondingly reduced hours. In the United States today, the standard full working week is 40 hours, or five eight-hour days. This is shorter than the standard working week used to be, and in future it may be shorter still. Obviously, the length of the working week that constitutes full employment is also a matter of arbitrary and conventional definition. Let us see whether we can get some help from the academic economists, and first of all, of course, Keynes. In the general theory, Keynes gives us two definitions, neither of which seems to have much relation to the other. On page 15, he gives an involved definition of involuntary unemployment, which, as I have already tried to show, page 30 is invalid. From this, he postulates a state of affairs in the absence of involuntary unemployment. This state of affairs we shall describe as full employment, both frictional and voluntary unemployment being consistent with full employment thus defined. Page 16. In other words, full employment is a state in which there can be both frictional and voluntary unemployment. Full employment is not full. Let's start again. This time with the definition on page 303. We have full employment when output has risen to a level at which the marginal return from a representative unit of the factors of production has fallen to the minimum figure at which a quantity of the factors sufficient to produce this output is available. I confess, I find it difficult to follow this jabberwocky, but I assume it implies that some sort of equilibrium has been reached. One is tempted to ask irreverently, does this mean that Uncle Oscar has a job? Let us turn to A.C. Pigot. Professor Pigot is aware of some of the difficulties we encounter when we try to define unemployment. A man is only unemployed when he is both not employed and also desires to be employed. Moreover, the notion of desiring to be employed must be interpreted in relation to established facts as regards 1. hours of work per day, 2. rates of wage, and 3. a man's state of health. This definition reveals that many subjective and arbitrary elements enter into the concept of unemployment.
But we shall see presently that there are many more difficulties than even Pigot's definition allows for. After considerable discussion, Pigot ends up with the conclusion that the quantity of unemployment prevailing at any time is equal to the number of would-be wage earners minus the quantity of labor demanded plus the number of unfilled vacancies. It is important to notice here that the number of would-be wage earners is not only largely a subjective rather than an objective quantity, but that the quantity of labor demanded and the number of unfilled vacancies are also largely subjective rather than objective, because they depend on the changing intentions of employers. If I could get a man to mow my lawn at a certain hourly rate, there would be an unfilled vacancy at that rate, but if the professional gardeners available all demand more, I may decide either to mow my lawn myself or to let it grow. This principle applies throughout history. Whether there are unfilled vacancies in a given firm may depend not only on the wage rate at which the vacancies could be filled, but whether employees with certain special qualities could be obtained. In another place, Pigot writes, A contrast is often drawn between situations in which there are more men available for jobs than jobs available for men, and situations in which there are more jobs than men. In the former class of situation, we have less than full employment, that is, unemployment. In the latter, more than full employment, that is, overfull, or more briefly, Overemployment. All this looks extremely simple, but the difficulty of statistical quantification or deciding precisely what the numerical relationship is of men available to jobs available is precisely the difficulty of defining not only what is meant by men available, but what is meant by a job, particularly when it is unfilled. Let us try Sir William Beveridge. In his Full Employment in a Free Society, he defines full employment in his opening pages as having always more vacant jobs than unemployed men. The labor market should always be a seller's market rather than a buyer's market. But this is obviously defining full employment as overemployment. Incidentally, Sir William's demand that there must always be more vacant jobs than unemployed men is a demand that labor should always be underpaid. For this condition could only exist if the marginal product of labor were higher than its wage rate, and labor, though fully employed, would therefore be getting less than its full potential income. One of the most realistic discussions of the difficulties in the concept of full employment is that of Edwin G. Norse, formerly chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisers. 
commenting upon the Declaration of Policy in the American Employment Act of 1946, he writes, "The phrase." Those able, willing, and seeking to work does not define a labor force for whose optimum utilization the federal government can, in good economic conscience, pledge itself to utilize all its plants, functions, and resources. In the absence of objective criteria, the word "able" becomes practically meaningless. Whether a given person is, in a commercial or industrial sense, able to work is a decidedly relative matter. Able to work steadily or only intermittently. At the kinds of work for which demand presently exists, only with other skills or without any particular skill, aptitude, or even teachability. Able to work as determined by a doctor's certificate or by a foreman's report, under standard shop or office conditions, or only with special facilities or treatment. Equally rich in ambiguity is the companion term "willing." It was inserted as a gesture of reassurance to those who feared the camel of authoritarianism might be getting his nose under the tent of free enterprise. But does it mean willing to work at such jobs as are available, or only at the job of one's dreams? Willing to work on a time schedule dictated by employers' needs or by workers' convenience? Seeking is of necessity the criterion relied on by the Census Bureau in giving us a monthly estimate of involuntary unemployment, but wanting would be a more apt term for our purpose, since it is a commonplace in the experience of all who have dealt with the unemployed to find not a few persons who want work, may even need it desperately, and who yet are not actively seeking a job because they have become convinced that the search is hopeless. The plain fact. Is that the size of our labor force is statistically determinate only within the limits of quite categorical definitions. When we speak of full employment, therefore, we would do better to use the term not as the Keynesian zealots use it, and not with any effort at an unattainable mathematical precision, but in a loose, common-sense way, to mean merely the absence of substantial or abnormal unemployment. If it be objected that this is not, in fact, a definition of full employment, and it is certainly not brimful employment, then I suggest that the term might be dropped entirely and the term optimum employment used instead. This would have, among other advantages, that of reminding the user as well as his audience that employment is rather a means than an end. And that its optimum size is relative to other conditions or goals. Is it attainable? Is full employment attainable? Here, even those who favor the goal begin to waver. Alvin Hansen, in his definition of full employment in Economic Policy and Full Employment, declares that. 
In an economy as large as that of the United States, it is probable that at full employment there would be at any one time between two and three million temporarily unemployed. About 4.5% of the civilian labor force of 1945 through 47. Paul Douglas, commenting on Beveridge's use of a 3% margin for seasonal and transitional unemployment, declared that such a criterion would be fatal in the United States. To use deficit financing to drive unemployment down below six percent is very dangerous. It will tend to do far more harm through inflation than the good it will do by absorbing those who are unemployed from seasonal and transitional causes. Is it unconditionally desirable? So when full employment is seriously discussed, it turns out to be less than full employment, and the desirability of full employment at whatever cost is gravely questioned. Lionel Robbins, quoting the Beveridge definition of full employment as having always more vacant jobs than unemployed men, points out that. A state of affairs in which, at current rates of wages, the demand for labor is continually greater than the supply, must be a state of affairs in which, in the absence of special restraints, the level of wage rates and hence the level of prices is tending continually to rise. He goes on to point out that even a full employment policy that tried to guarantee a mere equality of jobs and applicants would have to guarantee the trade unions that whatever wage rates they succeeded in getting, unemployment would not be permitted to emerge. Professor Robbins concludes that Beveridgean full employment tends to inflation. Reduced adaptability, external disequilibrium, and a most drastic curtailment of individual liberty. Edwin Norse, in the article from which I have previously quoted, declares that ideally full employment would be such as promotes continuous maximization of production and real purchasing power for the people, but. This definition recognizes that full employment is desirable not as an end in itself, but only as a means to much broader ends. Even the maximization of production must be understood not in the sense of the mere piling up of physical things, but in the sense of the maximization of consumer satisfactions, and this includes also, for example, the production or consumption of more leisure at the cost of less desired physical things. If we are talking not of unavoidable means but of desired ends, then we must recognize that the economic objective of mankind is not more work but less. I hope I may be forgiven for quoting what I have written in another place. The economic goal of any nation, as of any individual, is to get the greatest results with the least effort.
The whole economic progress of mankind has consisted in getting more production with the same labor. It is for this reason that men began putting burdens on the backs of mules instead of on their own, that they went on to invent the wheel and the wagon, the railroad and the motor truck. It is for this reason that men use their ingenuity to develop a hundred thousand labor-saving inventions. All this is so elementary that one would blush to state it if it were not being constantly forgotten by those who coin and circulate the new slogans. Translated into national terms, the first principle means that our real objective is to maximize production. In doing this, full employment, that is, the absence of involuntary idleness, becomes a necessary by-product. But production is the end, employment merely the means. We cannot continuously have the fullest production without full employment. But we can very easily have full employment without full production. Primitive tribes are naked and wretchedly fed and housed, but they do not suffer from unemployment. China and India are incomparably poorer than ourselves, but the main trouble from which they suffer is primitive production methods, which are both a cause and a consequence of a shortage of capital, and not unemployment. Nothing is easier to achieve than full employment, once it is divorced from the goal of full production and taken as an end in itself. Hitler provided full employment with a huge armament program. The war provided full employment for every nation involved. The slave labor in Russia had full employment. Prisons and chain gangs have full employment. Coercion can always provide full employment. The progress of civilization has meant the reduction of employment, not its increase. It is because we have become increasingly wealthy as a nation that we have been able virtually to eliminate child labor, to remove the necessity of work for many of the aged, and to make it unnecessary for millions of women to take jobs. Chapter 27 The National Income Approach No analysis of Keynesian economics would be complete without at least some discussion of what is variously called aggregative economics, macroeconomics, and the national income approach. Many of his disciples are under the impression that it was Keynes who created the national income concept. This is pure fantasy. Efforts to calculate the national income have a long history. Though Keynes does have a great deal to say about aggregative economics, which we have already analyzed, his discussion of the national income in the general theory is confined, in fact, to two or three pages, which mainly refer to earlier studies by A.C. Pigot, Colin Clark, and Simon Kuznets.
Yet the national income approach owes at least part of its present vogue to Keynesian ways of thinking, and therefore a few words may properly be said about it here. A thorough discussion would call for a volume in itself, but I shall attempt no more than a few sketchy comments. Is national income determinate? The first thing to be emphasized about the national income is that it is an arbitrary and, from the standpoint of scientific precision, an indeterminate figure. The ablest students of the subject have recognized this. I need merely refer to the fine pioneering study of Simon Kuznets. Kuznets devotes his entire first chapter of fifty-seven pages to a discussion of the problems embedded in the very concept of national income. He begins. The statistician who supposes that he can make a purely objective estimate of national income, not influenced by preconceptions concerning the facts, is deluding himself. For whenever he includes one item or excludes another, he is implicitly accepting some standard of judgment, his own or that of the compiler of the data. There is no escaping this subjective element. Kuznets goes on to show that estimates of the national income necessarily involve legal and moral considerations. Should we include the compensation of robbers, murderers, drug peddlers, and smugglers? And how shall we draw a line between economic activity and economic goods on the one hand, and active life in general and its stream of satisfactions on the other? Should washing, shaving, and playing for amusement on the piano be treated as economic activity? When judged by the attributes of satisfaction yielding scarcity and disposability, they do not differ from the same activities carried on for money as services to other people, nursing, barbering, and giving concerts. And yet Kuznets decides to include only items that are dealt in on the market. This, of course, excludes all do-it-yourself activities, which in total are probably enormous. It excludes all the products of the family economy, including all the activities of housewives. So we get to such paradoxes as these: when a man marries his cook, the value of her work disappears from the national income accounts. When an opera singer sings professionally, she is considered as adding the equivalent of her salary to the national income. When she sings for charity or for friends, it doesn't count. How are we to prevent double counting at a hundred points? If we count the income of doctors and dentists, should we or should we not deduct it from the income of patients? What is it that we are trying to measure anyway? What is the difference between economic activity and active life in general?
How, except by arbitrary value judgments, do we distinguish between productive and unproductive activities? Are we trying to measure national income produced, national income paid out, national income spent, or national income consumed? No doubt today most laymen and a large number of statisticians and economists assume that all these problems must have been satisfactorily solved because they read daily in their newspapers official figures showing exactly what the national income, personal income, disposable personal income, and above all, the gross national product, or GNP, were not only in past periods, but at what annual rate they are currently running. And these figures are presented with great precision, with decimal points. Few laymen are aware that these figures are made up, not of definite items which can be lined up and counted, but in large part of estimates subject to error. Let us take a few quite recent illustrations. The President's annual economic report of January 1958 boasted in its opening paragraph that the nation's GNP, or output of goods and services, in 1957 totaled $434 billion, 5% larger than in the preceding year. Only later in the report were we explicitly told that four-fifths of this increase was accounted for by rising prices, and that, therefore, in physical terms, the increase was only about 1%. In July of 1958, however, the national income estimates received one of their periodic revisions, and the Department of Commerce statisticians decided that our GNP in 1957 was not $434 billion, but $440 billion, and that our 1956 GNP was not $415 billion, but $419 billion. Yet, in 1957 prices, we were informed, our 1956 GNP was $435 billion. This brings us to one of the great problems in estimating national income. It is measured in a dollar which has itself no fixed value. In a period of inflation, all values are falsified. Today, the most frequently cited overall figure is not that of national income, but of gross national product, or GNP. I shall, therefore, use this for purposes of illustration. For 1939, the GNP was estimated at $91.1 billion. For 1957, it was estimated at $440.3 billion. Here is an apparent quadrupling, or better, of the GNP. But when the government statisticians restate the figures in constant dollars, specifically in 1954 dollars, they find that the GNP in 1939 has to be raised to $189.3 billion, and that the 1957 GNP has to be lowered to $407 billion. 
In other words, real GNP did not quadruple, but only about doubled in the 18-year period. The government statisticians get this result by dividing actual dollar amounts by an index number of prices for each year. They print, in fact, a separate table of implicit price deflators for the gross national product figures for each year based on an index number of 100 for 1954. The price deflator for 1939 on this basis is 48.1, and for 1957 is 108.2. If we take the GNP in 1939 at the prices that prevailed in that year, it comes, as we have seen, to $91.1 billion. But if we translate 1957 national income into 1939 prices, we get, instead of $440.3 billion, only $195.7 billion for 1957. This does not look nearly as impressive. If, again, we divide these figures by the population, we find a much lower rate of per capita growth than we are at all likely to gather from the crude overall figures. But though inflation and the changing value of the dollar make comparative overall national income figures quite misleading, is it, in fact, possible to correct the comparison by applying implicit price deflators? Only approximately, never accurately. As Kuznets and every other serious student of index numbers has pointed out, goods never remain the same for two years in succession, either in relative quantities or in comparative quality, and no index number can be completely scientific. There is one further factor that distorts and falsifies comparative national income figures. It is a factor I do not recall ever having seen discussed in connection with these figures. Yet it goes to the heart of the whole problem of measurability. Larger crops often have a smaller total dollar value than smaller crops, hence crop restriction schemes. But this merely illustrates a wider principle. Economists have pointed out since the time of Adam Smith that it is not value in use, but scarcity that determines value in exchange or money price. Water is an indispensable commodity that ordinarily commands no price at all. If more and more things became plentiful, except dollars, the national income, as measured in dollars, might begin to fall. If we could imagine a situation in which everything we could wish for was in as adequate supply as air and water, we might have no monetary national income at all. When one seeks to be clear about basic principles, it is never a bad idea, in spite of the ridicule that has been heaped upon it since the days of Karl Marx, to go back to Crusoe economics. 
Suppose, then, we begin with a community of just two persons, one of whom raises beans, say, one thousand pounds, and the other of whom raises potatoes, also one thousand pounds. This is their total wealth. The total wealth, or, if we wish, income of the community, is thus one thousand pounds of beans plus one thousand pounds of potatoes. But some one may wish to know which is the wealthier, Ben, who raises beans, or Peter, who raises potatoes. And what is the total wealth, or annual income, of the community expressed in terms of some common measure? Suppose Ben and Peter exchange their beans and potatoes at a ratio of a pound for a pound, to such an extent as to bring the relative marginal utilities of each to both of them into equilibrium. And suppose we elect to regard the potatoes as the medium of exchange and the money of account. Then the total income of the community is obviously two thousand pounds of potatoes, made up of one thousand pounds of potatoes and one thousand pounds of beans a year. But now certain paradoxical results appear. Suppose Peter doubles the amount of potatoes he grows, while Ben raises only the same amount of beans. Then the income of the community has risen, in real terms, to two thousand pounds of potatoes plus one thousand pounds of beans. We might be tempted to conclude that, in terms of the common standard of value, the income of the community was now three thousand pounds of potatoes. But because potatoes were now twice as plentiful and beans were unchanged in supply, Ben might demand, and Peter might be willing to pay, two pounds of potatoes for every pound of beans. But this would mean that the supply of beans was twice as valuable as before. Therefore, the total income of the community, as expressed in potatoes, would not be three thousand pounds of potatoes, but four thousand. Suppose, on the other hand, it was the supply of beans that had doubled, and Peter was able to demand and get two pounds of beans for every pound of potatoes. Then the income of the community, measured in pounds of potatoes, would not be three thousand pounds, but only two thousand. So our national income figure, expressed in a common medium of exchange or money of account, does not express any absolute total at all, but merely an internal relationship of marginal values times quantities. We could go on to illustrate this by a more complex model, assuming, say, a hundred different commodities, one of which would be gold, and assuming that a certain weight of gold, a dollar or one thirty-fifth of an ounce, was the medium of exchange and the money of account.
It would then be easy to show that an increase in the other 99 commodities would by no means mean a proportionate increase in the national income as measured in dollars, and yet that a doubling of the amount of dollars alone might double the national income as expressed in dollars. Nor would it be possible to correct for these paradoxical results, except in an inaccurate and untrustworthy fashion, by using implicit price deflators or inflators. And if the real problem of translating money value income into real or heterogeneous physical income is insoluble, still more so is the problem of translating either into psychic or enjoyment income. Hence, the impossibility of a scientific comparison of the income of Russia and the United States. In brief, national income estimates have a very limited value, a far more modest value than is now commonly supposed. They might have some value in comparing the national incomes of two different countries, if the figures in both countries were compiled by the same methods and largely arbitrary or conventional standards, if both countries had the same monetary standard, say gold, and if complete freedom of currency convertibility and of trade prevailed. Such comparisons have little value when currency ratios are fixed by government UKs or exchange control rather than by free markets or free convertibility into a common commodity. Its dangers for policy. It is impossible in some to arrive at a precise scientific objective or absolute measurement of the national income in terms of dollars. But the assumption that we can do so has led to dangerous policies and threatens to lead to even more dangerous policies. Policy implications, in fact, are already found in the national income approach. For this embodies an attempt to deal with economic problems starting from an arbitrarily constructed whole, from a collective, and not from acting individuals. This macroeconomic, as differentiated from the microeconomic approach, raises first of all the question, why is the nation considered the collective to be chosen and not the state, state of New York? the municipality, city of New York, the borough, Manhattan, or, on the other side, the continent, America, or the whole world? The chief answer to this question is that the choice of the collective is determined mainly by political considerations. Many of our American progressives aim at an equalization of incomes within the United States, but not at a world equalization. This political tendency explains also why these people are always talking about the distribution of the national income and not about the contribution of the various individuals and groups of individuals to its coming into existence. Logically, the contribution problem ought to be considered first. 
Much of the national income discussion is dominated by the Marxian thesis, according to which goods are socially produced and afterwards individually appropriated. I have said that though the government compiles quarterly estimates both of gross national product and of national income, it is the former figure that is much more frequently cited. This is partly because it appears earlier, as a private firm knows its gross income before it knows its net income, and partly because it is the larger figure. National planners love big figures. We are constantly being told that we, the government, can easily afford to spend or give away, say to foreign governments, this or that huge sum because it is, after all, only such and such a percentage of our gross national product. No one would dream of considering such reasoning valid as applied to a private firm. The average industrial company's net profit, for example, amounts 1956 through 1957 to only five or six cents on every dollar of sales. There are great deductions to be made from gross national product before we can estimate national income. For example, in 1957, gross national product was estimated at $440.3 billion, whereas national income was estimated at only $364 billion. In arriving at the latter figure, some $34 billion was deducted for depreciation charges and some $38 billion for indirect business taxes. But depreciation charges are the result of estimates. The right amount of depreciation is never precisely known. Contrary to the belief of laymen and even of many accountants, a depreciation charge is not so much an estimate of past deterioration as a forecast of future probabilities. It is never known, for example, when an old machine is going to be made obsolete by a new invention. And particularly in a period of monetary inflation, such as we have been undergoing for the last generation, depreciation charges are systematically underestimated because they fail to allow for ever mounting replacement costs. Another bad practice to which a too literal reliance on national income figures has led is that of insisting on the urgency of a certain rate of growth of the national income, no matter what level it has already reached. Thus, a report of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund in 1958, looking ten years ahead, came up with the remarkable discovery that an economic growth rate of 5% a year would lead to a bigger growth in ten years than a 3% rate or even a 4% rate.
This insistence on achieving or maintaining a certain rate of growth is the result of several misconceptions. Professor G. Warren Nutter has pointed out that there is a long-run tendency for the industrial growth rates to slow down or retard as the level of production gets higher. There are several basic explanations of this. One has to do with a trick of percentage figures. Another has to do with a physical satiety point in human needs. If only one family in a country has a bathtub, and the next year fifty families get one, the rate of growth is five thousand percent. But once everybody has a bathtub, net growth stops. This principle applies to houses, automobiles, radios, television sets, etc. In addition, as we have just noticed a little while back, as more and more things become plentiful, except dollars, there might even be a tendency for the national income figures to reflect this by falling, because prices might fall faster than output rose. Still, another practical danger of the religious use of national income figures is that it can lead to a confusing or reversal of economic cause and effect. The national income of a given year is the total result of all the production and transactions during that year. In this respect, the national income figures are similar to the account books of a private firm. But more and more, in current discussion, one finds the national income figure treated as a cause of production. The national income is thought of as the purchasing power that automatically creates and buys the production. The truth is that the national income is the production itself, looked at from another side. Broadly speaking, national income does not cause national production, but national production causes national income. In so far as the causation is the other way round. It is because of the truth in that very Say's law that the Keynesians and national income addicts tell us has been discredited. The national income figures seem to have given birth to all sorts of cause and effect fallacies. For example, if we look at the composition of the national income figures for say 1957, we find that. Part of the GNP total of 440.3 billion dollars is arrived at by including 87.1 billion dollars for government purchases of goods and services. When the national income figures of 364 billion dollars for that year are broken down into specific industries, we find that nearly 43 billion dollars is unaccounted for by government and government enterprises.
It is easy to jump to the conclusion, which Keynesians do, that if it were not for these $87 billion of government purchases, or these $43 billion of government payrolls or enterprises, the national income would be just that much less. People with a less favorable opinion of the role of government would point out that whatever the government spends, it takes away from somebody in taxes. This applies also to the hidden tax involved in monetary inflation. Undoubtedly, such government employees as policemen, firemen, judges, and road builders do increase by an unascertainable amount real national income. But it may be questioned whether such agencies as price controllers, rent boards, the tariff commission, the crop restriction agents of the Department of Agriculture, or the National Labor Relations Board do not bring about a net reduction of the real national income, in spite of the fact that they increase it according to the government figures. If we think of the national income as a mere lump overall sum in dollars, and it falls short of some goal by X billion dollars, it is a tempting step for economic planners to assume that the X billion dollars could be easily supplied by that much deficit spending, or even by printing that much money. This leads indirectly to inflation. For we can raise our national income to any figure we want simply by depreciating the dollar enough to raise prices to reach that income. In Germany in 1923, the national income in marks actually rose to hundreds of billions of times higher than its previous level, because the paper mark was depreciated to one trillionth of its former purchasing power. To be sure, when explicitly taxed with the point, economic planners will say that their goal is a national income of X billions in dollars of present purchasing power, but they forget this qualification in actual practice. They are always citing the latest national income figures in terms of the latest and most inflated dollar. They do not stop to remind us, or even themselves, of how much the national income would have to be written down to reflect the price level of, say, 20 years ago. The national income approach has become one of the important incitements to inflation. For the easiest and surest way to get constantly bigger national income figures is not by increasing output and consumer satisfactions, but by constantly shrinking the measuring rod, by constantly depreciating the dollar. It remains to be pointed out, finally, that Economic forecasting based on aggregative economics or the national income approach has been a failure. David McCord Wright, who declared that 
In practical experience, the Keynesian forecasters have quite a poor record. Sites in evidence. The egregious failure of most Keynesian forecasts after World War II, which was very largely due to an unexpected upward jump of the consumption level. Similarly, he adds, in 1953 and again in 1958, the Keynesian models of mechanical interrelationships between investment and consumption did not work out. This judgment corroborates that of John H. Williams. The consumption function, in particular, has given the mathematicians an ideal concept for building models of national income and making forecasts. Thus far, the forecasts have been almost uniformly bad. Chapter 28: The Keynesian Policies. Do deficits cure unemployment? In our chapter-by-chapter -chapter analysis of Keynesian theory, we have had occasion to examine, in passing, the implied Keynesian policies and their probable consequences. But it may now be useful to discuss some of these main policies more explicitly. In Keynesian policy, unemployment is never to be corrected by any reduction of money wage rates. Keynes recommends two main remedies. One is deficit spending, sometimes euphemistically called government investment. How good is this remedy? It was tried in the United States, partly because of Keynes's recommendations for a full decade. What were the results? Here are the deficit in the federal budget, the number of unemployed, and the percentage of unemployed to the total labor force year by year in that decade. All the figures are from official sources. In the year 1931, the deficit was 0.5 billion dollars. Unemployed were 8 million people. Percentage of unemployed was 15.9 percent. In the year 1932, the deficit was 2.7 billion dollars. The unemployed were 12.1 million people, and the percentage of unemployed was 23.6 percent. In the year 1933, the deficit was 2.6 billion dollars. The unemployed were 12.8 million people, and the percentage of unemployed was 24.9 percent. In the year 1934, the deficit was 3.6 billion dollars. The unemployed were 11.3 million people, and the percentage of unemployed was 21.7 percent. In the year 1935, the deficit was 2.8 billion dollars. The unemployed were 10.6 million people, and the percentage of unemployed was 20.1 percent.
In the year 1936, the deficit was $4.4 billion. The unemployed were 9 million people and the percentage of unemployment was 16.9%. In the year 1937, the deficit was $2.8 billion. The unemployed were 7.7 .7 million people, and the percentage of unemployment was 14.3%. In the year 1938, the deficit was $1.2 billion. The unemployed were 10.4 million people, and the percentage of unemployment was 19%. In the year 1939, the deficit was $3.9 billion. The unemployed were 9.5 million people and the percentage of unemployment was 17.2%. In the year 1940, the deficit was $9.3 billion. The unemployed were 8.1 million people, and the percentage of unemployment was 14.6%. In the foregoing table, the deficits are for fiscal years ending on June 30th. The unemployment is an average for the full calendar year. The deficit figures, therefore, lead the unemployment figures by six months. Advocates of deficit spending, no doubt, will try to find a partial negative correlation between the size of the deficit and the subsequent number of unemployed. But the central and decisive fact is that heavy deficits were accompanied by mass unemployment. The average unemployment of the 10-year period was 9.9 millions, which was 18.6% of the total working force. The average deficit in this 10-year period was $2.8 billion, which was 3.6% of the gross national product of the period. The same percentage of the gross national product of 1957 would mean an annual deficit of $15.6 billion. Does cheap money cure unemployment? The other main Keynesian remedy for unemployment is low interest rates, artificially produced by the monetary authority. Keynes incidentally admits, e.g. page 205, that such artificially low interest rates can only be produced by printing more money, i.e. by deliberate inflation. But we may let this pass for the moment. The question immediately before us is, do low interest rates prevent mass unemployment? The policy of cheap money has had an even longer trial than the policy of planned deficits. Let us look at the record of interest rates and unemployment for the same period that we have just reviewed, 1937-1940. 
adding, however, 1929 and 1930. In the table below, the first column after that of the years represents the average rate in each year, the average daily prevailing rates of prime commercial paper with a maturity of four to six months. I have chosen this rate rather than that on three-month treasury bills because it is the most available statistical series reflecting the short-term interest rates at which business actually borrows. Actually, the greatest volume of business borrowing from banks in the U.S. consists of line-of-credit loans, but these vary with the more sensitive commercial paper rate. The final column, once again, gives the percentage of unemployed to the total labor force. Both sets of figures are from official sources. In the year 1929, the commercial paper rate was 5.85%, the percentage of unemployment 3.2%, in the year 1930, the commercial paper rate was 3.59%, the percentage of unemployment 8.7%. In the year 1931, the commercial paper rate was 2.64%, the percentage of unemployment 15.9%. In the year 1932, the commercial paper rate was 2.73%, the percentage of unemployment 23.6%. In the year 1933, the commercial paper rate was 1.73%, the percentage of unemployment 24.9%. In the year 1934, the commercial paper rate was 1.02%, the percentage of unemployment 21.7%. In the year 1935, the commercial paper rate was 0.75%, the percentage of unemployment 20.1%. In the year 1936, the commercial paper rate was 0.75%, the percentage of unemployment 16.9%. In the year 1937, the commercial paper rate was 0.94%, the percentage of unemployment 14.3%. In the year 1938, the commercial paper rate was 0.81%, the percentage of unemployment 19%. In the year 1939, the commercial paper rate was 0.59%, the percentage of unemployment 17.2%. In the year 1940, the commercial paper rate was 0.56%, the percentage of unemployment 14.6%. In sum, over this period of a dozen years, low interest rates did not eliminate unemployment. On the contrary, unemployment actually increased as interest rates went down.
In the seven-year period from 1934 through 1940, when the cheap money policy was pushed to an average infralow rate below one percent, point seven seven of one percent. An average of more than 17 in every 100 persons in the labor force were unemployed. Let us skip over the war years when war demands, massive deficits, and massive inflation combined to bring overemployment, and take up the record again for the last 10 years. In the year 1949, the commercial paper rate was 1.49%. The percentage of unemployment, 5.5 percent. In the year 1950, the commercial paper rate was 1.45 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 5 percent. In the year 1951, the commercial paper rate was 2.16 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 3 percent. In the year 1952, the commercial paper rate was 2.33 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 2.7 percent. In the year 1953, the commercial paper rate was 2.52 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 2.5 percent. In the year 1954, the commercial paper rate was 1.58 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 5 percent. In the year 1955, the commercial paper rate was 2.18 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 4 percent. In the year 1956, the commercial paper rate was 3.31 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 3.8 percent. In the year 1957, the commercial paper rate was 3.81 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 4.3 percent. In the year 1958, as of June, the commercial paper rate was 1.54 percent. The percentage of unemployment, 6.8 percent. Unemployment percentages before 1957 are based on Department of Commerce old definitions of unemployment. For 1957 and 1958, they are based on the new definitions, which make unemployment slightly higher. 4.2 percent of the labor force in 1956, for example, instead of the 3.8 percent in the table. It will be noticed in this table that though the commercial paper interest rate in this period averaged 2.24 percent, or three times as high as that in the seven years from 1934 through 1940, the rate of unemployment was not higher, but much lower, averaging only 4.2 percent compared with 17.7 percent in the 1934. Through 1940 period, and within this second period itself, the relationship of unemployment to interest rates is almost the exact opposite of that suggested by Keynesian theory.
In 1949, 1950, 1954, and June of 1958, when the commercial paper interest rate averaged about 1.5%, unemployment averaged 5% and over. In 1956 and 1957, when commercial paper rates were at their highest average level of the period, at 3.56%, unemployment averaged only 4% of the it is very difficult, if not impossible, to prove a positive proposition in economic theory by the use of statistics. But it is not difficult to disprove such a proposition unless it is elaborately qualified by statistics. We must conclude at least that neither deficit spending nor cheap money policies are enough by themselves to eliminate even prolonged mass unemployment, let alone to prevent unemployment altogether. Race with the Printing Press But these are the chief Keynesian remedies for unemployment. In 1936, reviewing the general theory which had appeared in the same year, Professor Jacob Viner ventured a prediction. Keynes's reasoning points obviously to the superiority of inflationary remedies for unemployment over money wage reductions. In a world organized in accordance with Keynes's specifications, there would be a constant race between the printing press and the business agents of the trade unions, with the problem of unemployment largely solved if the printing press could maintain a constant lead and if only volume of employment, irrespective of quality, is considered important. This characterization has proved, in part, remarkably prophetic. There may be some doubt whether the problem of unemployment has been largely solved. But we have certainly been trying to solve it since 1936 in accordance with Keynes's specifications, and we have certainly embarked upon a race between the printing press and the trade unions. And our failure to solve the problem of unemployment, even by this method, is partly the result of a development Professor Viner could hardly have been expected to foresee, the spread of escalator clauses in labor contracts which provide not only for automatic increases with every increase in the cost of living, but for so-called productivity increases which come into effect whether marginal labor productivity actually increases or not. The truth is that the only real cure for unemployment is precisely the one that Keynes's whole general theory was designed to reject. The adjustment of wage rates to the marginal labor productivity or equilibrium level this does not mean a uniform and block adjustment of the wage level to the price level.
It means the mutual adjustment of specific wage rates and of prices of the specific products various groups of workers help to produce. It means also the adjustment of various wage rates to each other and of various prices to each other. It means the coordination of the complex wage-price structure. It means the maintenance of a free, fluid, dynamic equilibrium, or a constant tendency towards such an equilibrium through the economic system. In sum, neither government spending, nor low interest rates, nor an increase in the money supply is either a necessary or a sufficient condition for the existence of full employment. What is necessary for full employment, using the word in a working practical sense, is a proper relation among the prices of different kinds of goods and a proper balance between costs and prices, particularly between wages and prices. This functional balance will tend to exist when wage rates are free and fluid and competitive and not dictated by arbitrary union coercion. When this balance exists, full employment and maximized production and prosperity will tend to follow. When this balance does not exist, when wage rates are pushed above the marginal product of labor and profit margins are doubtful or disappear, there will be unemployment. The presence or absence of monetary inflation, in brief, is by itself irrelevant to full employment. All that government policy needs to do, besides keeping the currency sound, is to enforce the laws against violence and intimidation and to repeal the laws which confer exclusive legal privileges and immunities on union leaders or abridge the freedom of employers and individual workers to bargain. As Professor Sylvester Petro has put it, the legal reforms needed may all be subsumed under a single heading, unqualified supremacy of the principle of free employee choice. Chapter 29. Summary In the present book, we have followed the exposition and argument of the general theory as Keynes presents it. This means that the argument has taken a winding course, often involving repetition. The reader may find it helpful, therefore, if we now briefly summarize some of the main negative or positive propositions in each chapter. Chapter 1 Though Keynes has been praised as the peer of Adam Smith, Ricardo, and even Darwin, not a single important doctrine in his work is both true and original. 2. Keynes's effort to overthrow the orthodox contention that the most frequent cause of unemployment is excessive wage rates is unsuccessful. His arguments characteristically rest on and block thinking that assumes away the individual differences that make up reality.
Prices and wage rates never change uniformly or as a unit, but always relatively and individually. Aggregative and macroeconomics conceal real interrelationships and real causes. Three, Keynes did not succeed in refuting Say's law of markets. His attempted refutation consisted merely in ignoring the qualifications that the classical economists themselves insisted on as an integral part of the doctrine. Four, Keynes's thought is honeycombed with contradictions. His central idea of an equilibrium with unemployment is self-contradictory by the very concept and definition of equilibrium. Five, Keynes's choice of units for economic measurement was hopelessly confused. What he calls a quantity of employment and puts into algebraic equations as such turns out, on his own definition, to be not a quantity of employment but a quantity of money received by laborers who are employed. Six. There is nothing particularly original in Keynes's treatment of the role that expectations play in economic life. He does not, in fact, sufficiently recognize that role. He sees that expectations affect current output and employment, but seems to forget that they are also embodied in every current price, interest rate, and wage rate. Seven. The current disparagement of static theory is mainly the result of confusion of thought. Static theory is necessary not only for the solution of many basic problems, but as a preliminary to dynamic theory. There is no difference in kind between the methods of static analysis and the methods of dynamic analysis. There is merely a difference in the specific hypotheses made. The appropriateness or utility of any hypothesis depends mainly on the particular problem we are trying to solve. Eight, Keynes's definitions of his key terms, income, saving, and investment, are merely circular. They are all defined in terms of each other. He so defines saving and investment that they are not only necessarily equal but identical. He repudiates and apologizes for his confusing definitions of these same terms as given in his treatise on money, but absent-mindedly returns to these old definitions in his subsequent discussion, particularly when he tries to prove that investment. Increases employment and that saving reduces it. Keynes treated saving with contempt as far back as the economic consequences of the peace in 1919. His general theory was merely his last rationalization of that contempt. Nine. Mathematical economics, as Keynes and others use it, can at best give precision to purely hypothetical assumptions. To mistake these hypotheses for known or determinable realities leads to a merely spurious precision and compounds error.
Keynes's alleged consumption function, his fundamental psychological law governing the propensity to consume, is an unsuccessful attempt to turn a loose truism known from time immemorial into a precise and predictable relationship. Even if this relationship existed, it would not have the economic consequences that Keynes attributes to it. 10. Keynes's list of eight motives for saving is arbitrary. It could either be expanded to a much larger number or reduced to one to build up a reserve against future needs or contingencies. In addition to this motive for plain saving, however, we must set down the motive to capitalistic saving, to make roundabout methods of production possible, which is quite overlooked in Keynes's eight. His argument that a rise in the rate of interest will diminish investment rests on the fallacy of assuming an arbitrary or uncaused rise in the rate of interest rather than a rise that may be itself caused by an increase in the demand schedule for investment. 11. Keynes's investment multiplier is a myth. There is never any fixed, predictable multiplier. There is never any precise, predeterminable, or mechanical relationship between social income, consumption, investment, and extent of employment. An equilibrium with unemployment, to repeat, is a contradiction in terms. No investment multiplier can be calculated or even discussed except in relation to the extent of maladjustment or discoordination among prices and wage rates, or to the state of business sentiment. Keynes's implied definitions of saving and investment constantly shift. He tacitly assumes that what is not spent on consumption goods is not spent on anything at all. By investment, he most frequently means government deficit spending financed by inflation. His multiplier easily lends itself to a reductio ad absurdum. His belief that gold or money is sterile is a relic of medieval prejudice. 12. Keynes uses one of his key phrases, the marginal efficiency of capital, in so many different senses that it is difficult, if not impossible, to keep track of them. He fails to recognize that interest rates are as much governed by expectations as is the marginal efficiency of capital. Instead of using this latter term to cover at least six different possible meanings, he should have been careful at all times to distinguish between these meanings. But if he had, he might not have written the general theory at all. 13. Keynes's arguments against liquidity and against speculation are untenable. Speculative anticipations and risks are necessarily involved in all economic activity. Somebody must bear them. 
What Keynes is saying is that people cannot be trusted to invest the money they have themselves earned, and that this money should be seized from them by government officials and spent or invested in the directions in which those officials, seeking to hold on to political power, deem best. 14. It is not helpful to explain interest rates as the reward for parting with liquidity, any more than it would be to explain the price of tomatoes or a house as the reward to the buyer for parting with cash for them. Without previous saving, moreover, there can be no liquidity to part with. If Keynes's theory of interest were right, Interest rates would be highest at the bottom of a depression and lowest at the peak of a boom, which is almost precisely the opposite of their actual tendency. Keynes is wrong in regarding money as barren. It is a productive asset, and productive in the same sense as other assets. Keynes is also wrong in regarding interest as a purely monetary phenomenon. His fallacy consists in assuming that because monetary factors can be shown to affect the rate of interest, real factors can safely be ignored or even denied. Whatever is true in Keynes's theory of interest was already recognized by Newt Wicksell and is fully taken account of in the work of the best contemporary economists. 15. Though Keynes attacks the classical theory of the rate of interest, there is no uniform classical theory of interest. Current theories of interest might be divided into three broad categories. 1. Productivity theories, 2. Time preference or time discount theories, and 3. Theories which combine productivity and time preference. As a borrower of funds, in effect, buys or borrows time, or the use or enjoyment of goods before he could otherwise use or enjoy them, time preference or time usance must be recognized as the chief factor in explaining interest and the rate of interest. But investment opportunity, the prospective rate of return over cost, or the expected net value productivity of specific new capital goods, also plays a role, because of its influence on the demand for loans and the rate that borrowers are willing to pay. Any complete theory of interest must deal not only with real, but with monetary factors. At any given moment, the rate of interest is determined by the point of intersection of the supply curve of savings with the demand curve of investment, or the supply of loanable funds with the demand for loanable funds. But the chief long-run determinant of the interest rate is the community's composite rate of time discount. 16. While Keynes formally defines saving and investment as necessarily equal in amount and merely different aspects of the same thing, 
His theory repeatedly depends on the tacit assumption that saving and investment are separate and independent. Under the assumption of a constant money supply, saving and investment are necessarily at all times equal. When investment exceeds prior genuine saving, it is because new money and bank credit are being created. When ordinary saving exceeds subsequent investment, it is because the money supply is contracting. An excess of saving over subsequent investment is but another way of describing deflation, and an excess of investment over prior saving is but another way of describing inflation. Keynes's assumption that it would be comparatively easy to make capital goods so abundant that the marginal efficiency of capital is zero is fantastic and has absurd implications. 17. Keynes's theories of own rates of interest are completely untenable. What he is talking about is not interest rates at all, but merely speculative anticipations of price changes. Keynes's belief that the world is so poor in accumulated capital assets overlooks the fact that at least two out of every three persons in the world today owe their very existence to accumulated capital since the Industrial Revolution. 18. Keynes had confused ideas about economic interrelationships. Particularly absurd was his idea that flexible money wages, adjusting to prior changes in prices and demand, would cause violent oscillations in prices, and that we could stabilize the economy by trying to hold up wage rates regardless of what happened to prices. His remedy would unstabilize the economy and create or prolong the very mass unemployment he professed to be trying to cure. 19. Keynes is unsuccessful in his attempt to deny the most strongly established principle in economics: that if the price of any commodity or service is kept too high, i.e. Above the point of equilibrium, some of that commodity or service will remain unused or unsold. When wage rates are too high, there will be unemployment. Adjusting the myriad wage rates to their respective equilibrium points may not always be in itself a sufficient step to the restoration of full employment, but it is an absolutely necessary step. Keynes tried to substitute general monetary inflation for piecemeal wage and price adjustment, but without proper wage-price coordination, inflation cannot bring full employment. Twenty, there is no reason to suppose that there is a genuine and determinable functional relationship between effective demand and the volume of employment. There will be full employment with all sorts of changes in effective demand if a fluid and dynamic equilibrium exists among prices, wage rates, etc. 
There will be unemployment with no matter what effective demand if this equilibrium does not exist. Keynes was unjustified in declaring that previous economists had failed to reconcile value theory and monetary theory. 21. Inflation is at once an uncertain remedy for unemployment, an unnecessary remedy for unemployment, and a dangerous remedy for unemployment. Elasticity of demand is not measurable. The mathematical method is misapplied to it. To try to cure unemployment by inflation rather than by adjustment of specific wage rates is like trying to adjust the piano to the stool rather than the stool to the piano. The rate of interest is a market price like any other market price and determined as much by the demands of borrowers as by the offers of lenders. 22. The explanation of an economic crisis as a sudden collapse of the marginal efficiency of capital is either a useless truism or an obvious error, according to the interpretation we give the phrase, the marginal efficiency of capital. If this means simply a collapse of confidence, the explanation is a truism. If it means a collapse in physical productivity, it is nonsense. If it means a collapse in value productivity, it reverses cause and effect. The Keynesian cure for crises is perpetual low interest rates. The attempt to attain these would lead to a policy of perpetual inflation. The Javonian theory that business conditions vary directly with the size of crops is untenable, and particularly implausible in the form maintained by Keynes. 23. Keynes's system, as he came to recognize at the end of the general theory, was actually a reversion to the naive and discredited theories of the mercantilists and underconsumption theorists, from Mandeville and Malthus to Hobson. It was also a reversion to all the inflationist theories of the currency cranks, from John Law to Silvio Giselle. 24. Keynes's proposals for the euthanasia of the rentier of the functionless investor were proposals to rob the productive and expropriate their savings. Keynes's plan for the socialization of investment would inevitably entail socialism and state planning. Seriously carried out, it would remove any significant field for the exercise of private initiative and responsibility. Keynes, in brief, recommended de facto socialism under the guise of reforming and preserving capitalism. Domestic laissez-faire and an international gold standard, blamed by Keynes as among the economic causes of war, were in fact powerful forces for peace and international cooperation. It is the national planning policies recommended by Keynes that would tend to provoke wars. 25. 
Because Keynes was continually contradicting himself, we may not be justified in calling his 1946 article in the Economic Journal a recantation of the general theory. But his praise of the classical medicine, plus his reference to much modernist stuff gone wrong and turned sour and silly, may have indicated that he was on the verge of recantation. 26. If we try to use the term with scientific or objective precision, full employment is not even definable. Full employment at whatever cost is not even desirable. It is best either to use the term in a loose, common-sense way to mean the absence of abnormal, involuntary unemployment, or to replace it by the term optimum employment. It is not an end in itself, but a means to, or an accompaniment, of much broader ends, including mainly the maximization of consumer satisfactions. The economic objective of mankind, after all, is not more work but less. 27. Efforts to determine the national income in monetary terms have merely a limited usefulness for special purposes. Actually, all estimates of national income rest on certain arbitrary and sometimes false assumptions. They are not purely objective or strictly determinate. The present fetish made of such estimates leads not only to confusion of economic cause and effect, but to inflationist and totalitarian policies. Economic forecasting based on aggregative economics or the national income approach has been almost uniformly bad. 28. It is not true that deficits in the government budget cure unemployment. It is not true that low interest rates cure unemployment. The Keynesian prescription leads to a constant race between the money supply and the demands of the trade unions, but it does not lead to long-run full employment. The Failure of the New Economics Written by Henry Hazlitt Read by Josiah Schmidt For the Ludwig von Mises Institute At www.mises.org Acknowledgements I am indebted to Harcourt Brayson Company the American publishers of Keynes's General Theory, for their generous permission to reprint so many passages from that book. This extensive quotation, rather than mere paraphrase, seemed to me almost unavoidable in the present critical work because of the many existing and possible interpretations and disputes concerning what Keynes actually said. I wish to thank the New York Times for permission to reprint as an appendix my article on Keynes's Economic Consequences of the Peace in its issue of March 11, 1945. 
I also wish to thank Newsweek for permission to use tables, charts, and excerpts from some of my articles that originally appeared in its pages. My indebtedness to other publishers for permission to quote from authors or books published by them is, I hope, sufficiently indicated in the text or in footnotes. I am grateful to Ludwig von Mises for reading the galleys and offering some invaluable suggestions. For the opinions expressed and any errors made, I alone, of course, must be held responsible. My wife, as usual, has helped me in scores of details. Henry Hazlitt, January 1959 Appendix A the 1919 Prophecies A few months ago, the London Economist remarked that many people will be turning to read or reread Lord Keynes's The Economic Consequences of the Peace. They will find the task rewarding, not so much for the brilliant analysis of the economic consequences, as for the inspired account of the peace itself and the process of its making. There are passages in it which, in the setting of today, have an almost frightening urgency. The passages to which the economist referred include the picture of Europe at the end of World War I, almost completely lost from sight in piecemeal settlement and in empty and arid intrigue. Here was a matter of life and death, of starvation and existence, and of the fearful convulsions of a dying civilization. Here was Europe forgotten, yet deeply and inextricably intertwined, victors and defeated alike, by hidden psychic and economic bonds. The economist referred also to the picture of the World War I peacemakers themselves. The portrayal of the complex struggle of human will and purpose concentrated in the persons of four individuals in a manner never paralleled. The portrait of the righteous President Wilson refusing to discuss the final decisions lest he should thereby be shaken in his faith that, in the sweat of solitary contemplation and with prayers to God, he had done nothing that was not just and right. It was the task of the peace conference, wrote Keynes, to honor engagements and to satisfy justice, but not less to re-establish life and to heal wounds. And neither part of the task, he concluded, had been performed. When we turn back to the economic consequences of the peace and look at it again in the light of 25 years' experience and perspective, with the added illumination brought by the striking parallel in some respects between conditions at the time it was written and conditions today, we still find it undeniably a brilliant piece of writing. The most fascinating section is still Chapter 3, in which the personalities of the Big Three of that time, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and Wilson, are described in unforgettable terms. 
Clemenceau, with his weary cynicism, sitting with closed eyes and an impassive face of parchment, his gray-gloved hands clasped in front of him, awaking to sudden outbursts only when the interests of France were directly concerned. Lloyd George, with his unerring, almost medium-like sensibility to everyone immediately around him, with six or seven senses not available to ordinary men, judging character, motive, and subconscious impulse, perceiving what each was thinking, and even what each was going to say next, and compounding with telepathic instinct the argument or appeal best suited to the vanity, weakness, or self-interest of his immediate auditor, and finally the poor President Wilson himself, playing blind man's bluff, in that party, a blind and deaf Don Quixote, like a nonconformist minister, perhaps a Presbyterian, rigid, with a temperament theological rather than intellectual, appallingly incompetent in the agilities of the council chamber, and Lloyd George desiring at the last moment all the moderation he dared, finding to his horror that it was harder to de-bamboozle this old Presbyterian than it had been to bamboozle him. These portraits are as vivid as those of Lytton Strachey. It is interesting to recall that Strachey dedicated one of his early volumes to Keynes. But, like Strachey's, there is also a little trace of the smart aleck in them. This trace is even more pronounced in a well-known passage in the book in which Keynes contemptuously compares modern railroads to the pyramids of Egypt and ridicules the capitalistic cake which must always grow and never be enjoyed, a passage calculated to delight gourmets of paradox, but easily demolished by serious argument. This brings us to the economic sections of the book. For a quarter of a century now, Lord Keynes, on the basis of this work, has ranked in some circles as a major prophet. On the surface, indeed, his prophecies seemed to be uncannily accurate. At a time when allied statesmen were talking of reparations claims that would have reached something in the neighborhood of $40 billion, he contended that a safe maximum figure of Germany's capacity to pay was $10 billion. The most that Germany could pay annually, he thought, was $500 million. He also urged the total cancellation of inter-allied war debts, and added, I do not believe that any of these tributes will continue to be paid, at the best, for more than a very few years. What actually happened was that after endless conferences, the reparations claims were steadily scaled down until under the Young Plan in 1929, they reached almost exactly the $500 million annually that Keynes had seen in 1919 as the maximum collectible. In the end, even these were not paid, nor were the inter-allied loans either. 
The whole process was brought to an abrupt end by President Hoover's moratorium in 1931 and never revived. Could a prophet ever have had clearer vindication? But a few questions obtrude themselves. Does the fact that Germany did not pay on net balance practically any reparations at all prove that she could not have paid them? The German reparations were unintentionally paid, in fact, chiefly by trusting American investors. And were the reasons why German reparations and inter-allied war debts bogged down the same as the reasons why Mr. Keynes thought they would? The evidence does not show it. Let us look at the size of the reparations ultimately asked for under the Young Plan. At an annual level of around $500 million dollars, or two billion gold marks, they were less than four percent of the total German national income, and less than a fifth even of the pre-Hitler and post-inflation annual government expenditures. It would be absurd to call such a burden crushing. Where did Keynes's arguments go astray? He was right in seeing that all reparations would have to be paid, ultimately, not in cash, but in goods and services, that is to say, in a German export excess. He was right in contending that a world that insisted on reparations would have to open its doors to imports from Germany. But he was wrong in arguing that Germany's ability to produce this export excess was to be measured by her pre-war trade balance. He was wrong in this effort to give an itemized demonstration of Germany's inability to reach a high export surplus. He was wrong in assuming that the effects of this export surplus would be just like those of any other export surplus. For his whole discussion overlooks the obvious fact that Germany, in sending this export surplus, would also be sending to the allied countries the purchasing power with which to buy it. The transfer of goods, in the absence of barriers to imports on the part of the allied governments, would have followed as a natural consequence of the transfer of cash to pay for them. Finally, he too often forgot that the war damage had actually been done. Insofar as Germany failed to pay for reparations, her victims would have to do so. The blunt fact is that when the Allies permitted the reparations payments to stop, they enabled Germany to use the money thus saved for an immense armament program to launch against them the most destructive war in history. But it was partly because the world suffered from import phobia and was influenced by Keynes's neo-mercantilist arguments that it was willing to grant that Germany could not pay the reparations. This gave Germany the excuse for default. The influence of Keynes's own arguments, in short, was partly responsible for the success of his predictions.
That influence remains to this day, so that the Yalta announcement, for example, talks only of reparations in kind. Actually, if there is a willingness on the part of the victors to receive goods, there is no essential economic difference between reparations in kind or in cash, except that the latter are more flexible. In each case, there must be a transfer both of actual goods and of the cash values that they represent. Keynes's own proposals for reparation settlement are not entirely free from disingenuousness. He proposed, for example, a total indemnity for Germany of ten billion dollars. He then suggested that Germany be given a credit against this of two point five billion dollars for the surrender of merchant ships, cables, war materials, and other items. The balance of seven point five billion dollars, he adds, should not carry interest pending its repayment, and should be paid by Germany in thirty annual installments of two hundred fifty million dollars, beginning in nineteen twenty-three. This is not only half the annual sum that Keynes had conceded earlier in his book that Germany might pay, but it is not. 7.5 billion dollars. The present value of 30 annual installments of 250 million dollars, beginning three years hence, the economic consequences appeared late in 1919, on an assumed interest rate of 5 percent, is less than 3.5 billion dollars. In other words, on the usual interest rate assumptions, Mr. Keynes was actually suggesting a capital payment from Germany of approximately half of 7.5 billion dollars. A fresh reading of Lord Keynes's old book reminds us of one thing more. It is oversimplification, if not naive melodrama, to assume that America failed to enter the League of Nations and turned isolationist after 1920 because a few wicked old reactionaries like Senator Lodge and President Harding prevented us. On the contrary, the drive against the Treaty of Versailles, which embodied the League of Nations, was led by the then left-wing liberals under the leadership of Keynes and his economic consequences of the peace. This is a very great book," exclaimed Harold Lasky in his review in the Nation. If any answer can be made to the overwhelming indictment of the treaty that it contains, that answer has yet to be published. The New Republic took up the cry. Its reviewer found the book like a fresh breeze coming into a plain where poisonous gases are yet hanging. The League was rejected as the mere instrument of a vicious treaty. The lesson is twofold.
The liberals of today would do well to be something less than perfectionists in their demands, but the framers of the new treaties, in their turn, should try to establish a peace that recognizes the economic interdependence of Europe and of the world, a peace that, while it meets the demands of justice and prevents another aggression, will be of such a nature that humane and liberal public opinion in the democracies, when the passions of war have cooled, will still be willing to support it. Appendix D Interest Rates and Business Cycles It was the contention of John Maynard Keynes, still accepted by many academic economists, that interest rates are a purely monetary phenomenon. In his own words, The rate of interest is the reward for parting with liquidity for a specified period, a measure of the unwillingness of those who possess money to part with their liquid control over it. This theory not only ignores or contradicts most of what has been written by economists for the last two centuries, but is clearly contrary to the facts it presumes to explain. If Keynes's theory were right, short-term interest rates would be highest precisely at the bottom of a depression to overcome the individual's reluctance to part with cash then. But it is in a depression that short-term interest rates tend to be lowest. If the liquidity preference theory were right, short-term interest rates would be lowest at the peak of a boom because confidence would be highest then and everybody would be wishing to invest in projects and things rather than in money. But it is at the peak of a boom that short-term interest rates tend to be highest. It is not easy to prove this relationship statistically, partly because so many influences govern interest rates, and partly because there is no pure index of depression and prosperity. But Jeffrey H. Moore, Associate Director of Research of the National Bureau of Economic Research, who has done much work along this line, has, at my request, kindly furnished the data, and H. Irving Foreman of the same organization has prepared the accompanying chart. I hasten to add that neither is responsible for the conclusions I have drawn from it. The chart accompanied an article of mine in Newsweek on October 13, 1958, comparing the Federal Reserve Index of Industrial Production with bank rates on short-term business loans in the 10-year period running from 1948 through part of 1958. The industrial production scale on the left and the interest rate scale on the right are ratio scales in order to bring out more clearly the proportional changes in the two indexes. The dots indicate comparative high and low points. 
The results show that the two indexes tend to go up or down together. Or, more strictly speaking, the industrial production index leads and the interest rate index lags. This is what we might expect. When production has been low, demand for loans is low and interest rates are low. As production increases, the demand for loans to expand production increases, and if the money and credit supply is not too elastic, interest rates tend to rise, but with a time lag. There is also, no doubt, a reciprocal and inverse influence of interest rates on production. Low interest rates, other things being equal, tend to encourage borrowing for subsequent production. And high interest rates tend to discourage borrowing for subsequent production. The chart gives only short-term interest rates. For completeness, long-term interest rates should be considered also. But the historical record does not lead to any substantial modification of the conclusions just reached. Those interested will find the relevant charts both in the monthly Federal Reserve chart book and in the historical supplement to it, both published by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. There they will find, e.g. on page 21 of the monthly issue of October 1958 and on page 37 of the historical supplement of September 1958, that short-term and long-term rates tend to go up and down together. From the monthly chart, which covers only the period from the beginning of 1950 to the end of 1958, one might get the impression that short-term rates are almost always lower than long-term rates. From the historical comparisons running from 1865 to 1958, however, one may see that, until about 1929, short-term rates oscillated both above and below long-term rates and were as often higher as lower. This is what theory would lead us to expect. The long-term interest rate for a given period is, at any moment, the composite speculative anticipation of what the average of future short-term rates will be over that period, corrected in periods of deflation or inflation, for anticipations regarding the future real purchasing power of the currency unit. These speculative anticipations will, of course, often prove wrong, but long-term rates will tend to vary less erratically and through a much narrower range than short-term rates. For more audiobooks and essays such as these, visit Mises.org at www.mises.org.
A note on books. There must be hundreds of economic books that may be variously described as Keynesian, pro-Keynesian, quasi-Keynesian, semi-Keynesian, or post-Keynesian, and there must be thousands of such pamphlets and articles. But there is a great dearth when we come to any literature since 1936 that may be described as definitely anti-Keynesian. In the sense that it is explicitly and consistently critical of the major Keynesian doctrines, in the works of such writers as Ludwig von Mises, F. A. Hayek, Wilhelm Röpke, Frank H. Knight, Jacques Reff, and others, we do indeed have an impressive non-Keynesian literature based on. Neoclassical premises, with occasional explicit criticism of Keynesian tenets, but full-length books exclusively devoted to a critical analysis of Keynesianism may be counted on the fingers of one hand. First among them, I should like to mention L. Albert Hahn's *The Economics of Illusion*, a collection of essays originally published separately on various Keynesian themes. The same author's *Common Sense Economics* is mainly devoted to developing a unified constructive doctrine, but involves explicit as well as implied criticism of Keynesian doctrine. A small volume by V. Orville Watts, *Away from Freedom*, especially emphasizes the moral and political weaknesses of Keynesianism. And not even the shortest anti-Keynesian bibliography should omit Arthur W. Marget's monumental study, *The Theory of Prices*. Two volumes, 1,426 pages. This work is distinguished both for its penetrating comment and for the immense range of its scholarship, but its relentless prolixity and disheartening length have caused it to miss the influence it might otherwise have had. Not until I had finished the present book did I have the good fortune, through his generosity, to spend an hour over the manuscript of a work in preparation by W. H. Hutt, now dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. This will be both a thorough and a thoroughly admirable work, which I am convinced will make a deep impression when it appears. Meanwhile, I feel encouraged and corroborated in my own analysis by the numerous points of similarity to the analysis by Professor Hutt made from so distant a geographical perspective. David McCord Wright, Dow Professor of Economics and Political Science at McGill University, Montreal, is now also engaged. I am informed on a book on the Keynesian system.
Judging from his article, Mr. Keynes and the Day of Judgment, which appeared in Science of November 21, 1958, this book will throw much added light on the problems with which it deals. Individual volumes have appeared devoted to criticism of single aspects of Keynesian doctrine. Among these, W. H. Hutt's *The Theory of Idle Resources* and George Terbor's *The Bogey of Economic Maturity* are outstanding. Milton Friedman has devoted a critical and careful study to *The Theory of the Consumption Function*, and Ernst W. Swanson and Emerson P. Schmidt, in *Economic Stagnation or Progress*, have written a critique of doctrines on the mature economy, oversavings, and deficit spending. But much of the best critical analysis of Keynesian doctrines has appeared merely in individual chapters in a few pages of works by such writers as Benjamin M. Anderson, Arthur F. Burns, Philip Courtney, Gottfried Haberler, F. A. Hayek, Frank H. Knight, Ludwig von Mises, Melchior Pauli. Charles Rist, Wilhelm Repke, and others, and in widely scattered articles, mainly in learned journals, by Harry Gunnison Brown, W. H. Hutt, Frank H. Knight, L. M. Lachman, Joseph Stag Lawrence, Etienne Manteau (only in French), Franco Modigliani, Edwin G. Norse. Melchior Pauli, Jacques Reff, Jacob Viner, R. Gordon Wasson, John H. Williams, David McCord Wright, and others. These articles would have a far greater impact on current thought than they have had if they could be collected and made readily available between the covers of a single book. I have not mentioned any pro-Keynesian literature because it is so vast and so easily available. But Seymour Harris appends a bibliographic note to his laudatory book on John Maynard Keynes, economist and policymaker, in which he lists seventeen volumes, mainly sympathetic, of which I should especially like to mention Dudley Dillard's *The Economics of John Maynard Keynes* and Alvin H. Hansen's *A Guide to Keynes*, because they are so much better. Organized and so much more lucid than the general theory itself.